Recorded Books presents On Fragile Waves by E. Lily Yu Narrated by Jeed Sadie For Those Who Have Lost Part 1 Chapter 1 Once there was, once there wasn't, a daughter. Does, 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 does. Brum, bum, shrek. Born during, tuck, dump, does, 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 does. War. When time is no time at all, and everything must be said in the breath between mortar, fire. We will call her Firuze, her father said, slapping her back until she purpled and wailed because she will either be a rock or victorious. And besides, a name is cheaper than a sword. Her first word was Gola. I ask you, what is the difference between war and not war when there is no music? Two years later came Noor, slick and shiny, in a long, unsatisfied scream and everyone was hungrier. When Firuze was six, fire fell again from the sky. Rum, rum, rum. A city of smoke pitched its tents over Kabul. A long, loud time, Amrika on every lip. Then Abe turned on the radio and on the fragile waves, they heard a dambura strumming a milk and sugar song. It's over, thank God, said Ate, and went to work. Chapter Two Listen, said Abe, bring me your clothes to pack, and I will tell you the story of Rostam and Rakhsh. At least sit still, Noor, and don't tear down the laundry. At least sit. Noor, please. Rostam was rash and brave, like you, light of my eyes. And when the time came to find him a steed, every horse buckled under his warrior's weight. So they ran the best horses of Kabul past him, the swiftest and most beautiful, and just like your Ate feels the engine of a Corolla throbbing through the hood and knows how well it runs, you could feel the proud heartbeat of these horses. God knows stabling horses wasn't a dangerous job then. No one threatened the Kabuli stable keepers who paraded their horses for this prince. We should have stayed servants, but your father is proud. Anyhow, Rostam cut from the herd a beautiful colt spotted like rose petals on saffron, like the silk flowers from Chicken Street on a wedding taxi. He tossed his lasso around its neck and asked the price of the horse. If you are Rostam, said the herdsman, its price is nothing less than this country. Go forth and defend it. So Rostam and Rakhish traveled forth seeking adventure, as we are all about to do. And Rakhish kept Rostam safe, 
as your Ate and I will keep you safe. Rachish guarded Rostam while he slept. First, he killed a lion that crept up in the night. In the morning, Rostam discovered shreds of lion in his horse's teeth and on his horse's hooves. Then Rachish kicked Rostam awake when a dragon approached. Once, twice. Both times, Rostam saw nothing. He threatened to kill the useless son of a donkey if he was woken up again. The third time, Rostam saw the dragon and slew it and praised Rachish. How he praised him, light of my eyes. Deeply did Rostam love Rachish as much as a mother loves her son. They rode together for many years and countless farsang until treachery. But that is another story. We will ride a bus to Jalalabad tonight, just as Rostam rode Rachish to challenge the white div. In Jalalabad, we will change buses the way Persian warriors changed horses and ride to Pakistan. It will be like a story. I need you to be good. I need you to be quiet. I need you to not pull Firuze's hair, Noor. I pass our Quran over you, so you are blessed. Kiss it. Now you. No, it will stay here to protect our home while we are gone. Put on your shoes. Chapter 3 the ripped vinyl of the seat caught Firuze's skirt as she shifted to peek out of the minibus window. Noor's elbow dug into her side. Ate, are we in Pakistan yet? Not yet, Noor. How much longer? A little while. You said that when we were on the bus. It's still true. Don't kick. You liked the plush German bus, didn't you? And the trucks that bumped up and down but had beautiful eyes on their back gates and flowers and lions on their sides? Yes, Abe. I didn't. They hurt my bum. Feduze has more bum. That's why hers doesn't hurt. I liked the sheep on the truck. It was soft. This one's too crowded. Everyone smells. You smell, Noor. Just a little longer, Noor John. A few more minutes and we'll be at the border. Will there be police, Ate? Enough. I need to remember 400 things today. Ask your mother. Will the police stop us, Ate? What a question. Are we going to get in trouble? Do you want to know something? For a few Afghanis, you can cross the border into Pakistan unhindered. That is how day workers flow in and out with a little more money in their pockets. The tide of adventurers, that's what we are, flows in and does not return. It is not dangerous at all, Feiruze. Not like what Bibi Nagar had to do. What did Bibi Nagar have to do? She had to win back her husband, Hastahomar, from a demoness and stay alive. And did she? If you're going to tell stories in front of everyone, 
Ate rubbed his eyes. At least do it properly. From the beginning. The snake. All right. One day among days, a woodcutter found a snake in his bundle, thick as your Ate's arm. He almost died of fear right there, but the snake said, I will not harm you if you marry me to your daughter. Bibi Nagar was a brave girl and agreed. On their wedding night, when the guests were gone, the snake flung off his skin and became a beautiful young man, Hastechomar, and they lived very happily together. But the women had to gossip and say idle, foolish things, Ate sighed. Isn't that always so? Abe said, if Firuze married a snake who was also a man, wouldn't you try to make him less snake and more man? If that snake tried his nonsense with my daughter, I'd have beaten him to death. Or taken her and fled the country. Abe, is that why we had to leave? Listen to the story, Noor. Firuze eats too much and won't let me win at walnuts. Who'd want her? Why not ask him how to destroy his skin, Bibi Nagar's mother said, to make him stay. So Bibi Nagar asked Hasta Homar, and he said, if you must know, you can burn it in a fire of onion skins and garlic peels. But if you do that, I will leave you forever. And Bibi Nagar told her mother all this. That old woman probably wept, wrung her hands, tore her hair, said shame, and all those things that mothers-in-law do. Of course that silly girl bent under all that pressure. Of course the skin was burned. Did you want to tell this story, husband? Please go on. Hasta Homar smelled the smoke from afar and knew what had happened. He came to his wife and said, So you've done it. Now I must leave you. She wept and said, Is there no other way? And Hastechomar said, Only if you walk until you wear out seven pairs of iron shoes to reach Mount Qaf, where my relatives, the Peris, live, which is where I am going. So Bibi Negar, Enough. They're asleep. No, I'm... Not. You say this man is trustworthy? As trustworthy as any of them. He's gotten six men to Australia. Where's Australia? I don't know. But it's safe, he said. The children will go to good schools. No one will attack me in the street or leave threatening letters or insult you. The right question to ask a smuggler like that one of the other passengers interjected, is how many men did he fail to get to Australia? I did not ask him that. Then God help you. You speak from experience? I had a Herati cousin headed to Germany through Iran. Haven't heard from him in months. They found some boys dead in a cargo container, but he wasn't among them. The smuggler has left Herat for who knows where. And you... You have a wife and children. Quiet, please. Don't wake them. They don't need to be frightened. How else do children learn? Firuze cracked her eyes open. 
in front of her, wedged among tightly corded bundles. A chucker swayed in its wire cage, staring, its black pupil ringed in brown, then red. Destined for battle, to claw and draw blood and finally be eaten. Now and then a jolt of the minibus knocked a querulous note from its throat. And she, and she, was Rostam on his speckled steed, riding into unknown lands. Was Bibi Nagar in iron shoes, gone to Mount Kaf where wonders were. Was as disobedient as snake-shouldered Zahak when she pinched her brother and made him wail, or so Abe often said. Goodbye to Homera. Goodbye to Shiringol. Goodbye to the dry, sweet smell of the classroom where she learned her lessons, where the harried teacher always called on someone else. Never mind that Firuze leaned almost on tiptoe from her desk, vibrating with answers. Goodbye to home and the creaking, clanging front gate. And the steaming vats of breakfast pulses by the road and the men sitting in wheelbarrows waiting for work. Goodbye to the mountains sharp with snow. Ate gestured toward the stranger. Ara, do you know how much longer? Only an hour or so to the border. Where are you going? Peshawar. Where in Peshawar? I don't know. I have a name, a phone number. Fool the stranger said amiably. A name and a phone number, a name and a phone number, all the way to Australia. Is that how you'll go? God protect you. Abe said, my husband is no fool. A long, sad look. Then the stranger proffered a pocket full of dried mulberries. For the children, he said, and turned to face the front. And from then until Peshawar, he did not speak again. Chapter 4 Firuze was sleepy and stumbling when they reached the compound in Peshawar. A door opened. Lamplight flared. A paper cutout of a man, smelling of garlic and cigarettes, rippled out to greet them. A pleasure to meet you, a pleasure. I am Abdullah Khan. What are you waiting for? He said to the driver of the dingy car they had come in. You said 2,000 rupees. Come back for it tomorrow. But am I not good for my word? The driver retreated. Abdullah Khan threw his arm around Ate's shoulders. Come in, welcome. Up the stairs. Three narrow beds in a dark and musty room. On the windowsill, a brown stick clawed upward from its pot. You'll wait here, Abdullah Khan said, until we have your documents and tickets ready. How long, Abe said, her eyes measuring the room. We don't know, but don't worry, we'll take care of it. He applied a lighter to a cigarette. The rent is modest, 150 rupees a night but we already paid $20,000 in Kabul. Hearing a mouse's noise, Firuze popped her head out of the door. Down the dim hall, a plump-cheeked girl peered out of another doorway. 
They regarded each other silently for a moment. The yellow ruffles of the strange girl's dress, the glossy crimp of her hair, and the leather daisy on her shoe smacked of having, owning, ordering. Then the strange girl pulled a face and vanished back into her room. Firuze took two steps down the hall, and then Abdullah Khan was backing out of the door, effusive and firm. His smile did not quite reach his eyes. Even as Ate continued to protest, left hand gesticulating, his right hand descended on Firuze's shoulder and steered her back inside. Behave. This is Agha Rahmatullah Shahzavani, Khanum Del Ruba, and Nasima. They're also going to Australia. Feruzajan, what do you say? We were here first, the girl in the yellow dress said, folding her arms. Hello, Firuze mumbled. Then why doesn't Noor have to say anything? Because I'm younger than you, stupid. I'm sure the girls will get along. No, Nasima is the youngest. We have three altogether. Jawed and Khera'Allah are in Perth already, working. We're going to join them. Do you believe what they say? How long will we have to wait? They're honest men. They got our sons to Perth. Where did you work, Agha Rahmatullah? In the government. My father is very important. Nasima said, fidgeting with the cloth of her skirt. People ask him for permissions, stamps, and signatures. Is your father important? He's like the stablekeeper who brought Rakhish to Rostam, Firuze said. He fixes automobiles, Noor said. Ow! Firuze! Are they charging us too much for our rooms? What's the rate for a room in Peshawar? God knows, Delruba said. We've paid fortunes already, Rahmatullah said. This is a trifle, a sneeze. We don't have any sneezes left. Is your family poor? Nasima said. You don't look like you have much money. Look at them, friends already. Such sweet kids. I like your shoes, Firuze said angry and shy and confused. Thank you. They're real leather, made in Iran. And yours are... The boys couldn't keep their mouths shut, Rahmatullah said. If there was a petition, they signed it. If there was a movement, they joined it. The letters we would get. His head and beard went white, see? It cost us almost everything we had to send them to Australia. Now they send us back a little here, a little there. They are good boys, if dumb as oxen. Is your brother dumb too, Nasima said. Very. The two girls turned their heads to appraise Noor. He had abandoned their conversation to watch an ant march along the window, through slashes of sunlight, up the flower pot, and across the hardened dirt. It seems so. Nasima said, nodding sagely. But you and me, we know what's going on. We do, Firuze said, not having the faintest idea. 
And when we arrive, my father will find a good job, an important job. My brothers will be kind to me instead of insufferable. And now that they don't need to send their money home, they can buy me kilos and kilos of lollies. That's what sweets are called there. They promised. And my mother will dye my father's hair black again, so you can't tell how much you worried. And I will wear the best clothes and go to the best school. She took a breath. Her cheeks were flushed, her eyes shining. What about you? That's a dream for rich people, Firuze said. Ate often said that when he came home, hands and face black with oil, before swinging Nur, then Firuze, around in circles. Someday, silk for your mother, ice cream for you, a suit for me, and a palace for all of us. But who am I fooling? That's a dream for... Well, you're no fun. Nesima said. Chapter 5 After nine days, Abdullah Khan returned with deep blue passports and plane tickets, which he doled out like largesse. You're Hungarian now, he said, a little swagger in his step, a little smirk on his lips. Oh, what a trick, what a trickster, to treat boarders like jump ropes. This flight is to Australia, Ate said. <laughs> if we sent you direct to Australia, you'd be caught and deported at once. No good. You're going to Jakarta. I have a friend there who'll take care of you. He'll send us to Australia? Eventually, eventually. You must trust us. We would never let anything happen to those children of yours. Look at those beautiful smiles. Imagine them safe in Australia, writing a letter to Kaka Abdullah Khan. Thank you so much, uncle, for sending us here. Firuze, who had not at any point been smiling, pulled the corners of her mouth downward with her fingers. When are we leaving? Abe said. Now, the car's in the courtyard. Can we say goodbye to that nice family? No time. Take your things. Let's go. Five minutes later, Abdullah Khan, chivying them along, they had swept everything together. Wadding up clothes, cramming scarves and washcloths into bags, zippers pulled tight, a sleeve sticking out forlorn. The same scarred driver that had brought them to the compound ten nights ago was waiting in the courtyard, honking at regular intervals. His sour expression had sweetened considerably. As Ate climbed into the taxi, Abdullah Khan clapped him on the back. Go, hurry up or you'll miss your plane. He waved at them as the taxi crunched out through the gates. As they turned into the alley, Firuze glanced back, thinking she might see Nasima's inquisitive head hanging out a window. But the courtyard was empty. As soon as they were buckled into the seats on the plane, two on each side of the aisle, Noor began to kick the seat in front of him, singing, We're flying, flying, flying. The elderly occupant of said seat swung his head around. Slow down, little donkey. We aren't moving yet. When the engines finally rumbled to life, Noor yelped and shrank into a ball. 
Abe took Ate's hand, then Firuze's. Her palm was damp and slippery. Ate beamed. Australia soon, he said. The cabin shook, the engines thundered, and the brown and green patchwork of past and no longer lives shrank to the breadth of a handkerchief and fluttered away. Then there was nothing to see but a pure, clear sky. The man who met them in Jakarta's airport demanded their phones and forged passports. Ate hesitated, then meekly surrendered them before rushing them into a car. As he drove, he fished a faded turquoise photo of an ocean liner out of the glove compartment and said in halting English, Your ship, you get on ship like this. Ate took the photo and fingered its creases as thoughtfully as the beads of a tesbih. This ship? One like it. Wait, and you'll see. Their contact brought them to a house in Jakarta, where a ceiling fan stirred the syrupy air. When brushed against, the walls flaked blue paint and plaster. Closing a door quickly flattened brown geckos in the jams. In the mornings and evenings, motorcycles churned down the muddy road in front of the house. Behind the house was the enormous concrete wall of a school. The high roar of children reciting lessons and laughing soaked into the cloth of their lives. Ate went out one afternoon and came back carrying all the colors of the sunset in his pedahan. Here, he said, cutting pieces from a papaya. Try this. Firuze and Noor pulled apart branches of flossy vermilion rambutan, sugar apples, creamy yellow scales of jackfruit. Noor scraped an entire mango into its pith with his front teeth without offering to share. Firuze, her cheeks full of fruit, did not complain. Zanam, just a little piece. This foreign fruit will give us stomach aches, Abe said pushing aside the cube of papaya that Ate offered. Better to have one good orange from Jalalabad or a clay shell of grapes from the Istalaf road. I'll have her stomach ache for her, Noor said, reaching with his sticky fingers for the cube of papaya. Our own little Mullah Nasruddin, Firuze muttered. Entirely in keeping with the general injustice of the universe, Firuze fell violently ill later that night, sweating and whimpering over the toilet, while Ate and Noor suffered no ill effects whatsoever. I told you, Abe sighed. This family's women always suffer. Chapter 6 As it had in Peshawar, the summons arrived suddenly at night. A truck's headlights flared through the windows. Someone rapped hard on the door. Take your things, you're going. Now, now, now. Our documents, Ate said. Our phones? Here, hurry up. Two other families were already packed into the utility truck. Knees and elbows knocked together as Firuze's family settled in. You, Nasima said, her grin a flash in the dark. Did you miss me? Nope. 
You missed me every day. Admit it, Fiduze, or I'll pull your hair. Fiduze answered with decorous silence. Found other friends, did you? Thousands of them. And forgot about me? Down to your name. Who are you again? Then Fiduze, unable to keep her face straight, dissolved into giggles, and Nesima joined in. Abe hushed them, alarmed. They drove for what felt like hours until the grit and stones beneath the wheels softened to a sandy loam. They were led out into a forest not far from the sea. A crowd had already gathered there, murmuring in six languages. The sky was veiled and sequined with a quarter moon for an earring and a dowry of stars. Some of the lowest stars were blotted out by a black hulk that creaked and scraped on the sandbar. Nesima whistled softly, and Firuze was jealous for a moment, wishing she too had older brothers who could teach her how to whistle and spit. The man who had met them at the airport gave low and urgent orders. I don't understand, Ate said. In you go. How many of us are you putting on that? All of you. Are you crazy? Relax. We've done this many times before. Three Indonesians waded into the waist-deep water and began to hand the passengers onto the boat. Firuze lost count around 40 when the fishing sloop began to list. Once she, Nur, Abe, and Ate were crammed aboard, the last of many, the boat was riding low enough in the water that a rogue wave might have tipped them over. The passengers arranged their feet carefully, trying not to kick each other. Etiquette was of the utmost importance with so many people in so limited a space. Ropes slithered and loosened all around them, and with a slap of water against wood, the boat drifted free. The driver and smuggler watched from the shore, smoking, two points of orange light against the darkness of the forest. The Indonesian archipelago loomed for a moment, dim and imminent, and then, more swiftly than Firuze thought possible, shrank to nothing. Chapter 7 Hassan's house was filled with boys making noise at all hours. Boys clattering bowls, crushing cans, banging the tin sides of their home. Anyone might think they had 22, not three. Enough, Hassan said, flapping his hands. Go play in the graveyard. The oldest two snatched up the metal cans they'd fashioned into incense burners and skipped off. The youngest stood sulking and picking his nose until Hassan pushed him out the door after them. Have you heard from your brother? His wife said, flicking on the single bare bulb in their home. She opened her bag under the bulb and hunted through it. Najib? He's fine. The new vines are strong and healthy. You know which brother I mean. Her hand closed on a small grubby scroll of paper tied with white thread. She fished it out. Hassan said, the family's probably halfway to Australia by now. 
Maybe he's already there and waiting to call. He shrugged one arm into his coat, then the other. What's that trash you're playing with? Nothing. You better not be wasting our money on charms. When you stop betting on chucker fights, I'll stop going to shrines to pray that you stop betting on chucker fights. She closed her hand, hiding the paper. Anyway, it's a traveler's charm. Eh? For safety. I wanted to give it to Bahar, but everything happened too fast. Maybe it will still work from here. Superstitious nonsense, Hassan said, going to the door. Don't lose it. Pick up bread on your way home. Hassan walked down the mountain between houses that had mushroomed across its stony, tawny flanks almost overnight. Kabul was growing inexorably, grave by grave, office by wedding hall, swelling with the living and the dead. It was because of Omid's success that Hassan had moved his own family here from Parwan, and not a day passed now when he didn't curse Omid's auto shop, which was now Gorgara's auto shop, and utterly heartfelt prayers for its rumination. A rocket would do, or an IED. Or better, let an American soldier be shot in front of it. Omid had struggled until his heart broke. And for what? We'll marry your daughter to my son, Gorgara had said, while Omid was fixing his battered Corolla. Success should be shared with one's neighbors, and my son, he's on good terms with the Americans, sells them alcohol. They'd investigate if he said, oh, this neighbor might be an insurgent. Understand? Can you believe it? Omid had said. It was victory day, and they were walking among the young and old trees in New City Park. Hassan said, what did you think was going to happen? Abdul Rahman took our grandfather's rainlands in Ghor. And then there was Rabani. Then the Taliban hunted us in the street and you think you can rise up and be someone. You sound like a Marxist. You sound like a fool. Is it a crime to dream? You'll have to leave, Hassan said. What? Why? Do you think that if you give Gorgara your shop, he will stop there? He'll be back. He knows he can frighten your no into yes. But where will we go? Omid said eyes wide. Once he had been a scab-kneed boy no heavier than a sack of wheat. Once Hassan had carried him on his shoulders. I don't know, Hassan said, anywhere, wherever those leaving Afghanistan go. It's a country of exiles, of migrating swallows. They all must find some place to rest. You will too. Unlike Omid, Hassan was bitter and wise. He worked for an old Tajik in a shop that made fences, welding and cutting and polishing until the sections were ready for display. Out in the sunlight, their chrome finish stung the eye. This was the best life that Hassan could hope for, the best life that his sons could hope for, and he chewed that pebble until his back teeth hurt. Did you hear the news? the old Tajik said as Hassan came in. No, what news? More schoolgirls poisoned. What's this world coming to? Don't leave your fingerprints on the metal. Wipe them off, 
Yesterday, a customer complained. All right. No one wants grease on their shiny new fence. That's what they buy, Hassan. The shine, not the fence. We shine them so bright you can see the future in them. Yes, Jamshid. The fence says, you can keep death and misfortune out, away from you and your family. You're rich, so rich you can have a fence like this. And you're not just rich, you're safe. You'll live longer than people without fences. All you have to do is spend a few thousand Afghanis. What's money anyway when death comes knocking? Besides, I'm brighter than silver. If Hassan hasn't covered me in fingerprints. I'll be more careful. But you and I know that's a lie. Sorry? The truth? We have no future. Not me, not you, not anyone. Jamshid scratched his gray-haired ear. Maybe the politicians. Maybe the very, very rich. But apart from them, death comes when it wants to. Any day there will be a bomb or a bullet with your name on it, and you'll go to God. But if you run far enough, Hassan said, even if you run all the way to Pakistan, death will find you. My cousin says they're kidnapping men right off the street. Better if I die in my homeland, he said. So he came home. But if you go as far as Australia, where's that? Jamshid said. Somewhere past India? No, no. Death will find you anywhere. This isn't a fairy tale, Hassan. Pay a witch for a charm, say your prayers, save your money. Live realistically and wipe your fingerprints off the finish. So it looks like none of us ever existed, and God himself created this fence. That's it exactly. That's what we sell. Chapter 8 the boredom, Nasima announced, was worse than the sharks. They had seen the fins at a distance the previous day, but now the water held only plastic bottles, chip bags, and snarls of seaweed. Firuze volunteered that she preferred boredom. Coward. They were trapped by each other's legs and shoulders, prickly with splinters and stinging salt flakes. Ate and Abe took turns retching over the side from the boats rolling and pitching. They had eaten fruit and indomie noodles for three whole days. Then the fruit was gone, and they ate indomie noodles day in and day out. Firuze, promise me. No. At least hear me out. Fine, but the answer's still probably no. Promise me that wherever you go, you'll stay in touch. Will they split us up? I don't know. Okay. Okay, what? I promise. Even if we end up on opposite sides of Australia, write or call or send a pigeon or something, we could end up as neighbors. If you come to Perth which you should. It's the best place in Australia. You've never been to Perth, 
My brothers live there, stupid, and they told me about it. What do you know? That you don't have many friends. I'm too smart, that's why. Anyway, I have you, and I promise you won't get rid of me, even if you move to the worst place in Australia, even if you move to Adelaide. Even if I wanted to get rid of you? Nasima pinched her. Ow! So why did your family leave Afghanistan? They won't tell me. Won't tell you? Abi says I don't need to know. But you do. We need reasons like we need water or air. I'll be the best friend you ever had. I'll find you your reason. Look sweet now. Smile. What? Nasima, where are you? Salam, uncle, Nasima said cheerfully, alighting on the other side of the boat. Firuze, numb and clumsy, scrambled after. Mansour was 16 or 17, he said when Nasima asked, though he looked older. The skin under his eyes had sunken into shadow. Why was he on this boat? His father. What happened to his father? He was arrested at gunpoint, stripped naked and beaten. They returned to the house for Mansour, but his elderly neighbor had seen them coming and pounded on the door, gasping his warning. Mansour had leaped the rear wall just in time. Where was his mother? She had stayed. What about you? Nasima said, hopping over outstretched feet. Why is someone like you on this ugly old boat? You are little girls, Mr. Hassani said. Why do you ask about these things? You'll have bad dreams. Firuze stammered until Nasima clapped a hand over her mouth. I have nightmares already, Nasima said. So, where are you from? Iraq. And why was Mr. Hassani Iraqi on this boat? He had held political opinions. Dangerous ones? He'd been sent a warning. Of what kind? A threatening phone call? An angry letter? Mr. Hassani's brother. His brother? Most of him, anyway. So Mr. Hassani packed a bag and obtained, through a cousin, a fake passport, a plane ticket, and the number of a friend of a friend of the cousin's. And you, Nasima said to Mr. Hassani's neighbor, who are you? I am nobody. Why are you here? We were Mandians in Iran. We? I have sons your age. Then where are they? We didn't have enough money to smuggle them, too. Mr. Nobody began to weep. Enormous tears rolled down his leathery cheeks and sank into his beard. Firuze scooted backwards, the wood splintery against her feet. Where are you going? Nasima cried. We're trying to figure out why your parents left. Which of these stories is like yours? I don't want to know. Abe laid a warm hand on Firuze's shoulder. What have you been up to? Nothing, Firuze said. Chapter 9 On their sixth day at sea, 
the typhoon came. What had begun as a bruise along the horizon rapidly bled across the sky. The fishermen rolled the sails tight around their bamboo masts and nailed down the tarp the passengers had raised for shade. Every few minutes, they looked over their shoulders at the approaching darkness. The wind smelled raw and alive. The lucky ones who had gotten their hands on one of the boat's 40-odd life jackets checked and rechecked the battered plastic buckles. Firouze and her family had not been victorious in the scrum. Soon, slanting streaks blurred the horizon. Then the rain began. Ate wrapped his arm around Firouze and pressed the two of them against the side of the boat. Abe did the same with Noor. The smooth, untroubled water of the previous day now heaved and fumed. A wave broke in pearls over the deck and hissed away. Salt spray whipped their faces. Around them, the other passengers wailed and prayed, their voices drowned out by the weltering water. The boat leapt. Wood groaned. The fishermen bailed with a bucket passed back and forth from the hold until the deck tilted and tossed the bucket holder to his knees. The bucket bounced once and vanished into the sea. Then the rain closed its heavy curtains upon them, and Firouze could barely see past her nose. Each breath Firouze drew was half water. As the boat pitched and yawed, she choked and gagged against Ate's tight hold. Every jolt against the boat's wood cut her skin, and the flying spray burned in the raw places. By some unknown mercy, the nails and planks of the boat held together. When the storm finally dissolved into an insipid rain, the passengers were left chilled, stunned, and speechless. Ate's fist was so stiff that Abe had to rub the joints and blow on them before he could let go of Firuze's shirt. Noor shivered, teeth chattering. Around the boat, people wrung small creaks from their clothes. Then the counting began. Names wavered into the air. From one end of the boat, then the other, came answering calls and benedictions to God. Nasima's mother came to them, stretching out her hands. Have you seen Nasima? She must be somewhere, Ate said. I let go of her, but she's a smart girl. She would have held on to something, or maybe she went below decks. She's very bright. That must be where she is. I'll go see. Have you seen Nasima? Rahmatullah Shah Savani asked on his third circuit of the deck. His voice had the thinnest of cracks in it. No, but your wife went below to look. Delruba emerged from the hold, swaying as if the storm still tipped and tilted the boat. She wasn't down there, Rahmatullah said. Keep looking. She might be hurt. She must be cold and afraid. Who let go of her? Who never held on? Nasima, Nasima, where did you go? Enough, Rahmatullah Shahsavani said. He caught Delruba before she could fly below decks again. She bit his hand, a 
and he shook her until her jaw slackened and clacked. And like that, the light and fury left her, and she sank to her knees on the deck and keened. Abe rested one hand on Firuze's head and another on Noor's. For two days and two nights, Nasima's mother beat her head and berated herself, her husband, and her absent sons, a lament broken only when sleep seized her here and there. Even then, she shook with hiccuping, whimpering sobs. Nasima's father wilted. No one slept for long. The fishermen hung up wet maps to dry, consulted a compass, and cursed in their own language. The whole boat was down to one meal a day. When Abe asked for water, she was refused. Firuze watched and listened. But I'm hungry, Noor said. But I'm thirsty. Rostam was hungry and thirsty too, Abe said. Heroes sometimes are. During one of Delruba's lulls, Firuze dozed and dreamed that the boards of the boat parted, dropping her down and down, past silver sea serpents and streamers of kelp, to where the water was cold and black and heavy, so heavy it crushed the air from her lungs. She gasped awake. Hush. Abe pressed a hand to Firuze's forehead, then began to comb her tangled hair. Abe's hands were so gentle, Firuze barely felt the snarls. Tell me a story, Firuze said. All right. Mullah Nasruddin once had a donkey. Not that sort of story. What sort, then? A story about Nasima. Abe drew a breath. I don't know if that is kind. Hanum del Ruba's asleep. And if she wakes? Then tell me a story about a girl like Nasima, whose name might be Nasima, but we don't know. Once there was a girl who wore yellow leather shoes with daisies on them, who had yellow flowered shoes. And she, she went on a journey to find her brothers. An evil enchanter had come knocking on their door, his shadow long and bloody behind him. However, the boys had some magic of their own and turned into doves and escaped. But they didn't take their sister with them. She was clever, though, and hid herself until the enchanter was gone and marked which way her brothers flew. Then she went after them, Firuze said. Yes. She traveled for a long time until her shoes were dusty and rotten with holes. At night, when she slept, she could hear her brothers calling to her because they were also lost and looking for her. They didn't mean to leave her behind, but they had been scared. Like Nasima's mother calling Nasima's name, over and over so Nasima will hear and come back to her. Nasima can swim, you know. Janam. Does she find her brothers? Of course she does, Noor said, around the thumb in his mouth. This is Abe's story. If you want death and fighting and the good stuff, you have to ask Ate. Shut up, Noor. You shut up, 
No, Abe said, putting the comb back into her bag. She finds them because a good sister will always find her lost brother or brothers and the other way around. You remember that. But Abe, Firuze said, what about your sisters and brothers in Iran? Land, came a cry. A dark figure at the prow, waving his arms, overcome. There's land, look! And there was. Chapter 10 The boat's hull scraped, bumped, and crunched against coral, flinging them forward. Firuze, clambering upright, found that her hands and knees and skirt were wet. We're sinking, Noor shouted, trying to plug the leaks with his toes. One of the fishermen splashed over the side of the boat, stood up, and laughed. The sea, blue as Firuze's name, came up to his chest. Other men jumped overboard as well and began wading to shore, balancing their few belongings on their heads. Ate joined them. Come on, he said to Abe, beckoning. The water's warm. She shuddered and hung back, pulling her scarf tight. Fine, you can stay there, Ate said, splashing her. Noor, how about you? Once he had ferried Noor to land on his shoulders, he returned for Firuze. She swayed while he carried her and tottered when he put her down. It was a sorry excuse for an island, she thought. A modest stretch of white coral sand ran upward to sedges and a scattering of salt-bleached, sea-carved trees. Behind her, Ate had succeeded in coaxing Abe into the water. The fishermen brought the last seven packets of instant noodles and three jerry cans of water ashore. One by one, the remaining passengers flocked raggedly onto the beach. The boat, jammed nose-first in the sandbar, rocked softly with every wave. Most of its blue and yellow paint was gone. It seemed ready to spring apart at the lightest touch. Ate and the other men conferred. Race you, Nor shouted to the boys, and they were off, white sand fountaining in their wake. Firuze followed more slowly, digging her toes deep. She kicked up a lump of something pale, porous, and light as air, then a tiger-striped nautilus the size of her head. Water, Nor shouted. I found water. By the time Firuze reached them at the well, Mansour had slapped Noor's cupped palms apart, droplets flying. The water was perfectly clear and cold, and she could see a long way down through the coral. But a sign with a skull and crossbones hung over it. You dummy, Firuze said, afraid. I wouldn't have let him, Mansour said. Noor said, but I'm thirsty. We'll keep looking. The island was not very large. Before long, Firuze spotted Ate and six other men near a rubber dinghy that had been hauled onto the beach. And on the far side of the dinghy, binoculars around their necks, three men and two women, pink and peeling from the sun. The two groups stared at each other. Hello, Noor chirped. And all the boys echoed him. 
Hi, hello. Hello, said one of the pink women, who wore a shirt with white ferns on it and plastic flowers in her ears. She tried a few more sentences, waving her binoculars and flapping her arms, but stopped at their expressions of incomprehension. She turned and started to argue with her group. Then she put her shoulders to the dinghy and shoved it toward the water. With grimaces, the rest joined in. Wait here, she mimed to Firuze and the others, as one pink man made the motor growl. They waited, shuffling uncertainly, watching them go. The dinghy sputtered off through the turquoise water. What kind of people are they? Tourists. Here? No, you're right. They must be shipwrecked, too. Or lost. But they have a boat. You couldn't get far in that thing. Before long, the dinghy reappeared. It puttered up into the shallows, and the woman in the fern shirt handed down a plastic jug of water and a fat canvas bag with 12 oranges inside. Firuze did the math of 12 oranges for 124 people and swallowed, her throat dry. The birders waved and smiled wide enough to show their molars, then spun up the grumbling motor and sped off. When they returned to their landing point, Ate divided the oranges into fractions, a taste to each person, then the orange peels as well. The children were allowed a mouthful of water each, which Firuze held in her mouth as long as she could, letting a few drops slide down her throat at a time. This was not enough to ward off hunger. Nor anger. That night, as the fishermen stretched out on torn sails to sleep, the passengers surrounded them. What is this place? Where are we? Where's the food and water? You brought us here to die. Ate grabbed one fisherman by the shoulder and shook him. The fisherman grunted, rolled over, and plunged his fingers into his ears. You have nothing to say? My son's crying from thirst. Be patient, the oldest of the fishermen said in crumbs of Arabic. You thirst, we thirst, but a ship comes tomorrow. You're lying. Then kill me, but kill me tomorrow. The oldest fisherman turned onto his stomach pillowed his head on his arms, and almost immediately began to snore. Firuze curled up on the grassy sand. Above her, stars she did not recognize blazed in the black vastness. A long time passed before she slept. In the morning, a commotion. There, Abe said, brushing sand from Firuze's hair. Southeast. Nur yawned. What's going on? What's for breakfast? Look. Gray, gleaming water slid over the beach and withdrew. The sun burned gold and jagged on the waves, peppering Firuze's vision with green and purple blots. She squinted through the fence of her fingers and saw a sharp, dark shape chipping the rim of the sky. What's that? Abe said, a ship. From the Australian Navy, Ate added. Noor leaped to his feet and danced, 
kicking sand in their faces. Ate lifted him up, his short legs still pedaling. Any minute now, Ate said, radiant. Bahar, Noor, Firuze, we've reached Australia. Fifteen at a time, the passengers were clipped into life jackets, loaded onto fiberglass boats, and conveyed to the ship. The sailors on the boats wore neat gray uniforms and crisp boots that would not look them in the eye. A safe country, can you imagine? Abe hugged Firuze and Noor. No bombs, no checkpoints, no soldiers or Taliban. Think of the house we'll live in, Ate said. Oh, we don't need much. A bedroom, a stove. Dream bigger than that. We're going to Australia. A guest room? A garden. Omid, I want a garden. And you'll have one, Ate said. I'll work harder than anyone. You'll live like Princess Soraya at home. Don't talk nonsense, Abe said, laughing. What do you want, Firuze? Firuze thought of Nasima. A friend. No, two friends. I want a kangaroo, Noor shouted. A black sailor raised one eyebrow at the familiar word. Kangaroos, you say? Bet you've never seen one before. Kangaroo, yes, I want one. Where? We've got loads, mate. Stick out your hand and you'll catch one. Roy, quit talking to the illegals and give me a hand here. The sailor shrugged, winked at them, and went off to secure the lines. Once the boats had been cranked aboard the ship and the passengers assembled beneath antennae as tall as trees, the sailors doled out water and dry rations. Careless of crumbs, Firuze crammed her mouth full and gulped water until she couldn't. The food sank into her belly and warmed and weighed her down. When, sometime later, the ship's enormous engines shut off, Ate had to carry her over the gangway, snorting and mumbling in her sleep. Chapter 11 Fragments broke her sleep. The hollow sound of footsteps on a long dock, water clapping below. The familiar judder and rumble of a bus engine. A silvery web of fences parted to swallow them. Firuze blinked her eyes open, saw, and forgot. When she woke up again, breathing air so humid it dewed her lips, she was in a tent on a bunk that quivered and creaked. A hanging sheet partitioned their side from, she flicked the sheet aside, a Sri Lankan family's. Firuze stepped outside and saw rows of canvas tents, a single tree writhing up among them, and a fence running as far as the eye could see. Where are we? she said. Is this Australia? If it is, Noor said. Australia is very ugly. Ate said, this is Nauru. We're not in Australia yet. Nauru? Nuru? Yes, an island of your own. We have to wait a bit longer, Abe said. How long, Noor said. 
Only a few days, I'm sure, Ate said. Then you'll see your kangaroos. The bunks wobble, Firuze said. It's too hot, Nor said. And, ah, there's mosquitoes, Abe said. Look, you can see the ocean from here. Why don't we think of this as a vacation? Like we're rich and on holiday just for a few days. Like how that fishing boat was supposed to be a cruise ship, Firuze said, flattening another mosquito against her arm. Nor let a hungry one settle on him. Mansour says the fence is fresh. He says this place smells like money, and that means we'll stay here forever. Why does he say that if we're leaving soon? Ate said, that silly boy. He argued when they were collecting our mobiles. They had to push him against the wall like a criminal to take away his, only thinking about himself. We can't let them form bad opinions of us. Abe said, after what that boy's lived through, he imagines dark things easily, that's all. Ate said, you shouldn't be hanging around, Mansoor. He'll get into trouble sooner or later. For dinner, they followed a stream of bodies to the mess tent, where they sat down on plastic chairs at a plastic table to eat, with plastic forks that twisted and bent when applied. Everyone received square white slices of bread and lumps of leathery chicken. If only I had a tandoor, Abe sighed. Even a pan. She gave one slice of her bread to Noor, and he stuffed it in his mouth. These chickens must have been bored out of their brains, Firuze said, chewing and chewing. You can taste it. Have I raised you to talk about your food like that? We'll be out soon, Ate said. In a few weeks, maybe. Noor said, Abe, are you still eating? Abe handed him her plate, and Noor dug in. Let's go wash, Abe suggested when they were all done. Strangers pointed the way to the ablutions block. Down a row of tents, then a left, then a right. The lines stretching out of each door dissolved as they approached. Men and women groused in several languages. One small boy held up his shirt and squatted right there. A thick stink surrounded them. The air effervesced with flies. What's the matter? Abe called out. A woman shouted back, No water. That can't be right. See for yourself. Firuze followed her mother into the sour ablutions block stepping carefully across the slick cement. Abe jerked at the tap handles, one after another, spinning all four pairs loose. No water flowed. She stared at them. No water. I miss Kabul, Firuze said as they returned to their tent. Don't say that. You could pump water on the street. Abe stooped for a handful of sandy soil and rubbed it briskly between her fingers. See, she said, good enough for now. Only a month or so until they take us to Australia. At midnight, guards barged into their tent, swinging torch beams. Up, they barked. Head count, SHU 106, 107, 108, 109. Here, Ate said, rubbing sleep from his eyes. 
the guards snorted, shoved aside the sheet, and stormed into their neighbor's section. At 6 a.m., their torches blazed into the tent again. Wake up! Head count! Midnight. 2 a.m. 6 a.m. Midnight. They're like robots, Noor said. They never sleep. They have shifts, stupid. Shut up, SHU-107. You shut up, SHU-106. Chapter 12 Every day, the bread and rice and chicken. Every night, Firuze flinched awake at 2 a.m., whether the guards had come or not. Then she lay still, her heart pounding for hours. For the same reason, she rarely slept past six. It was difficult to keep her eyes open during the day, but the heat made napping miserable. She missed school and the crisp taste of Kabuli onions and grapes and the balloon man dragging his painted bouquet. She missed shearing goal and Humeira and even the boys who shied rocks at her after school as punishment for knowing too many right answers. Deep lines wore into Abe's face. Ate grew hoarse in his declarations of impending departure until one day he fell abruptly silent. The days passed, gray and indifferent. Chapter 13 Upon their resettlement in Australia, Jawid and Kherala had first bunked in a nine-person flat, three men to a room, with people coming and going constantly, so the two beds in each room never cooled. For all its noise, for all that they had to pass sideways in the corridor, that flat had been fitted with a precious landline. The residents dropped coins into the jar beside the phone whenever they called home, wherever home was. Then there had been a three-person flat, a quieter and easier place to sleep, where Jawid and Kherola shared a prepaid mobile. Once a week, between construction jobs, they called home and told Nasima about the shops that sold lollies in every color and the brilliant blue water of the Indian Ocean, like a great jewel set in a bezel of white sand. They assured their parents and were reassured in turn that the entire family was in good health, no troubles at all. Then the boys told their parents how much to expect that week. It was Kherala, the older one, who had the idea of buying a package of lollies each time one or the other had a dollar to spare. Box by box and bar by bar, they assembled a small wall of sweets in their room. Every time Kherala added a violet crumble or a bag of strawberry clouds to the pile, he put his fists on his hips and laughed. I can see her now, he said. Can't you? When Nasima arrived, she would rip wrappers and tear apart paper boxes, eating until her tongue was striped green and blue and her upper lip smeared with chocolate. Jawid, three years younger than Kherala, examined the expiration dates, and when they were a day or two away, would bring the chocolate bar or cherry ripe to his brother and pull a pleading face. Oh, all right, Kherala always said 
they split the lollies between them, tasting tart partedness on their tongues. The last call thrummed their mobile while they were on the bus to work. We're leaving, Nasima said breathlessly. Then their father commandeered the phone. Thank you for the money, he said. Do not send any more. We've made arrangements with the man who smuggled you. All of us will join you in Australia, in that place you said, Perth. We'll call when we go. Two days later, Jaweed dropped their mobile into the sea. Gerola had suggested they walk the 15 kilometers from Scarborough to their flat in Mossman Park to save on fares. Jawid had resisted, then insisted on taking the beach, never mind the sand infiltrating their shoes and gritting the skin between their toes. The water gleamed turquoise and tourmaline. Within ten minutes, Jawid had run onto one of the rocky moles that jutted out into the sea, whooping and leaping like a man possessed. On either side of him, waves flung up fans of feathery lace. Water pooled in the hollows of the barnacled rocks. Jawid turned to Gerola, arms wide. Then his foot skidded. He slipped and splayed. The mobile slid from his pocket, rebounded off a rock, and fell into the sea. Ah, oh, fuck, Jawid said, feeling his bruised bum. Another wave shattered over him, and spray dripped in rivulets down his dark hair. Gerala advanced onto the rocks, legs locked, hands braced for a fall. The sight of so much water still frightened him. Idiot, he shouted. Are you hurt? Oh, it hurts everywhere. I'll, I'll come get you. Gerola edged forward along the mole, prodding each algal rock to test its slickness. Nah, I'm fine. Jaweed crawled to his feet and hobbled and hopped to his brother. Nothing broken? Nope, but I lost the mobile. You lost? Didn't you see? Boop, boop, there it went. It's a shame about the credit. I think we still had 75 cents left. Gerola punched him in the gut. He doubled over. Ah, what was that for? Did you write down Baba's number anywhere? It's on the phone. Oh. And when they call the number they have for us again, maybe a fish will pick up, Jaweed said. Even if we had the money, which we don't, even if we bought and loaded a new mobile straight away, how in the world would we call them? Won't they be traveling for a while? They might not even think to call. They said they'd call right before they left. Oh, right. Now they'll think we're what? Dead? In prison? Sick? Hurt? My mom will think all those things at once. She'll fling her hands over her face and will, Oh, my children, is there no God? Sick, hurt, dead, and imprisoned. How much can a mother bear? You have no right to make jokes. Herala said. You've lost our mobile and Baba's number. What, do you want me to dive for it? La, la, I don't want to. The water's cold. Herala folded his arms and thought, I'll have to hope they try the old number, and that someone at the flat figures it out. Do we have Zaman's contact? Yes, I saved it on the phone. Herala kicked a vicious arc of sand. It's like they're in space and we've lost the signal he said. 
They can't reach us. We can't reach them. So how? I'll take a bus to our old place, Jaweed said, squeezing his brother's shoulder. Someone will remember me. I'll ask them to tell Baba if he calls and to write down his number and give it to us. They still have to think of calling the old place. They will. Before they call a funeral director, at least. What did I say about joking, eh? I'm serious. Fine. And if you weren't being serious? I'd say we buy all the chocolate in Perth and put it in a pile. Nesima will find us by the smell. Straight across the ocean, dragging the boat. Hello, troublemakers. Where are the lollies you promised me? She must have grown. What if she's grown as tall as your chin? Or taller? What if she grows taller than you? Then she's eating well. I'll punch anyone who complains. The dunes on their left bristled with spine effects and salt bush, striped here and there with paths to the road. Glowering rain clouds stitched themselves to the sea. They walked side by side, Jaweed whistling, Kerala staring west through the clouds, past the heartbreaking blue of the ocean. He looked until he saw the whitewashed rooms of the family home and the trees in the compound, a crooked almond and a spreading pear, and a little girl climbing into the pear for a nest full of speckled eggs. They'll find us, Kerala said, shivering. They must. Is that rain? Let's walk faster. When they had gone, a raindrop fell and cratered the white sand. Then another. Soon, the double line of footprints washed away. Chapter 14 One hot, feverish, humming night, Firuze turned over and over on the lower bunk, trailing her fingers in the dirt then flinging an arm over her sweaty face. Her clothes pinched and chafed. The blanket itched. When a mosquito sang beside her ear, she thrashed at it. You know, Nasima said, I feel bad for you. The drowned girl sat on the side of the bunk, face pale in the gloom, as if she wore her own scrap of moonlight. Her hair was wet and braided with kelp, pinned here and there with fishbone combs. The mosquito whined again. Firuze slapped her pillow. Hey, you're the one who died. I went quick. You'll take ages. She laid a cool hand against Firuze's cheek. I mean, look at you. Did you come just to gloat about dying? I would never. We're friends, Firuze. You forgot, but I promised. I wanted to see how you were doing. Now you know. You should go to your parents. They miss you. They never stop talking about you. I tried, Nasima said, but they didn't see me. Like when I was alive. I was a daughter-shaped space in the universe. You feed it. You put shoes and dresses on it. You raise it properly, like a sheep, so you can take it to market someday. But you don't see her. You don't see your daughter, not really. Not the way you see your sons, who are worth something, who'll work someday. So why can I? You saw through the bullshit. Plus, you don't really think I'm dead. Of course you're... 
So why tell yourself stories about girls named Nasima who have adventures on the seafloor? Nasima laughed, a low and watery sound. You kept me awake with your loud, bright dreams. I didn't mean to. They eyed each other. Firuze damp with sweat and the blood of crushed mosquitoes. Nasima dripping and steaming with seawater. Can you go back to sleep? Firuze ventured. Can I... Is there anything I can... Oh, I'm not ready to forgive you yet. But you can go back to sleep. Nasima reached out and pressed a finger against Firuze's left eyelid, then the right. There. That's as much as I can do for you. What? Firuze yawned. What did... Chapter 15 There's a bus, Abe said. Her foot tapped the packed earth. Firuze glanced away from the beetle creeping along her bunk. A bus? What good is a bus? Ate said. What we need is a boat. A plane, Noor begged. Please, no more boats. A bus to town, Abe said, that I can ride. We need things. Have you seen our daughter's shoes? They all looked at Firuze, who flushed. On her right foot, the seam in the fake leather had opened, and the shoe's upper flapped like a mouthful of toes. And with what money will you buy our daughter's shoes? Ate said. At this, Abe undid the knots in her skirts and performed magic tricks between the mattress and bunk, conjuring a respectable mound of coins. Dishwashing, she explained. When there's water. And helping with odds and ends in the kitchen. It's not much. Jewel among women, Ate said and kissed her forehead. We'll go to town. Yes, well, the bus leaves tomorrow. That's the only time this week. But I'm supposed to be washing dishes after lunch. So if you, dear, dear husband, could take the children to town, report to the kitchen at half past noon, say you're my husband, that would mean another few cents for us. You put me in charge of the household for a reason, she added. When you bargain, the price goes up. And the children? We'll stay here and keep out of trouble. It's not easy to get on that bus, Abe said, vanishing the coins one by one. There's a lottery. Take Noor, at least, so he can look out for you. You'll be a man for your mother, won't you? Yes, Ate, Noor said. But, Firuze said. He can sit in your lap, Ate said. That's true. It shouldn't be a problem. Firuze said again, but what about... I know your shoe size. I can take one with me, to be sure. Maybe we'll get an ice cream, Noor, if you behave. Would you like that? Noor squealed and hopped from foot to foot. Firuze crossed her arms, slouched, and seethed. Chapter 16 Up, 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 Noor! Abe sang, sweet as a bulbul. We're going to town and the bus won't wait. Noor squirmed in Abe's arms as she wiped his face. Always smudges on his chin, 
one of the mysteries of small boys. Firuze would never wriggle and yelp. Firuze knew better. If she was getting a cold, sweet suck of ice cream, she would have earned it through good behavior. She would never kick Abe's arm like that. Once the two of them left the tent, taking the injustice of their joy with them, Firuze dressed herself with deliberate slowness, as befitted someone on an important errand, more important than shoes and ice cream. Then she devoted herself to kicking a stick around the fenced perimeter of the camp. The stick scribbled snakes in the dust as she went. One, two, three. The sun baked dark in the back of her neck like bread. It never mattered that Firuze had been top of her class, or that she sometimes listened, maybe even half the time, when Abe and Ate asked her to be quiet and stop singing, or that she only pinched Noor or pulled his hair when he really, truly, and deeply deserved it. No one struck medals for her sacrifices. No one even mentioned them. Noor got the fussing and the kisses, the ice cream and sweets. Mosquitoes hummed in her ears. The tents fluttered drably. From one of the tents came mewling and low grunting and a rhythmic thump and creak. Piruze paused, then lifted the tent flap with her stick. A man lay atop a woman in the lower bunk, his trousers pleated around his ankles, her dress frilling to either side. They clutched each other as though they were drowning, and the sounds they made were sounds of grief. When the woman opened her eyes, her face red, she saw Firuze. Cursing in a language Firuze did not know, she plucked up a sock from beside the bunk and hurled it. Firuze ducked the missile and fled. Once there was a mulle who ate all the ice cream he wanted, she said to herself. But she could not imagine how to continue the story. She squatted in the shade of the glossy-leaved tree at the center of camp, ignoring the men playing cards nearby, and wrote glyphs and hexes in the dust with her stick. Once there was a mother who went to buy shoes for her daughter, but without the daughter, and she bought shoes that were too small or too large, none the right size. Wasn't she sorry when she came home? Once a man and a woman drowned in each other's eyes on dry land, and no one could figure out how they died. Little girl, your stories are all beginnings, one of the card players said. Those aren't stories. What happens next to your mullah, to your mother? I don't know. Say, some days and some while passed. That is how my mother told stories. Then tell me something magical, a wonder, a feat. Tell me that the wicked are punished, or that the foolish find wisdom. Lastly, you must say, they stayed on that side of the water, and we on this. If you're playing play, one of his companions said, don't bother the girl with your silliness. The first man nodded encouragement to Firuze. Go on, try again. One day among days. Some time and some while passed, she said, frowning. The Australians stayed on that side of the water, and we on this. The card players broke into raucous laughter. See what you did there, Mahmoud? She's a smart one. 
clever. Where's your father, little girl? Excuse me, Firuze told them. I have to go. The bus disgorged its riders one by one. They clutched their purchases to their chests, their expressions grim. Firuze stood on tiptoe, but could not see Abe or Noor in the thinning crowd. Omid's wife, she heard. Trouble. Someone should tell him. Noor bumped down the bus steps then, a ring of ice cream around his mouth, his eyes white all around. He ran to Firuze and clamped himself around her waist, holding so tightly it hurt. What's wrong? Firuze said. Where did Abe go? Noor buried his face in her stomach. There was a soft thumping, like a moth beating against a window pane. Abe's face flashed in the bus window, her mouth a circle, her hands scratching and scrabbling at the glass. Two moths. The bus door folded shut. The bus coughed a tubercular cough, then wheeled around and lumbered out through the camp's silver gates. The gates clashed together behind it. Sandals slapped the dust. Ate was there, panting, doubled over, hands pressed to his knees. Where is your mother? he said. And Firuze pointed through the gates at the vanishing bus and the long yellow plume of dust behind it. The bus turned a bend in the road and was gone. Your mother didn't get off the bus? She tried, Firuze said. Noor, what happened? Noor, be brave for me, tell me. Noor. Noor pressed his lips together, shook his head, and sobbed sugar and snot into Firuze's shirt. However they begged and pleaded with him, he refused to say another word. Khalil had been on that bus. Firuze had seen him. He was a sullen, pock-faced boy who shoved his hands in his pockets to hide whatever he had recently filched. Nor horsed around with him sometimes. Although he could not have been much older than Firuze, he was in the camp alone. She watched him while they ate. The boy he always sat with, Payam, finished eating his dinner and left. Nor picked listlessly at his plate. Ate swept his arms wide, demanding answers no one would give. God only knows, someone said. Others chewed and glanced meaningfully at the children. After Khalil stood to go, Firuze pleaded a stomachache and followed him. In a dark row between tents, she grabbed Khalil by the wrist. Tell me. I don't know anything. Liar. Ask Noor. He won't talk to anyone. Tell me. No. A moment later, he was sprawled in the dust, pinned and struggling under her greater weight. Firuze raised her arm to hit him again. Wait, he said. I'll tell you. Khalil's sandals had fallen to pieces. He had been borrowing a pair that his small feet wallowed in. When his name came up in the lottery, he thought it a fantastic stroke of luck. So I went to the shop, he said, and the shopkeeper glared. Wouldn't take his eyes off me, not the whole time I was there. You're babbling, Firuze said. Tell me about Abe. You have to be back on the bus by three. She was late. What happened? 
Maybe Noor didn't want to come back. Town's nice. Maybe she didn't know the rules. Does it matter? Keep going. Ten minutes late, the guard said. He had a watch. She was the last one on the bus. I didn't look at her. None of us did. I had my shoes. She was none of my business. Some man you are. If I was there, but you weren't. Shut up and keep talking. He made a face at her. Pick one. She balled her hand into a fist. The guard said, we thought you ran away. She said, where on earth would I run? He said, do you know what happens to detainees who are late? What? A long night in seg. What does that mean? Your mother asked too. No one told her. You were ashamed. We got to the camp and the guard said, get out. She said, help me. I got off the bus. She said, help me, please, in the name of God. No one did. You can hit me now. Chapter 17 Quentin Marks was a proud Queensland battler, born of battlers, who could trace his family tree back to a forger on one of the very first convict ships. That illustrious ancestor had owned an engraved silver pocket watch, which was now on display in a national museum. Quentin had poured beers in dive bars, picked veg, and washed oysters on a pearl boat. But something in his bones told him that this was the job he'd tell stories about. It was adventure and good money, more zeros in his salary than he'd ever seen. And at 22, with Ella up the duff and the grim gulf of serious responsibilities yawning, Quentin desperately needed the cash. He'd only be gone a year, he told her, year and a half at most, herding the illegals on Nauru the way her uncle herded cattle. Then he'd come home to church her properly, with all the fancies and fairy floss a woman like her deserved. After that, he'd learn to lay roofing or tiles, and they'd rent a house of their own, with a yard for the kiddos. If Nauru was a blessing for Quentin, it was the blackest of curses for the brown boat scum. They had been promised freedom and the Australian dole, not tropical heat and tents and endless fences. You could see the rage and betrayal in their eyes, and it made you put a hand on your baton. But this job was decent enough, even though the town was a bit pokey even though all the island women were fat. Today, he was on office duty, guarding sanitary pads and shaving razors with his life. Back again, he said to the Iraqi woman hovering at the Donga's door. She was a picture of embarrassment. Weren't you just here three hours ago? She turned even redder, if such a thing were possible, snatched the soft package from his hand and vanished. <laughs> no bloody sense of humor. Next up was an Afghan gent who pantomimed at his yellow teeth. Please. You can have a toothbrush if you say the word proper. Tooth brush. Tooth brush. Nami, toothbrush. Tooth brush. And you people think you can make a go of it in Australia. Christ. He surrendered the toothbrush. Hey, don't go. What do you say now? Tootie brush. 
No, no, you're supposed to say, thank you for the toothbrush. Courtesy of the Australian federal government. Hotelier for illegals and detainees. So let's hear it. Thank you for toothbrush. Christ. Desk duty would be deadly dull if he, Quentin Marks, didn't have a heart of gold, a love of laughs, and a deep concern for the welfare of his charges. Even if they were all deported tomorrow to whatever hellholes they had crawled out of, learning a spot of English would do them good. Maybe it would save their lives someday. They could see it now. That gentleman racing after a disguised terrorist into the lobby of the Intercontinental, stretching out his finger in accusation and proclaiming, with perfect enunciation, the toothbrush, the toothbrush, whereupon the smartly uniformed concierge would wrestle the terrorist to the ground and discover the tiny ticking incendiary device secreted in his hollowed-out super-soft triple-action with gum massager. The tourists whose lives had been saved by that gent's warning would organize a collection for him, and he would clasp his hands with astonished gratitude and say, in crisp, clear English, Thank you. Thank you all so much. But thank you most of all to Mr. Quentin Marks, who taught me English in the detention camps. Now there's a good bloke. Grinning at the thought, Quentin shuttered the office and waved to Peter and Beth, who were on gate duty. They punched the button to let him through. It had been a quiet day, and that was all right. He made the same money on quiet days as on riot days, and while there was a certain thrill in donning helmet and knee pads, bashing baton against plexiglass shield, and watching detainees' faces transform from rage to fear, he shivered with pleasure at the memory from training on Christmas Island. It could not be denied that the gear was heavy and hot, in a climate where you broke a sweat if you farted. Quiet was easy, and Quentin liked easy. Tonight, for example, would be an easy night. A cold stubby at his hotel to start, then dinner at the Chinese restaurant. Maybe a quick call home to Ella. The bartender, a native with the paunch to prove it, was uncharacteristically glum tonight. Ah, Lionel, suffering from a spot of guilt. This stuff's half water, I knew it. Doesn't taste like anything we've got at home. Mr. Marks, they're talking about shutting the detention center down. Oh, and who's feeding you that bowl? Your PM on the telly, sir? Well, wouldn't you like that? All the illegals off your nice island, no more worrying about the missus in the case of a riot. But there'd be no business. We haven't had a tourist in years. No detention center, no hotel, no bar. And then what? Ah, don't talk like that. I'd lose my job too, you know. We'd make the best of it. My mom's rabid about shipping them all back. You should hear her bollocking her MP. What about you, she says to me. You have to watch those shitheads all day. Don't you want them to bugger off back to the desert? Not until I'm done with this job, I tell her. Don't forget, they're paying my bills. Mine too, Lionel said, and poured him a drink. Hey, you, Beth said. Shove over, mate. How's the old summer camp holding up in my absence? I'll riot a minute. We're missing the fun. VB, please. All out, madam, sorry. 
Aw, but they promised they'd call if there's fun. Nah, Marks, it's been dull as a dunny. No, I lie, there's one refugee carrying on something awful. I'm surprised we can't hear him from here. He's that loud. His wife's been popped into jail for the night. To hear him, you'd think we murdered her. Got the red carpet treatment, I suppose. Did it myself. What an eyeful. The tits on those people. They're huge, like biscuits. No wonder he's throwing such a fit. Anyway, one night in there in the nutty and she'll think twice before holding up the bus again. A prison is famous for its mosquitoes, Lionel said. Would Madame like a corona instead? Sure thing. Ella was a bit lonely at home, but fine. Chundering like nobody's business, she said. But at five months, what do you expect? Could be worse, he said. You could be living in a place like this. We have pregnant women in the camp. Can you imagine? Some have been here for six months, eight months, a year. They'd have to. In the boats, yeah, and in the tents here. Yuck. Nature finds a way. You could write a book about it someday. You mean the job? That, yeah. Quentin considered it. He was not a literary man, but the idea of the Marx family history between tooled leather covers, now that was an appealing thought. And wasn't his own life one long adventure? The kind that kids read about on farms so far apart that teachers held classes over radio? Now this was a proper Australian story, the girl or boy would say staring out over miles of yellow grass and red dust and dreaming of pearl boats and detention camp riots. Someone ought to write it. That was for sure. Chapter 18 A long night passed, and then a long day, the longest in their forgetfully numbered months on the island. Abe's absence, mother-shaped, sat with them at dinner, walked with them to the tent, and laid down on her bunk. Ate sat. He stood. He paced the tent. He sat again, then sprang to his feet. In his restless hands, an unwashed shirt gritted and tore, strip by strip and thread by thread. Nor hooked his knees to his nose and squinched his eyes shut. Go to sleep, Ate said. I'm going for a walk. I talked to Khalil, Firuze whispered to Noor. She snaked up from her bunk until she peeped over his. Well, what do you have to say for yourself? His hands pulled at each other. It should have been me. I wouldn't have made Abe late. Firuze slipped back into her bunk, looked up, hissed at the slightly sinking swell of wire where her brother's weight was. Your fault. In the dark, in the silence, it was harder to ignore the Abe absence sitting there as heavy as a living thing, breathing in and out, watching. Ate did not return. The tent flap blew in and out with the night breeze. Firuze turned away from Abe's bunk until the pillow grew hot under her cheek, then turned back, then rolled over again and pretended to sleep, so Noor, at least, would know she had nothing on her conscience. No, nothing at all. 
none of this was her fault. It just went to show. The dip in the upper bunk from his balled-up body never changed. She flopped out her limbs, abandoning the pretense of sleep. Say something, donkey. I know you're awake. Firuze puffed out her cheeks. Fine. The bunk bed squeaked and rocked as she climbed up, its metal almost cool against the soles of her feet. She punched her brother's shoulder. Hey, do you want me to tell you a story? Will that get you to fall asleep? Noor's eyes rose above the two hills of his knees. You're not Abe. And you're not Rostam, but who's checking? You're bad sister. Noor's nose now emerged. Khalil has two sisters, and they're terrible, he says. But I'd rather have them than you. If it wasn't for you, we wouldn't be here. If it wasn't for your shoes, Abe wouldn't be in jail. But she is. We are. Here I am. At least you got to go to town. At least you ate ice cream. Now, I know you like mullah stories, Noor. Listen, once they asked the mullah why he always answered questions with questions. He chewed on his beard and said, Do I? That's not a good story. Maybe you don't know what a good story is. Maybe you're bad at telling stories. Okay, here's another. One time, the mullah was rowing a ferry, and a scholar came and asked to cross. No, Noor said. No more mullah stories. What kind of story, then? An exciting one. All my stories are exciting, Onion Head. No, they're not. You try. Make it about a boy, Firuze. That'll make it exciting. Boys grow up to be heroes, soldiers, kings. Girls, well, you get married, and that's boring. All right, little sultan, a boy. How old? Seven. And he's brave. He's never afraid. Where does he live? A village. But he can see the whole world if he climbs on the roof. He climbs up there all the time because he's not afraid of heights. He keeps goats. When wolves and bandits try to steal them, he beats them up. He's not afraid of anything. What are his parents like? He was found on the mountain as a baby. No one knows where he came from. Does he have a sister? No. He has pigeons. The fastest, prettiest pigeons. When he whistles, they fly all over, then tell him everything they see. Where greedy men hide their gold. When wolves come for the goats. How close the war is. If anyone died. Is there a war? There's always a war, Firuze. What a stupid question. So, once there was a boy who was everything you said. One day, he leaves the village. No. No what? The boy doesn't leave the village. He doesn't walk to the city. The village is home. He knows everyone there, even the mean old man with red-eyed dogs who glares at him and yells and spits. 
How does he go on adventures if he never leaves home? Maybe he doesn't need adventures. Maybe. But like you said, there's a war. Maybe one day he climbs up on the roof and sees that the fighting is close. No, that doesn't happen. That never happens. He's safe. He and the whole village are safe. His pigeons are always watching, always telling him, and they never see the war come close. Every day, the villagers crowd his door, even the mean old man, and they ask him, where's the fighting? Should we run? And every day, he says, it's far away. We're safe. So they never have to pack their bags and leave. Is that it? He always wins at walnuts and hopping fights. Sometimes he loses on purpose so the other children don't feel bad, but he could win if he wanted. Anything else? Oh, he wears a coat and boots made of wolf skin from all the wolves he's killed. Just him and his stick. That's everything. And they stayed on that side of the water and we on this. See? Now that was a good story. Noor smacked his lips, yawned, and stretched out on his bunk. Firuze, the ice cream? It didn't really taste good. She patted his curls. Little liar, she said. Wispily, Noor began to snore. If Firuze looked too long into the darkness of Abe's bunk, it threatened to split open and swallow her. Noor was asleep. Their neighbors on the other side of the sheet were asleep. She could feel her heart knocking against the bars of her bones. Somewhere outside, Ate was walking long, lonely circles under the watchlights and the moon. Firuze said, Nasima, I'll tell you a secret, the drowned girl said. Nasima pulled a pearl from under her tongue and rolled it between her fingers. Your parents can't save you, and you can't save them. Liar. Tell me how you'll save Abe. Tell me how Abe could possibly save you. When the waves are high and the boat is spinning, spinning. Just because your mother let go doesn't mean... The sharks eat the bodies, Nasima said. So many boats, so many storms. For a little while, the bodies float. Then they sink, but they never reach the bottom. But you survived, Firuze said. And Abe will get out. We'll make it to Australia, Nasima said. Mothers, lovers, little boys, old men, uncles, all drowned, all falling. The storm water roils, rough and high, but below that, you fall slowly, flesh fraying, traps of white teeth tearing and taking. Firuze said, you're telling a story. I saw what I saw. Chapter 19 Breakfast variously glutinous and stale, had no appeal for any of them. They went to the mess tent out of habit, Firuze thumbing her white pebble she'd found under her pillow. Ate sat like a stone. 
Firuze tore and mashed her bread and pushed the pieces around her plate. Noor rolled bread pellets and flicked them off his spoon. One bounced off of Firuze's nose. Furiziri, what are you doing today? Catching a big beetle and pulling off its wings. Can I help? No, go catch your own. Noor swelled up. Then I'll catch a turtle. What do you want with a turtle? All kinds of things. I can build a twig city on the back of its shell. Flip it so it kicks upside down in the air. Hide it in Ate's clothes so he yells. And when you come asking if you can play with it too, I'll tell you to go catch your own. You better hurry up and start looking then. You watch. Hey, Khalil, let's find a turtle. Ate, can I go? Ate blinked. Half a nod. Noor shot off. Azad, whose beard was full of crumbs, leaned over the long table and said, Remember that God is merciful to me and to you. Does this look like mercy? What is and isn't mercy is determined by God. Tell that to Bahar. Do you dare? What they've done to her, what they're doing now. I can't imagine. I don't want to. All night and all day I've been trying not to think. All God wants is for us to submit. Haven't I submitted? Hasn't my whole life been one punch in the mouth after another? At what point am I allowed to fight? Never, Azad said. But justice comes in its own time. You've gone mad, Ate said. It's the weather, this heat. I'll leave you alone. Only Omid, please. Don't jump the guards. I can see it in your face. There's a look a man gets. They'll bring Bahar back, and you'll be gone. What would be the good in that? There's no good anywhere. Not in heaven, not on earth. Firuze cleared her throat. Besides my children, Ate amended, ruffling her hair. Weren't you going to find a beetle? Do beetles eat this bread, Ate? They're all this bread is good for, so why not? What'll you do when you catch it, Janam? Lock it up in segregation. Ate stared. What? A plastic bag, maybe, or one of Noor's shoes. Why? I need to know if it escapes. If Abe... I advise you to keep your mind off it, Azad said. Shit on your mother. What do you think I've been trying to do? Be a good girl, Firuze, and look after Noor. I'm always good, Firuze huffed and went. Five beetles later, their lacquered shards and comb-toothed legs littering the ground around her, Firuze heard the rattle and wheeze of the bus. She left her sixth victim twitching three-legged in the dust and ran. Fast as she was, Ate was faster. By the time she reached the bus, he had Abe supported on his shoulder, his arm wrapped around her. Noor careened into them, tripping Ate. He pushed his wet face into Abe's skirt. Part of Firuze wished to do the same, but she was grown and good. Abe did not look at them. We've learned a lesson today, haven't we? A blonde guard said with a smile. Quick as a snake, Noor lunged at her. His nails clawed the coarse cloth of her uniform without finding purchase. 
He sat, sank his teeth in her leg, and held on. She screamed. Firuze laughed. Other guards came running, radios fizzing, nightsticks out. Firuze bent to Noor, who bounced and jolted as the guard kicked and wrapped her arms around him. Let go, she shrieked in English, pretending to pull. In Dari, she whispered to him, hang on tight. The first blow stung her shoulder like a wasp. The second thumped into her ribs. The third swing cracked against her skull. Her arms went slack and she spilled sideways into the dirt. They pulled Noor off without their batons. One brown guard jammed his thumb under Noor's jaw, and Noor let go, his eyes glittering with tears. The blonde guard would not stop yowling. Get me to medical, I need an airlift. Let me see, the brown guard said, kneeling. Radio it in, these fucking monkeys, you saw that, you saw it. Yep, he said, inspecting the marks under her rolled up pant leg. You've got some nice bruises. Bruises? He bit me like a bloody dingo. You're lucky he didn't break the skin. Want me to bite him back? He bared his big white teeth at Noor, who shrank away. Come on, Beth, let's get you some ice. Ice? Kiss my ass. I'm going to need stitches. She limped away, swearing on the brown guard's arm. Another guard spat at Ate. A fourth pinched Abe's rear good and hard. Think she's good root for a monkey? Seeing as the kids came out all monkey. What I think, Quentin, is that she'd be a good root for you. I'll lay off. I've got Ella at home, you know that. Your loss. When they had walked out of earshot, Ate fixed his black, burning eyes on Noor. Next time, fight harder. Yes, Ate, I will. Abe was feverish and shivering when they got her onto her bunk. The Sri Lankan woman lifted the dividing sheet and scowled at them. Sick, she said, pointing. Yes, Ate said. Bad, she said. Get guards. No. She gestured again at Abe, then held up her own frail son, who was three years too young to be of interest to Noor. His bright, curious gaze danced over their room. She said, guard, sick. No, Ate said, sorry. The sheet dropped, hiding them. This time you bite the guard, Noor said to Firuze. What did it taste like? Ugh. She poked him, and he poked back harder. Now and then, they snuck a glance over at Abe. Her presence was somehow worse than her absence. The sound she made was thin, high, and terrible. Sleep, Ate said, stroking Abe's hair. But the sound went on and on and on. Puffy little mountains of mosquito bites covered Abe's face and arms and feet, every inch of skin that was visible down to her soles. Some had bubbled and wept golden pus. Some were crusted and caked with blood. After a while, the sound guttered to syllables. Hush, Ate said. There'll be time to talk later. Abe said, Firuze. Yes, Abe? Twisting to reach behind her, Abe produced from the waistband of her skirt a pristine pair of white leatherette shoes. 
They were decorated with two pink punched flowers apiece. Thank you, Abe. Do a long breath indrawn. Do they fit? Peruze laid the new shoes in her lap. She stuck a hand in each and spread out her fingers. Yes, Abi, she said. They fit. Good. Abe turned her face away. You should sleep, Ate said. Firuze stuck out her right foot and made the old shoe's split-seam talk. Her toes waggled like eels in its mouth. Yes, sleep, the shoe said. It'll all be okay. I don't believe you, she told her shoe, and slung it off. It soared halfway across the tent, over the billowing sheet. On the other side, the Sri Lankan boy started to cry. That night, the monsoon rains began. Rain palpitated the canvas roof and seeped in through a thousand holes. Noor's mattress poured a waterfall when he sat up on its edge. I'm wet, Firuze said. You donkey. My blanket is wet. Abe's voice floated out of the darkness like words spoken in a dream. Omid, do you remember Estalif in the spring? Climb down, Noor, Ate said. It's drier below. But I don't want him, Firuze protested. Ah, Noor, you're wet. That's what I told you. Now who's a donkey? The Arhawan in blossom that bloomed through the war. A brief sodden struggle. Then her blanket was Noor's. Hey, give that back, Ate said. Firuze, Noor said. Oh, mine's all wet. Purple on the hills and purple by the stream, and everyone picnicking on blankets. Ate said, Firuze, stop hitting Noor. Look, these are my hands. It's him hitting me. I can't see, Ate sighed. Is it wrong to wish for a head count? It's probably wrong. Those shitheads won't come out in this stuff, Firuze said. They'll tick off our numbers and say that they did. Where did you learn a word like that? From the shitheads, Ate. That's what they say when they see us. She said it, Nor said. She said it, not me. A longer sigh. The rain dripped down. If we all settle in, maybe some of us can sleep. How? Firuze said indignant. You can't punch me and say ow. Yes, I can. I just did. Idiot. Ow! I remember the boy selling tulips by the road. Did I buy you a bunch? Ate asked the darkness. No, I wished for them, but the bus never stopped. Chapter 20 Decisions arrived with a break in the rain. Here and there, the dusty ground had turned to ankle-deep wallows of rainwater and mud. Coming back from the ablutions block, Firuze stepped barefoot into one such pool, new shoes in her hand. 
Above her, a white bird with a scarlet thread of a tail dropped the small fish it held in its beak, which fell twisting and gleaming into the pool. A swift silver thing it was, no longer than her finger, darting in and out of the clouds of silt that Firuze stirred up with her feet. She wadded up her skirt, squatted, and combed the water with her fingers. No luck. Her movements had turned the water opaque. Fish puddle, she told herself, measuring its distance to the camp's single tree. The rows of dull tents pattering with rain were too uniform to mark her spot. The rains, they had heard, would continue for months. She'd put the fish in a bowl and feed it white bread. Little by little, the fish would grow. A fish clock, she thought, or a fish calendar. How much time since? Until and when? As Firuze approached her family's tent, the migration agent passed with quick, sticky steps. His face was fixed forward with such firmness he almost trampled her. Inside, Ate held a soft, sagging letter. Firuze, you read this. Nur said, the words are hard. She took the damp page and held it against the triangle of pewtery light admitted through the tent's entrance. We're Afghan, she said. What? Of course we are. What kind of letter is this? They're saying they know we are Afghan now, and Hazara, and not lying. Did they think? Abe said, all liars think others are lying. Ate said, well, some refugees might have lied. I could see a Pashtun lying, so this is a good letter. They know we told the truth. Firuze said, they'll give us each $2,000. $2,000? And plane tickets. Do you hear this, Bahar? Back to Kabul. For a long time, no one spoke. There were faint shouts outside, other letters, other slow and halting translations. This letter says that Afghanistan is safe. It says go home. They'll give us the money if we sign an agreement. Sign, go away, and never come back. Two thousand dollars, Abe said. Won't pay for one grave. Bahar, it's the truth, Noor said. So when are we going to Australia? Never, Firuze said. We'll die on this rock. There must be something, Ate said. I'll speak to the agent. Outside in the quicksilver, possible light, men and women held letters comparing the words. We have failed to verify. Consider the probability of falsification high. Regret to inform you. No possibility of return. Some still had spirit enough to wail. Most were silent. Abe shuffled out of the tent, shading her eyes with one hand. Her hair was a jumble, her scarf stained and askew. She had not left her bed in days. All over her hands and face, the bites had scabbed over with dry yellow crystals. Come, Firuze. Firuze followed, splashing from puddle to puddle, as Abe made her way between the tents. 
At least your Ate and I have you two. The Shasavanese have nothing at all. Nasima said she had brothers. What happened to them? We don't know. The phone numbers don't work anymore. They haven't been able to reach them for months. And now this... Toruba will go out of her mind. Don't remind her of Nasima. Don't speak. Don't smile. So why am I coming? Abe's shoulders slumped. Because I'm your mother, and Ate's gone to find the agent. When they reached the Shasavani's tent, which was identical to every other tent around it, Abe lifted the flap and waved Firuze through. The Shasavani's sat on opposite ends of the lower of their two bunks, facing away from each other. Delruba said, Good morning, Bahar. I wish I had tea. Isn't that the worst? Even during the war, I had tea for my friends, even if it was only one leaf. At least we have a chair. Abe said, Did you get your letter? You just missed the agent. It was strange. He was smiling. I couldn't come earlier, he said. The rain held me up. But now you know. How odd. But these people, their jobs must make them odd. Saying, go home and die to us every day. So, your letter, did they offer you $2,000 too? 2000 what a fortune. Is that what your letter says? They'll give us 2000 each to go back to Kabul. Oh, shameless, shameless. No, I was a fool. Can you read this letter? the agent said. My daughter can translate it, I said. She won an award for her English at school. Then I remembered. The look he gave me split my heart like an apricot. Firuze, come here. She can translate, Abe said. Firuze, dragging foot behind foot, held out her hand for the folded letter. Go on, Abe said. What does it say? I have to read it in English first. Nasima would have translated it already. She won two prizes for English at school, you know. Firuze ignored this. She marked each word with her finger. Mr. Rahmatullah Shahsevani and Mrs. Delruba Shahsevani. I understood that, Delruba said. We are pleased to inform you that your applications have been processed and approved. You have received ASIO clearance and may enter Australia. She squinted at the words she knew, then at the words she didn't. So? Be patient, Delruba, Arasha Savani said. Can't you see the girl is doing her best? An IOM agent will assist with arrangements. Take your time, Abe said. I think, Firuze said. Yes? I think you are going to Australia. Something dry and dead in Delruba's expression cracked to pieces. For the first time that Firuze could remember since the boat, Delruba looked around her, truly looked, as if seeing for the first time the bolted steel beds and the tent and her husband, whose hand fumbled along the bunk until it found hers. Janam, did you hear her? 
His tight, taut brows loosened into uncertainty. I did, but does she really know? We have to ask somebody else. Leaning on each other, uncertain and slow, they rose from their rest and walked into the world. Abe stared at Firuze. They could hear Mr. Shahsavani's voice through the tent. Hey, Abdul Hakim, can you read English? No, but this Iraqi Mr. Sadiq Ali can. But I don't speak Arabic. That's all right. He'll smile if you've been rejected and cry and praise God if you've been accepted. An anxious pause. Alhamdulillah. What about this letter? Mr. Sadiq Ali, read this one. Outside, men bellowed, stomped, and shouted. Women ululated. Someone sang. Abe arose like one in a trance and fought blindly with the tent's cloth until it gave way. Firuze, forgotten, slipped out after. Wherever the good letters had fallen like stars, souls flashed forth from formerly blank faces. People danced in puddles, muddy to their waists, kissed each other, clasped hands, spoke tenderly, wept. Not once on the long walk back to their tent did Abe remember Firuze. She scuttled along in her mother's shadow, glaring at the revelers. She would spit if she spoke. Spit, scratch, and bite. When they came within a few meters of their tent, Firuze grasped her skirt and ran. Her anger hissed out between her teeth. Now her mother would see her. There you are, she would say. Or were you behind me that whole lonely time? Or I'm so sorry I forgot about you. But Abe did not see. Abe's gaze was thousands of miles away. Noor was kicking a plastic bottle filled with stones, water fanning up with each kick. Abe went into their tent without a word. Were you out here on your own? Firuze said. I was playing with Khalil, but his letter came. Was it good? Bad? He seemed angry, but he's always angry. Firuze, what does motherfucker mean? That means his letter wasn't good. But our letter wasn't any good either. Probably the same as his. So why is Khalil so upset? We're stuck here together. Maybe he doesn't like you as much as you think. Maybe you smell so bad he can't wait to leave Nauru. And now he has to stay here and smell you for the rest of his life. Too bad. You're also stuck smelling me. That's what you think. She gave the plastic bottle a small kick of her own. Should we be upset? Should I say motherfucker too? Firuze sighed. Don't say motherfucker, Noor. Will Abe get mad? Whole oceans of mad. She won't let you play with Khalil again. Then I'll say I learned the word from you. Then I'll punch you so hard you forget all your English. Just joking, Firuze. I was just joking, too. Raindrops, fat as quail eggs, plunked into their hair and plucked points out of puddles. Noor shrieked. Firuze laughed. They ran inside.
Chapter 21 There was nothing, Ate said, that the agent could do. Think of your family, the agent had told him. I am thinking of my family, Ate had roared. Ate said, I hope the Tajik translated what I said, that all of them are heartless, cowardly men. You mean they are motherfuckers, Nor volunteered. Ate blinked, then took a deep, slow breath. I see you've been learning English, Noor. That will be useful in Australia, but while we are here, confine your cursing to Dari. But Khalil is learning the wrong things. He'll be beaten someday, like Mansoor was. I don't want that to happen to you. Your mother. They all looked at Abe, sprawled face down on her bunk, her tired face hidden under a thinning sweep of hair. Mate added, and if it happened, I'd hit you a few times too, so that you'd know better. When will they let us go to Australia? Firuze says Nasima's parents are going. Maybe in a few months. We have to be patient. Because if it's never like the letter says, we could go back to Kabul. Noor bumped his head against Ate's. I wouldn't mind. These are adult matters. You don't understand. It's Firuze's fault, isn't it? I want to go home. I don't care about her. I miss Abe's cooking. I miss my friends. Quit crying, Firuze said. I just got this bed dry. I miss our home, Ate. Who's living there now? Ate said, go out and play. I need to rest. It's raining, Ate. Ate screwed up his hands in his hair. Then go torture our neighbor's son, or light a fire somewhere. Just don't kill anyone, and let Abe sleep. Firuze said, Ate, you could tell us a story. I'm fresh out, Ate said. Then make one up. Ate said, Firuze, John, this once, be quiet. The Shah Savanis and six other refugees accepted for resettlement said their goodbyes as they stood by the green school bus that would take them to the plane to Australia. Ate had brought Firuze to see them off. She traced a crescent in the dust with the tip of her shoe. Congratulations, Ate said, embracing Nasima's father. Did you find your sons? It's the strangest thing. Rahmatullah said, they hired a solicitor with their savings. She found out where we were and started the paperwork. They'll be waiting at the airport. Where's Bahar? Delruba said, beaming. Not feeling well. She's lying down. She's sorry to be missing your departure. That's too bad. Then I'll run over and say goodbye. Do we have time for that? Please don't, Ate said. You'll miss the bus. And then the plane might leave without you. Here, let me help you load your bags. Delruba bent down to meet Firuze's eyes. You be good, she said, like my Nasima. Be kind to your Abe. Mothers endure much more than you know. The migration officer waved the eight refugees onto the bus. The Shasavanis boarded along with the rest. Ate squeezed Firuze's hand. They watched the bus go. 
Not a word to your mother, he said. Yes, Ate. But news flew faster than the Simorg. By the time Ate and Firuze reached their tent, visitors had already come and gone. So fortunate, one of the women said as they passed. It must have been fate. And what a perfect person for this to happen to. Hanum del Druba is so kind and has lost so much. If any of us... Ate winced. They found Abe sitting on the bunk, arms around her legs, black hair over her knees. I'm sorry, Ate began. Did they? Piruze said, Abe. Fuck them, Abe said, and shit on their fathers. The next day, Abe plotted to the kitchen to inquire after her old dishwashing job, and Ate lined up at medical for pills. Thus far, they had not needed much medicine, since Hope had done triple duty as amulet, tonic, and prophylactic. Now that the bottle had been smashed, there was no help other than nurses and pills. Too young to visit medical on her own, ignored by the nurses, in fact, every time she wandered close to the donga, Firuze imagined a pharmacological cabinet of rich, dark wood that took up an entire wall. Each drawer rattled when you pulled the brass knob, shaking the blue, red, yellow, purple, white pills inside. There were pills shaped like goldfish and pills shaped like stars, along with more boring triangles and trapezoids. Some were striped and some were speckled, and some were only one color or three or two. You could get pills for headaches and bad dreams and homesickness, pills for fever and forgetting and pills to not care. If you were sleepless or homeless, there was a pill for that too. Whatever you needed, you asked for, and they provided. That was why the line of men waiting for pills always doubled back along the path. Wrong, Khalil said, once she expounded her thoughts. He was swinging Noor's bottle of rocks, waiting for Noor to don shirt and shoes. They have two kinds, toothache, fever, Panadol. Anything else? One sleeping tablet. That's everything they've got. I've been there. I know. Then what could Ate be getting? Panadol. Or sleeping tablets. What did they give you? Sleeping tablets and Panadol. Firuze said, that doesn't make sense. As if anything makes sense in this giant rat cage. Pills, Payam, Mansoor. Nor hurry up or I'm going without you. Now you won't. You've got no one but me. What happened to Payam? Firuze said. He's gone, Khalil snapped. Nor, you're taking too long. Payam got a letter, Nor said. One of the good ones. He hopped on one foot, tugging at his shoe. I'm glad for him, Firuze said. Good riddance. Khalil said. Weren't you always stuck together, like a two-for-one sale? That's right, Noor said. Khalil, I'm ready to go. Too late, Khalil said, flinging the bottle down. Have a beautiful, he hurled the tent flap aside, fucking day. Khalil, I'm sorry. I was sleepy. It's so early. Slow down. I'm sorry my sister is such a jerk. Noor vanished in pursuit. 
Firuze nudged the forgotten bottle. Its plastic creased white from kicking, its sides thick and smeary with mud. The boys had put gravel and coral nubs in it, and it clattered when she rolled it over with her toe. There was a faint noise from the far side of the tent. The Sri Lankan boy had drawn back a corner of the sheet. He glanced at her, then at the bottle. If you take it, she said, I'll pretend I didn't see. The boy didn't move. Firuze threw herself down on a bunk, covered her face, and let out a loud snore. She heard a muffled giggle, then soft steps. A clacking and scraping followed by a watchful pause. She waited until the steps had fully retreated before opening her eyes. Noor's treasure was gone. From the other side of the sheet came a furtive rattle. Ten minutes later, Noor whirled back into the tent like a small, wet squall. He's so mad, Firuze. Was it something you said? I think it's Payam. Still your fault. Hey, where's our ball? Noor peered under the bunks. It was right here. Maybe somebody stole it. I took a quick nap. You're useless, Firuze. She stuck out her tongue. The dishwashing had been taken over by a Chinese woman, Abe said, whose swelling belly pressed into the steel edge of the sink. Two quarters an hour, gone like that. We're sorry, they told her. We waited two days, then three. But look, keep on asking. People leave all the time. You mean deportations? Acceptances, too. That means no more ice cream, Firuze told Noor. Who wants ice cream in this weather? Abe and Ate went together to medical in the morning. When they came back, they lay down and closed their eyes. Then all that Firuze or Noor could provoke was an inarticulate mumble or a, Janan, let me rest. Just like Khalil, Noor said. He's on pills now, too. I told him you lost our ball, and he shrugged and said, who cares about that anymore? Rain kept them inside, where they had to sit still. Fat bulges of water gathered on top of the tent. If you poked them, a bit of the water dripped through, but the rest poured off, and that was better than the slow drops that slid down the back of the neck. A few minutes later, they filled up again. I want pills too, Firuze said. I mean, what are we supposed to do? Noor said, I'm glad you can't have them. You'd be even more boring. What you need, Noor, is a pill for school that will put history and science into your head. And I need a pill for annoying little brothers who give you a headache, then a stomach ache. There's Panadol or sleeping tablets. I think tomorrow I'll ask the nurse. You'll get into trouble. For asking? Mm. The nurses are just fat guards, Khalil says. They're angry about being here, and they wish we were dead. If that's what he thinks, why does he go? He can't sleep, Noor said. Since Payam left, he cries, and then everyone in his tent yells at him. One of the Iranians hit him and bloodied his nose. But that didn't work. It scared him more. At least with the pills, he can sleep during the day. Wouldn't it be a better story if there weren't any pills? What do you mean? 
I haven't seen these pills, have you? Maybe everyone gets together, like for a party, and I don't know, it's a big secret. That's because you have to take the pill right there. They give you one cup with a pill in it and one cup with water, and they watch to make sure the pill goes all the way down so you can't save them up and swallow a bunch in one go. Khalil told you that? Yeah, Khalil knows lots of things. He says someone tried it a few weeks ago. They weren't checking cheeks and lips yet, so he hid one pill at a time. They took him to the hospital and emptied him out. Maybe he thought they were pills for flying. I'd take a whole bottle if they made me fly. Me too, but I'd only take one at a time. That's no good. What'll you do when they run out and you're flying? You'd drop and splat into wet red gobs. What you want is to fly all the way to Australia, catch hold of a tree, and hang on until the flying wears off. Then you climb down. Where would you go? I'd walk, I guess. Walk and walk and walk and walk. No fences, no guards. Maybe walk into a school and sit down. I don't know. That's dumb. You should find the biggest candy store, stuff all your pockets, and run away. They'd catch you and beat you. Not if you saved one flying pill. You'd be dropping a rainbow trail of sweets. They'd catch you. Maybe you. They'd never catch me. For a long time, they listened to the sound of the rain. Five days of it left an itching in the limbs to run, to jump, to cartwheel, or to scream. But Ate and Abe lay half asleep. The paths outside were melting to mud, and they had no dry clothes except for what they were wearing. Penned up like that with nothing to do, you turned and bit each other instead. They were saved by the telltale chatter of gravel. Thief! Noor cried, scrambling down from his bunk. I'll pull all your hair out. Come out here. I will. He paced like a lion on their side of the sheet. Give me back my ball. The sheet twitched. Then the rock-filled bottle flew into the cloth from the other side, striking Noor in the stomach. Noor abruptly sat down in a puddle. Firuze laughed and could not stop. She clapped her hands over her mouth to hold it in. But out it came, relentless as rain, until the tent was full of laughter and she was breathless and drowning. Is that you, Firuze? Yes, Abe. Please stop laughing. I'm tired and need to rest. Chapter 22 the mess tent at lunchtime had been depleted both by case resolutions and by detainees skipping meals. The ones who remained sat separately in silence. They ate without tasting, although there was little to taste. Food fell from their open mouths. What thin life the rains left them, the pills had drained. Here and there was a man who hadn't started that regimen, alive in a way the others were not. Their faces flashed and sparked. They ate ravenously, 
They banged their fists against the plastic tables and demanded the food, the guards, and each other. The things they would do to the guards, and their cars, and their mothers, and then the graves of their fathers. But one by one, even those coals guttered out. It proved easier in the end to swallow a pill. Another boat arrived, and the mess hall grew crowded again. The arrivals carried some news of interest about this dictator and that war, but nothing about Abe's or Ate's families. The living mixed with the dead and looked askance. Noor made himself another rock bottle, but Khalil was no longer interested. Besides Khalil, no one Noor's age was left. Only a couple of children, all very young, had come in on the most recent ship. Even when Firouze and Noor swung from the bars on the bunks, metals squeaking and clanging, Ate rarely noticed them. It's like you're a ghost, Nasima said, and no one can see or hear you. The girl stood by the bunk in the dim, deep night, her arms braceleted with fish scales and shipwrecked gold. Firouze said, your parents, I know. I thought maybe you had left as well. I promised, didn't I? You did. Here I am. A dead girl talking to a dying one. What fun! Nasima scratched one barnacled ear. It's just us awake right now. Us and the nightmares. They go hunting at this hour. Hunting? They eat stories. That's what they're made of. Now sleep. Nasima said, and kissed Firuze's cheek, her lips as slickly soft as kelp. Abe tried now and then. It was worse than not trying. Once there was a woodcutter, and he had a daughter, and they lived, they lived, I don't remember, the snake in the kindling, Mount Kaf, the Peris, Ate didn't try. They're lost in a fog, Firuze said to Noor. So deep they can't see their way out, or each other. Or maybe it's a magic spell, and we're all trapped here until it breaks. Noor said, how do we break the spell? I don't know. I don't know any magic words. We could look for a witch. What do witches look like? They write amulets out of dirty old books, so I guess they'd be squinty with ink on their hands. I think the nurses are witches. If they are, they're not going to help us, genius. It'll have to be one of the detainees. But if I was a witch and they put me in here, I'd have gotten out ages and ages ago. I wish Ate or Abe would tell us a story. Firuze said, I'm telling you a story. Your story is no good. It sucks. I could tell you a story that Ate told us. Listen, the mullah's son came to him with a big smile. Baba, Baba, I dreamed that you gave me a dollar. The mullah pinched his chin and said, You've been a good boy, so I won't ask for it back. Ha ha, that story was dumb when Ate told it. You're lucky Ate's sleeping. Ate's always asleep. Anyway, Firuze, I need to pee. Then go pee. I'm not stopping you. 
You have to come with me. You've gone on your own. Remember what Ape said about sisters. I'm not going, Noor. Fine, then I'll be here. All right, Firuze slithered off the bunk. Let's go, you spoiled little prince. The pools of water between tents gleamed shifting silver, smooth as fresh car panels, until Noor jumped through. Firuze stomped after him, grumbling. It was drier around the ablutions block, though the reek of waste curdled the yellow air. Muddy footprints streaked the entrances. Clouds of black flies hummed and swirled. Be fast, Firuze said, crumpling her shirt over her nose. Yeah, yeah, Noor half skipped, half ran inside. Stupid Noor, stupid her. She should have woken Abbe. Firuze held her breath, counting. Would Noor ever come out, or would she turn plum colors and faint? He was taking forever, almost certainly on purpose. Firuze took another breath of foulness and resolved to hide his shoes during the night. Somewhere inside the ablutions block, glass broke with a high chime. Noor, she said. Noor! Firuze moved toward the entrance of the men's side of the block. Noor shot out, crashing into her knees. Khalil, he said. Khalil's in there. So? He's eating. He broke. Noor, talk sense. He didn't know I was. He had a rock. Breathe. The mirror, Firuze. He's eating the glass. She left him shuddering there and ran toward the center of camp, arms and legs flying until her lungs felt full of knives. Guards narrowed their eyes and muttered into radios. Firuze burst upon a knot of men parsing an old newspaper. Aga Hassani, aga nobody, Mansour, please, it's Khalil. What's wrong with Khalil? In the ablutions block, come see. Led by Mansour, they set off at a jog. Faster, she pleaded, winded, stumbling after. Go faster, please. Mr. Hassani puffed in apology over his shoulder. We can't let the guards see grown men running. They'd be over us like ticks on a sheep. The three men had disappeared into the block by the time Firuze, gasping, bent over beside Noor. Go back to the tent, she said. I still have to pee. Then go in the woman's side. No one will mind. Noor ducked inside. When Firuze waited, a guard strode up to her. What's all the trouble? No trouble, sir. No trouble for you. I saw detainees running. Where did they go? The toilet, sir. They'll be right back. Will they now? He spoke to his radio. It sputtered in reply. Firuze edged toward the men's entrance. The guard said, stop there. Another guard joined him. They conferred. Then, unclipping their batons, they marched into the block. Unnoticed, Firuze poked her head in. On the far side of the ablutions block, Khalil crouched over a sink. The mirror over the sink was shattered at its center, leaving a void in the shape of a star. Light glittered in Khalil's teeth and in the gaps of his fists. Mansour, murmuring, extended his hand. A guard said, don't move. Mr. Hassani said, 
Khalil, listen, your mother, Mr. Nobody said, this isn't the way out. Blood ran from the boy's mouth and pooled on the floor. The first guard said, what's this roar, eh? He grabbed Mr. Hassani. Is this all some shithead trick? Khalil pressed a fist into his mouth, tried to swallow. I need backup and medical, the second guard said into his radio. Your parents, Mansour said, didn't send you for this. Knuckle by knuckle, Khalil opened his hands. Diamonds and rubies fell glinting like rain. There were cuts on his palms and his lips and his face. Jesus, the first guard said. Boy, come with me. Be gentle, Mr. Nobody said. His parents aren't here. Don't tell me my business. I said, boy, come here. The second guard said, easy, Quentin, it's two against four. Hands descended roughly on Firuze's shoulders, and she was yanked back. You, out of the way. Four guards pushed past her. Noor was waiting for her by the corner. What are they doing, he said. What are they doing with Khalil? She took his wet hand. We're going now. Chapter 23 Ate, when she told him, said only, I see. Abe stroked Noor's cheek, which was sticky with tears. Poor Khalil, poor Noor. The next day, Firuze went looking for news. The one man smoking under the tree grinned when she mentioned the names. You want Mr. Hassani? He cupped his mouth. Hey, Hassani, a girl is asking for you. From a nearby tent, cursing and thrashing about. Then Mr. Hassani appeared, breathless, shoelaces undone. The other man chuckled and stubbed out his cigarette, then sauntered into the same tent. Oh, it's you, Mr. Hassani said, stooping to tie his shoes. Almeen's daughter, what do you need? Where's Khalil? He's been flown to the mainland, to a hospital, I hope. He brushed the dust from his collar and neatened his clothes. Did the guards hurt you? Not badly, they figured it out. A people here, he glanced down at her. This isn't the first time that this. Uh, Khalid got creative. You have to be, to, anyhow. They took out the mirrors and swept up the glass. Not even a screw left, so no one else will. Will Khalil come back? That's up to God. I hope he doesn't. This place was bad for him. He paused. If that's all. Thank you, Mr. Hassani. He hurried off. Firuze sat under the tree to think. After a while, the first man slunk out of the tent smirked at Firuze and slipped away. Not long after his departure, a woman came out of the same tent. She appeared to be younger than Abe, but older than Mansour, and she fumbled cigarette and lighter twice before the flame caught. Leaning against the tree, she smoked in gray sighs. Presently, Firuze said, are you a witch? The woman coughed. Do I look like a witch? I've never met one, so I don't know. But 
people come to you. People would come to a witch. If I were a witch, would I be here? But what do you want? Fortune telling? A curse on a particular guard? A cure, Fiduze said. And a cure for a cure. Sorry? Australia said we can't come in. Now Abe and Ate take pills and sleep all day. They used to tell stories and yell at us. Hmm, the witch said, and leaned back and smoked. Firuze said, do you know the story of Bibi Nagar, with the snake husband and the demon wife? Can't say that I do, and if I did, I'd mess it up, and then we'd both feel bad. She stood, Firuze sat, and the whole world steamed. A pebble-brown lizard ran up the trunk of the tree. Cigarette smoke ribboned up into the branches. Your parents are sleeping, the woman said. Or lying still, it's hard to tell, Firuze mashed a cigarette stump under her shoe. Why do they do that when I'm right here? Sleeping is an easier way to wait. For what? I don't know. What do we all wait for here? Being led into Australia? Or being made to leave? No. See, both of those options have come and gone. But here we are, still waiting. All of us had something to wait for, and that kept us going. Now we don't. Now the minutes of our lives are wasted. Time scrapes our nerves. It hurts. How it hurts. Is that why you smoke? Yes. Smoking's very expensive. Did your father say that? He did. Ate doesn't smoke here, but he used to a little. Never too much. He worked around cars. I have ways, the woman said, of paying for them. Are you rich? What a question. She glanced sideways and laughed. What is rich? Who is rich? Australians are. Oh, you think like a migrant. Be big-souled like me. When a guest visits your house, what does your mother do? Pour him tea and set out nuts and white raisins? But that was in Kabul. We don't have those things here. But... Even if you had nothing, she'd serve him some tea. Yes. Now we come to Australia. Knock, knock. Let us in. Do they treat us like guests or throw us in a prison? Australians are poor, girl. Your mother is rich. So what does that make you? Rich, pretty, and wise. Raindrops plopped on the leaves of the Timanu tree. There we go, the woman said. Do you want to come inside? I'm Zahra, by the way. Call me Khala if you're shy. Firuze. Come in, please. Zahra's tent was not much different from the rest, but only half the bunks appeared to be occupied. A heavy sweat smell lingered in the nose the same smell that was everywhere when the taps ran dry. Then, 
wonder of wonders, Zahra produced a kettle so dented it might have served as a helmet for a battle or two. So, Zahra said, can I offer you tea? She had more than tea. She had Capel's biscuits, two cans of cola, a whole stash of mismatched cigarettes, and half a large bag of crisps. Firuze opened and closed her mouth. Some of the guards like me, Zahra said, her voice dry. Go on, have a biscuit. Habe would kill me. You'd be doing me a favor. Sugar gives me zits. Firuze tore open the double packet, then forced herself to eat each biscuit crumb by crumb. You should take some with you. My parents are asleep. No, it's not proper manners, but what's proper about any of this? The tent flap rustled. A man cleared his throat. Excuse me, Zahra said, and went to the flap. Firuze licked the sugar that dusted her fingers. No, I can't. Yes, I told you, but I have a guest. With her tongue, Firuze collected the crumbs at the bottom of the wrapper. Back in half an hour, yes, I'll be here. Zahra returned and poured them both tea, moving the bag from cup to cup until the water in both was brown. You really are rich, Firuze said. Most people here don't have much money. Not even the Nauruans, but especially not us. When there's no money, some things are almost as good. Cigarettes, for example. Very stable in value. One cigarette equals two biscuits, or four small packets of crisps. Sometimes the biscuits change price. Here, take another. I meant it. Don't be so polite. I'll take one for my brother, thank you, Firuze said. What a good sister you are. Where's your brother? I really don't know. Look, the rain's let up. She gazed down at Firuze, her eyes softly sad. I wish I could tell you come visit again, but don't. You don't know me, and you never came here. I'm very sorry, whatever I've done. You haven't. You didn't. But now you should go. Firuze sucked up the weak tea and set down her cup. Thank you for the tea and biscuits, Khalazahra. Any time. But not any time, you understand. Firuze was beginning to think that she did. Noor's eyes should have bulged when Firuze presented the biscuits. He had stayed curled up by Abe's arm the entire day, but he barely looked at what Firuze swung under his nose. It's biscuits, Noor, biscuits! Say I'm clever and they're yours. I'm clever, he said. No, say I'm... What's wrong? He turned away, nosing into Abe's arm. Firuze said, They took Khalid to Australia. A hospital. He'll be fine. Noor mumbled. What? I said I don't care. Have a biscuit, though. I brought them for you. I don't want them. If you're sure. Firuze, go away. Last chance. No. 
She unwrapped the plastic and pressed the edge of a biscuit to his cheek. Noor, it's right here. It's even got chocolate. He pushed her hand away. She gave up, sat down, and nibbled the biscuit. Noor was here and not here. She had and hadn't gone somewhere. The biscuit tasted like ash in her teeth. She folded the wrapper around the other. Noor would whine and want it once he came back to himself. She gave him an hour. He didn't ask. Come here, she said finally by the dividing sheet. The curly-haired head of their youngest neighbor poked around. She held out the biscuit. Here, take it, she said. The boy wrinkled his nose at her, snatched the packet, and smiled. He crunched the whole thing in a single bite. Crumbs sprayed from the packet. Firouze brushed them from her shirt. Thank you, he told her in his own language. His expression was perfectly intelligible. The sheet rippled and fell straight. Her neighbor was gone. All night, Firouze slept on crumbs. Chapter 24 Weeks or months or centuries later, time flowed thick as honey in the camp, a postcard arrived. The guard called Noor's name and number at breakfast, and Noor leapt from his chair, twitching, ready to run. But no punishment came. There was only a creased card waiting for him. One side had a crayoned kangaroo, the other some stamps and a thorny scrawl. They moved me to Baxter, from Hell 1 to Hell 2. I am sorry. I did not think you would see. I was so sad. I am still so sad. The postcard bore no return address. When Firouze finished reading him the card, Noor knuckled his wet nose. Hamid's a bastard. He didn't forget you. He wrote you a card. The stamps cost money. He must have worked for them. I said he's a bastard. Noor, you don't know anything. He snatched back the card. You know nothing about me or Khalil or Payam. I'm just an annoying baby you have to take to the bathroom. You don't know anything, Firouze. You don't understand. He turned his back on her and burst into sobs. Okay, Firouze said, and left the mess tent. Well, sure, Nasima said. I didn't pay attention to my brothers either. They were just there, like pigeons. What I'm saying is, why try to understand Noor? What's even there to understand? Something, maybe? Firouze scratched the back of her head. Something I'm missing. Look around us. Fence, tent, tent, fence. What could you possibly be missing? I don't know. Then it can't be important. Do you still have my pearl? It's a rock. It's a pearl. I fought a blind squid to win it for you. Almost lost my fingers. Is it magic? No, I fought with the squid for fun. Of course it's magic, stupid. Then what does it do? Helps me find you. That's it? 
as if I didn't have to wade through night-dark oceans to see you, as if you're not worlds and worlds away in your own head. Hold tight to it, and you'll always find and be found. But it looks like a rock. Then you're not trying. Much later, searching for a misplaced coin, Fiduze lifted Noor's pillow and found the postcard underneath. The weight of his head had wrinkled it. Humidity had turned it soft. She carefully put the pillow back. Chapter 25 She did not know the day or month or year. Ate's hard muscles had melted like wax, and Abe rarely spoke, only sighing. The rains had stopped. So had the boats. The detainee population on Neuru diminished, as some took the offered money and went back the way they came, and others, beaming like lotto winners, flew to new lives in Auckland, Melbourne, Sydney, or Perth. The pregnant dishwasher was deported to China, but Abe did not return to her job. Their Sri Lankan neighbors were chosen for resettlement. The father shook hands with everyone, accepting their congratulations with a nod. The mother hugged all of them, kissed Firuze and Noor, and burst into tears. Their boy said nothing, but smiled and smiled. The tent was quieter once they had gone. The heart hurt then like an orphaned thing. Silences built up, spar by spar, until they each floated on an island of unspoken words, whole seas of thoughts dividing them. Always a dark shape hung on the horizon, and that was the option of return. It was late morning and humid, the sun high. Abe and Ate had returned from the nurse's station and the daily sacramental swallowing of pills. Outside their tent, the migration agent called their names. He tripped over the unfamiliar syllables. Omid and Bahar Daizangi, are you home? May I come in? Ate stirred. Abe murmured. Firuze jumped from her bunk and lifted the flap, and the sun boiled in. Oh, hello. Little girl, are your parents at home? She backed away, still holding the flap. The agent came in. Who is this? Noor said. Are we in trouble? Firuze said, I don't know. There you are. Hope you'll pardon my intrusion. We try to get the news out as fast as we can. He coughed and produced a starch white letter. Mr. Omid Daizangi and Mrs. Bahar Daizangi, the federal government of Australia is pleased to inform you that on appeal, your prior denial of status has been reversed. Ate shook his head, uncomprehending. Abe pulled her blanket up over her face. The agent stopped. Should I come back with a translator? Ate said, Firuze, we're going to Australia. Noor peered over the edge of his bunk. Stiffly, Ate unfolded himself, stood up, and grasped the agent's unready hand. Sir. Abe tossed her scarf back over her hair and fixed it with two pins. Firuze slipped out of the tent. 
The world was one lustrous, unbearable gleam. She waited, waves breaking in her breath, until the sharp glitter dropped from her eyes. Here were the camp's old tents and fences, the same as they had been an hour before, yet somehow subtly changed. If she filled up her lungs and exhaled, canvas and poles and ropes would go flying. If she put out her hand, the fences would quiver and bend. Nothing caught at her. Nothing tied her down. She felt she could run and run without stopping. Down the glinting steel road, the sun laid on the sea, running until she reached Australia. The agent stepped smiling out of their tent, thrust his hands in his pockets, and went on his way. Funny, Ate said, as Firuze rejoined them. He laid his heavy hand lightly on Firuze's hair. I'm still tired. I expected to be more, well, less tired. You'll feel better tomorrow, Abe said. But we have so much to decide. Where we'll go, how we'll live. We'll decide all that tomorrow, Abe said. For now, oh, look at us. Let's see if the showers have any water. Please, Firuze, don't make that face. I can't remember the last time either of you got a good scrub. Indonesia, Nor muttered. That thunderstorm. Then we must have whole continents caked onto us. Grab your things now, let's go. I'll stay here, Ate said, and watch the tent. Oh, no, you don't, Hamid. You stink worst of all. So you're leaving, Nasima said to her. Oh, yes, as soon as we can, or sooner. Nor says, fuck all these motherfuckers. Fuck our detainee numbers. Fuck these fences. That's how I feel, too. The moon was a slender yellow boat, rowing through a drift of cloud. Firuze had lain awake for hours, waiting for Nasima to call her name. What will you do? she said to the dead girl. I told you, wherever you go, I'll go with you. We'll be sisters. We'll be best friends, you and me. It's not like you have anybody else. What if, what if what? Nothing. You'll need me, Firuze. Wait and see. They were both quiet then. The whispering of the distant sea hung like a bright diamond in each of their ears. I hate this place, Firuze said. I won't miss it at all. That sounds about right. But tonight, it's almost beautiful. Moonlight washed the gnawed coral pinnacles, frosted the skeletal phosphate cranes, and drenched the canvas tents where a hundred dreamers dreamed gray, grim, and miserable dreams. The sky was salted with stars. Nasima said, There's something about beginnings and endings that polishes them so smooth you can nearly see your face in them. Then you open your hands and let them go, and the current pulls you onward and away. Behind you, those stones sink down to the mud, where no one will ever find them again. Or maybe I've gone crazy from not sleeping, Firuze said. 
That happened to one of my cousins during the war. Forty days without sleep. He was so scared, Ate said. Then he ran screaming out of his house and into the street. They shot him immediately. No one knows which side, but it doesn't matter. Well, you're already outside your tent. If you want to scream... Tell me what Australia will be like. Cruel, but a different kind of cruelty. Lonely, harder than you could ever imagine. Are you sure? Have you been there? I can hear my parents dreaming from a great distance, like a few notes of a song you half remember when you hear someone humming it somewhere. They're giving us visas called TPVs. The V stands for visa. I think a TP is a kind of home. Nasima said, I don't remember what home means anymore. Firuze said, home is where you're safe. But sometimes it's not safe. Sometimes it's not yours, but you can shut your eyes and pretend it is. And your family is there. And you fight and kiss. There's a bar on the gate, so no one can walk in unless you invite them. And when you do invite them, you offer them tea. And home is your school and your friends and your town. That sounds nice, Nasima said, and was silent again. It was bright in the tent, the light lemony. Abe was packing with neat flicks and tucks, spare clothing, Rupias, Afghanis, and cents. Two photos creased past recognition. The mobile, dead with water, confiscated when they arrived. Abe said, have you told your friends goodbye? Don't have any, Nor said. Firuze said, friends? You should go tell them. Later you'll wish that you did. Abe latched the suitcase. The bus comes in an hour, so you'll have to be quick. Firuze stood under the Timanu tree and called Zahra's name, twice, then three times. Zahra emerged, looking rumpled and badly unslept. Hey, you. What did I tell you? We're leaving, Firuze said. Back to Kabul? No, Melbourne, in Australia. Isn't that lucky? When do you go? Today, in an hour. Less, actually, I should go back. Hang on. Zahra vanished into her tent, then returned, her arms full. Okay, hold out your skirt. She dropped bags of crisps and popcorn into Firuze's skirt, stuffed chocolates in her pockets, wedged colas under her arms. As a finishing touch, she tucked a cigarette behind Firuze's ear. That's for your father. Khalazara, this is too much. This is a time to celebrate, and I doubt you have anything to celebrate with. Besides, you called me Khale, and you came to say goodbye. She lit a cigarette of her own and clamped it tight between her teeth. Don't let them break you or turn you hard. This world is a harsh place and not made for you. Halazara, you're crying. Don't be silly. I don't cry. Will you be okay? 
always am. Go back before you miss the bus. And don't you drop those. They boarded their flight at Nauru's tiny airport. Although the plane was all but empty, they sat as close together as they could. Ate held Noor's hand. Abe Firuze's. Firuze's heart beat as loud as a rabbit's. At any moment, an officer might come by to tell them, So sorry, Mr. Daizengi, there's been a mistake. Where in the world did you get these, Firuze? A friend. I thought you didn't have friends. I guess I was wrong, Firuze said. She unwrapped a bar of Turkish delight and held each bite in her mouth for a minute. The chocolate coated her tongue and teeth. The jelly dissolved. The plane taxied away from the gate. Suddenly, Firuze was compressed into her seat. Her teeth began to throb and ache. Outside the round window, Nauru shrank to a spot. Beginnings and endings sank like stones through the mind. Several hours later, they fell out of the blue and shining sky, down and down into autumn and Melbourne and a blood-thickening cold. Part Two Chapter One In Melbourne, you could find anything you wanted, if you had the money and knew where to look. On the weekends, when Ate had to meet with a caseworker, the entire family took the train into town. From their crane-littered suburb, it was a short ride. Firuze stood and swayed, staring as gray eucalyptus, mica towers, and concrete flats rushed by. Flinders Street Station, glazed gold on the inside, echoed like an enormous shell. Metal trams screeched and clanged in the street. Traffic signals clicked and flittered. Walk, walk, wait. Steam curled and coiled in alleyways. Graffiti glistened and glowed on walls. Every time they passed the State Library Victoria, Ate pointed to the statue in front. It's Rostam slaying the dragon, and Rachesh with him. How did these Australians know? Abe kept a tight grip on Noor's slight shoulder. Otherwise, he hurled himself at every shop window, rainbowed with candy, fussing until Ate scooped him up or he was permitted a cheek full of lollies. Disgraceful, Abe sighed. You weren't like this when we lived in Kabul. What happened, Noor? Noor shrugged and chewed. Firuze would sooner have died of shame than mash her face into shop windows like Noor. Her teachers wrote notes about her polite shyness that Abe and Ate could not translate. What does this say? Ate asked, holding one up. It says I am the best possible daughter, that my homework is without equal in my class, and that you should thank God for blessing our family with me. Ate snorted. Very funny. What does it really say? That I'm polite and very quiet. Even funnier. You? Can't help it, she said. I was raised that way. But the Firuze, who slapped one palm on her desk and shot the other hand high into the air, 
the Firuze, fizzing with answers and fishing for praise, had been left in a locked-up empty house on a dusty street in a past Kabul. The other students twittered and chirped, words flickering and flashing too quickly to catch. Firuze laughed slowly and laughed last, under impatient, silent stares, on the rare occasions when she grasped the joke. She never found herself on the right page of the book, much less the right paragraph, and she blushed and sank low when her teachers called her name. It did not matter which class she sat in. Maths, English, or science, it was all the same. She was unprepared, ignorant, behind. Morning recess was her only reprieve. The whole primary school spilled into the yard where chalk faces and game squares whitened the asphalt. Gaggles of children, nor among them, shouted, What time is it, Mr. Wolf? Then scattered with shrieks. Nor never had trouble-making friends. Firuze, meanwhile, stood in a shady corner and watched, wishing she were young enough to join in. It was nevertheless a relief to be briefly invisible and not pinned like an insect by the teacher's finger. This lasted six weeks, give or take. Then a Greek girl from math's class, Mia, walked up to Firuze and stuck out a hand. Two other girls trailed her, one pimpled, one peeved. Gulilai here says you're a Q-jumper. Is that true? Did you come here in a boat? What was that like? Mia swung her head and her rhinestone earrings flashed. Could you shower? Did it stink? Did anyone drown? This is Gulalai, the sugar-spotted girl said, patting the third girl's shoulder. In case you wanted to punch her. I'm Shireen. Gulalai's gullible, so please excuse her. I'm not. She repeats whatever's blabbed on TV. Welcome to Australia, I guess. You people, Gulalai said, didn't wait your turn. Your visas should have gone to my uncle and aunt. Her face was flushed. Gul, Dad calls the immigration minister a right bastard. A lot of what he says isn't true. That's a poly for you, Mia said with a shrug. Shireen said, so we figured... I figured you didn't have any friends. Mia said, beaming, we decided to let you join us for now. Gulalai said, I didn't. Shut up, Gulalai. Mia said, you don't have to listen to her. Firuze said, actually, I have a friend. Where is she? Shireen said, spinning to scan the schoolyard. No, not here. Her family's gone to a city called Perth. Mia said, that's so far west, you fall off the continent. Shireen said, she doesn't count. Kulalai said, squinting, I think you're lying. I think she doesn't exist. In the mazy April sunlight, it was possible to believe her. Nauru was thousands of miles away. Nothing left of it but a pebble in Firuze's pocket. Perhaps even now, Nasima sat on a throne of foam and counted herds of sea serpents and cuttlefish. The memory of Firuze washed blank and smooth, like writing on intertidal sand. Perhaps Firuze had moved into a simpler world, 
where dead girls stayed dead and living girls played, innocent of mortar, rifle, and mine. Shireen said, we all know about your imaginary friend's ghoul. Tell Fruze, Mia said. It's Fruze, right? That's what Mrs. Pierce calls you. Or not simpler, but different. Gulalai said, I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, Ghoul, come on. You used to tell us all about them. How you'd talk for hours while bullets zapped your house. They'd hide with you and say when to get up, when to stay down. Then they'd tell you stories. Gulalai's face had grown blotchy and dark. I didn't, Shireen. I never said that. Stop. Can't take what you dish, Mia said, clicking her tongue. Don't cry now. You wouldn't feel so bad if you weren't such a cunt to Fruze here. It's not fair, Gulalai said. Five minutes and you've gone and ruined everything. Just like a cue jumper. Boat trash. Bitch. Firuze said in Dari, I spit on your mother. Shireen laughed and clapped her hands. Gulalai said, you watch your back. I don't have to, Firuze said. I have friends. That's what you think. You'll see. Some friends. Gulalai spun around and swept inside. Mia said, now what was that about? Our Firuze has guts. That's good. We need guts. Guts and brains. Shireen said, Kululai can be fun, but she's two sandwiches short of a picnic. You seem much sharper than her. Are you, Firuze? Yes, Firuze said. Would have said the same if the given quality had been reptilian, feckless, or weak. Yes to anything. She'd be all of these. Already the weeks of her lonely watch were dimming in her memory. Already new courage flowed molten in her veins. She could climb mountains now, crush automobiles. For a moment, she wondered if Gulalai's unseen friends were drowned, burned, shot, had names, if they, like Nasima, had once lived and breathed. And then the bell rang, and the thought was lost to her. Chapter 2 Every day, Ate searched for work. He rode buses on routes that spiraled farther and farther from home, watching for garages. When he spotted a likely prospect through the window, he pulled the cord and got off at the next stop. If the owners were Afghan or Iranian, he was invited in for a cup of tea. By and by, the ordinary, courteous questions always looped around to his visa status. Ah, TPV. Now that is hard. We already have all the men we need. Someone will want you, I'm sure of it. When the owners were white, there was no tea, which was a blessing on his poor abused bladder, he said. Their questions, too, were different. Do you have your own tools? Do you speak English, mate? English, you speak? Sorry, you seem like a good bloke, but we can't use you here. And at each place, Ate would nod his thanks and leave, desperately wishing to use the bathroom, but too embarrassed to ask. He slipped into fast food joints instead, 
He drank, he told Abe, whole oceans of tea. But no job, she said. But no job. In the evening, after dinner was cleared off from the flowered plastic dastarhan, Abe and Ate had Firuze sit and review her language homework with them. At these times, Noor smartly disappeared. Her materials were deadly dull. The girl, Anna, had a blue face. No one knew why. She might be a dead girl, Firuze suggested. Her teacher had raised her eyebrows at this. The lizard was named English. And that, too, went unexplained. We go through Teres. Through, Ate. No, through is I through Tibol. That's throw. Yes, yes, Abe said. Anna go throw Teres to a street. Firuze mangled her pencil with her teeth. In Kabul, Ate knew the names of everyone and everything. Which streets were safest each day and why? how many pine cigarettes each checkpoint required, and who to call when a bomb went off. Abe knew the shifting prices of tomatoes, eggs, flour, salt, and vinegar, as if she smelled them in the morning on the wind, and how to sting village dogs on the snout with stones and climb over old walls in heavy skirts. Here, they expected Firuze to teach them letters. The world had bruised and gone soft, and now impossible things teemed and wormed out of it. Here were monsters, the most monstrous being daily life. I can't do this, Firuze said. I know it's hard, Jenam, but we need you to. Can't you watch TV? We have to buy a TV first. Ate said, you're our daughter. We have nobody else. Abe said, I could tell you a story afterward. I don't want, Firuze said, your dumb old stories. You keep forgetting the middle parts. It's true, Abe said. There are white holes in parts of my stories. I don't know what happened to my mind. Ate said, I don't know what happened to this girl. Did she used to speak to her parents like that? The pencil wood was mealy upon her tongue. The graphite tip had its own smooth taste, like metal and ink and unwritten things. I can't teach you. I'm not good enough. Or maybe you're unteachable. I want to be normal, Ateo Abe. Normal girls don't teach their parents English. Normal girls go to the shopping center or movies. Abe said, we're not normal anything, Firuze. Not yet. We should be. I want to be. Ate said, it's no use talking to her. Aren't you ashamed, Firuze, acting like this at your age? All right, Firuze said, her face and chest aflame. Let's try again. Where should Anna go to find English? Throw Therese to a street. Wrong, she said. Wrong, wrong, and wrong. In her restless hands, the pencil snapped. The breeze block flat assigned to them was cold and reeked of paint, and the cheap carpet scuffed the soles of their feet. But it was theirs for now, 
theirs and theirs alone. Firouze was queen of half a room, whose small high window overlooked a hedge. Black and white magpies sometimes sang songs outside that were different from the songs of magpies in Kabul. The other half of the room was Noor's. Two mattresses occupied most of the floor. Firouze had just unslung her bag when the doorbell shrilled its acid note. Ate was on a bus somewhere, hunting for work in the city suburbs, and Noor had gone to the park with his soccer-mad friends. Abe, caught in the middle of her ceaseless scrubbing, rolled down her sleeves and dried her hands. Firouze climbed onto the kitchen counter and craned her neck to peer outside. The window was small and badly placed. She saw an edge of brown sleeve and a puff of pale hair. The door groaned as Abe opened it. Hello, Mrs. Dezengi. Yes, hello, how are you? I'm Sister Margaret. I phoned last Tuesday. Ah, yes, come in. From St. Kilda Sanctuary. You're a new placement, so we thought we'd check in. What a beautiful girl. Her tiny gold crucifix spun on its chain. What's your name, Possum? Firouze, her coat. The brown coat was heavy and dusted with white hairs. The satin lining smelled of wet dog and lavender. Firouze draped it over the back of a folding chair, then caught chair and coat as they toppled over. I'm sorry I couldn't come earlier. We had a couple of court cases, a medical crisis. The sister wore a teal cardigan and loafers with tassels. Her pastry-colored hair had gone halfway to gray. She turned a watch around and around her wrist. It's lovely to meet you anyway. Oh, thank you. This smells wonderful. Is that cardamom? Opening her leather bag, she withdrew a sheaf of papers. Abe winced. Has anyone walked you through Centerlink entitlements? Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. Yes, okay, Abe arranged the remnants of a package of biscuits on a flowered plate. Please, for you, this is... Thank you, that's very kind of you. Firouze watched the stranger eat one of the last four biscuits left in the flat. She sucked her teeth, mouth sour with longing. The sister's fingers pricked points in the air, describing this and that implausible thing— Food banks, job assistants, meal programs, advocates. Another biscuit disappeared. Quick, Firouze, more tea, Abe said. We can't let her think she's in a sloppy home. Firouze took the 50-cent thermos and mug and refilled the kettle on the range. When the water was ready, she fetched tea, cardamom pods, sugar, looked twice at the sugar, then shook something else into her palm tipped it into the mug, and stirred it thoroughly. One biscuit was left when she returned with both the sister's steaming mug and the full thermos of tea. Thank you, Possum. I was telling your mother about after-school lessons for you and about some of the volunteer English tutors I know. She worried the watch in its silver circle around her dry and bony wrist. Steam furled from her tea. Wouldn't that be splendid, though? A tutor coming to teach your parents. 
She says you've been doing a tremendous job, but I'll bet you're exhausted. How old are you? Ten. Sister Margaret lifted the mug and sipped. A strange expression came over her face. All okay? Abe said, tuned like a foil-wrapped antenna to the slightest static in her mehman's mood. Firuze's heart skipped a wild beat. I could have sworn... Sister Margaret's eyes fixed on Firuze, suddenly sharp. Her sparse brows twitched. Excuse me, Mrs. Daisenki. I get foggy sometimes. All these memories, you know. Sometimes one floats up and I float away. Now what was I saying? Ah, yes, English tutors. The level of tea in the mug held steady. The last chocolate biscuit remained on the plate. At last, Sister Margaret stood, straightened her papers, and tucked them away. Thank you for having me. Please, dinner. Soon my husband is coming. Maybe another afternoon. I have some other visits to make. It was lovely to meet you, Mrs. Desengi. Bahar. Then call me Margaret. Good to meet you, Miss Firuze. Abe stirred in protest. No, leave that... I must insist. Sister Margaret emptied the mug of tea down the drain, then set the mug in the sink. At a glance from Abe, Firuze shot forward to collect their guest's shoes and wrestle the dog-haired coat off the chair it hung on. Then the sister was gone. The last chocolate biscuit vanished into Firuze's mouth, followed by the crumbs and a smear of chocolate left on the plate. Abe poured herself a cup of tea. What a generous woman. It helps to know there are people like that. But did you see the hair all over her coat? On that moment when she was drinking her tea, surely she's not that old. Surely her mind's sound. Firuze, her mouth full, did not disagree. Then a thoughtful look came over Abe's face. She went to the sink ran her finger around the inside of the mug, and put that fingertip into her mouth. Startled frogs did not leap faster into streams. Firuze made it most of the way to her bedroom, her hand reaching for the doorknob, before her mother's slipper ricocheted off her head. Some time and some while passed, the days alike, the nights unpredictable, there were nights she slept deeply, remembering nothing. But other nights, after Firuze closed her eyes to the dimness of the room, as her legs, tingling, turned to lead, and a purer darkness descended upon her sight. Glass, glass, broken glass, the high-pointed teeth of the Hindu Kush, all glass. Shining. Khalil. Blood. Heat. Humidity. Teeth. Gnashing teeth. Teeth made of glass. Teeth stained with blood. Hands pouring blood. Trying to catch. She was running, forever running her breath glassy and shattered and sharp in her throat. She had been running for ages and had to... 
No, she could not stop. Behind her leapt a gray thing, all glass teeth and hunger, the skin of dead people slipping loose from their skulls. The streets were full of, the roads were paved with. She stepped on loose skins, slimy and wriggling with rot. The faces stared at her, the mouths opened, wordless. She did not know them. No, she did. Khalil, Nasima, Mansoor, a cousin, an aunt. She slipped. The glass teeth closed on her. Chapter 3 Between the four of them, they had one mobile, which went wherever Ate went. The flat also had an old white phone. Ate's voice crackled out of its handset, irate. It's dark out. Can't you wait? It's winter, Abe said. There's not enough time to do everything before the sun goes down. Besides, this is Australia. We've survived wars. We survived Nauru. How dangerous can one shopping trip be? We need Esfand and teacups. They have everything, this store. That's what I've heard. I'll take Firuze and Noor. We'll be back before dinner. Firuze said, Abe, I don't want to go. Me neither, Noor said. I need your help to carry things. Sometimes you have to give your mother a hand. If your classmates' parents saw me struggling to carry bags of good things home to you, what would they think? Naturally, there was no answer to that. The trip was precisely as long and boring as Firuze expected. Some hours later, she, Noor, and Abe clanked and clanged to the bus stop, weighed down on all sides with purchases, from velvety rose-patterned blankets to pitchers and plates. It was cold, the shelter of little effect. Firuze shivered, her bags rustling. The neighborhood was an unfamiliar one, the street lamps few and far apart, and the gum trees cast unwelcoming shadows. Let me see, Abe said, rifling a paper timetable. Firuze, come here, help me figure out what time. A pink-faced man walked up to the stop. It says the bus will be here in 15 minutes, Firuze flapped the timetable shut. That's a long time, Abe. It's freezing. I'm cold. The man glowered at Abe. Burst capillaries cobwebbed his nose and cheeks. When Firuze looked up, he crossed his arms. Abe felt for the sides of her scarf, smoothing it down over her neat hair. Then she gripped their hands so tightly that their fingers purpled. Though Firuze's eyes watered from the pain, Neither she nor Noor made the slightest sound. Abe met the man's gaze. A minute passed. He spat a horking, viscous sound. The wad of mucus darkened the footpath, barely missing Abe's shoe. Bunch of terrorists. Abe's gaze never wavered, but her arms were steel as she pushed Firuze and Noor behind her. They knocked against each other. 
bag crashed against bag. Abe's lay unattended at her feet, handles drooping. No one else was on the street. Knight gathered a breath and held it in. The man said, Go home. We don't want you here. We go home. That's right. Go back to your godforsaken country, Arabs. Tell heads, all of you. Dog piss, that's what you are. Get out. Cars passed in perfect indifference. The pink man's meaty hands closed into fists. He took a step toward them. Noor whimpered. Abe tensed. Firuze's fingers felt nearly wrung off. Then the headlights of the 901 blazed through the darkness. As the bus squeaked and steamed to a stop, Abe heaved them aboard. Firuze barked her shin on a step as she climbed on. The bags were hopelessly jumbled. She and Noor tumbled them into empty seats. On the top step, Abe swiped her card and turned. Australia is home, Abe said. Fuck yourself with a rock, Firuze said. The bus driver said, are you coming, sir? The man stared at them. No, he said at last. No, not tonight. The bus doors shut. The 901 lurched on. Abe dragged Noor's feet off the seat, leaned against their teetering pile of bags, and put her face into her hands. Firuze looked out the bus window into the night. The man stood at the curb, staring after them, but he and the bus shelter soon shrank out of sight. I should have been there. I wished you were. This is what happens when you go outside after dark. Shireen laughed, and Mia gasped at Firuze's story over lunch. Bloody beautiful Australia, Shireen said. All the hoons, bastards, arseholes, and cunts you could want. I can't believe, Mia said. Shireen said, yes, you can. She had bent the tines of her plastic fork this way and that until they broke, and now she squeezed her handful of tiny spines. It happened to Gulalai's mom, too. Besides, Firuze doesn't seem crazy to me. Does Firuze seem crazy to you? Firuze did not touch the white pebble she kept in her pocket. Nia pouched a bite of green apple in her cheek and gave Firuze a once-over. No, she said, extending the vowels. She crunched her apple and gulped. But Gulalai? Oh, who cares about Gulalai? Chapter 4 It's a church, Ate said, gazing at the small brick building. They had taken two buses to reach the address that Sister Margaret provided them over the phone. Your new friend sent us to a church. Abe said, the sister said to go around the back. Will there be boys? Noor asked. Firuze said, no one knows elbow hats. It's hat full of elbows, idiot, and you can't be one. You can only be uglier than. An alley led around the back, past parked cars, to a basement door. There was a compact kitchen inside and a cork notice board pinned with enormous letters, Richmond Refugee Community Center, and a dozen adults on couches and folding chairs, including two in university hoodies. They glanced up at the creaking door.
Shit, Nor said quietly. Nor shut up. Ate said, hello. Hi, I'm Claire from Manash University. Can I show you around? Indeed she could. Meanwhile, your kids, Mrs. Sorisho. A woman with tiny gold flowers in her ears found trays of watercolors, brushes, paper, and a cup. You can paint with me if you want, she said. She wetted her own brush and swept out a red flower with six petals in a single stroke. Nor chewed his lip, then accepted brush and sheet, and scraped at the disk of hard black paint. Firuze dipped her brush in the paper cup and painted colorless peaks and snow. From one corner to the other, she spotted and sprinkled water. Here zigzags, there cliffs. The paper puckered. I'm done, Nor said, holding his painting up. His paper was wet and completely black at the center. At the edges, violence. Shearing slashes, spatters, single brush strokes like razor gashes. Mrs. Sorisho slid her glasses down from her hair. Yes, yes, she said. That's it exactly. Can I go now? Of course. Look in the other room. I think you will see something you like. He slipped off the couch and padded away. Now what did you paint there? Peterze said, glass. Hmm. Yes, I see. How else to paint glass? Firuze had used the same cup of water as Noor. The water had blackened from his brush, and smoke and ash swirled from his painting into hers. Broken windows in a riot, she thought. Or a mirror, streaked. Mrs. Sorisho said, Is your family new? I've not seen you here before. We only arrived four months ago. Welcome. Welcome. Mrs. Sorisho filled her own page with flowers. What you were saying to Noor, that's my brother, yes? Is there something in his painting? It's all black. With slow, careful motions, Mrs. Sorisho rinsed her brush, dried it on a napkin, and laid it down. A thin furrow dug into her brow. We left our three children in Iraq. Why? We thought it would be safer. It seems we were wrong. But what does that have to do with the painting? I think you will like this picture better. Here, have some flowers. It's yours if you want. Mrs. Sorisho had painted a walled flower garden, a rainbow above, feverish colors below. Firuze held the soft, damp paper on her palms. It's nice. Thank you. But I still don't... Dinner's ready, Sister Margaret said. She had entered unnoticed with three covered dishes. Claire was stirring a pot on the stove. Noor ran in. Firuze, foosball! I was going to beat Mo, but they called us for dinner. The young man behind him said, I was about to beat you. They all converged upon the long laminate table. Firuze wound up seated between Abe and a tall, quiet man named Samuel. Ladling lentils onto her plate, he said, 
Eat up if you want to grow strong like me. He had played tuba in the army band. The band played for President Isaias of Werki. Processionals when he walked in. Recessionals when he walked out. Anything the president liked for eight long years. You were in the army? Eritrean men have to serve for a year and a half. You said eight years. The president's maths was a little different from the arithmetic of common men. This is Mo, Nor was saying, from Somalia. You're not half bad, Mo said to him. How did you get to Australia, Firuze said. The whole band came. They told us the night before our flight. Otherwise, people deserted in droves. I hugged my wife goodbye. She was pregnant and bigger around than me. When we got here, they locked us inside a hotel. How did you get out? A political demonstration. Some Australians heard that we were here. They marched outside with painted sheets. We didn't talk about it. No one talked about it. But in the middle of the night, we snuggled our instruments in our beds so it seemed we were sleeping and jumped out of the windows. It must have hurt. The protesters were waiting for us. They stretched out their banners and we landed in them. Twelve of us made it. Then lights snapped on inside the hotel. The protesters put us in their cars and argued about us, what to do and where to go. The next day, they brought us to an immigration office, and we filed for asylum. Now here I am. And your wife? Still in Eritrea, along with my son. I've never seen him. Along the table, one word rose up. Someday. Someday, our children. Here, someday. Firuze, Nor said, you have to watch. I'm going to beat Mo in two of three games. Mo said, you can referee. Noor could barely see over the edge of the foosball table, but he twirled the black handles furiously. The ping pong ball clattered from row to row, then dropped into Noor's goal. I'll win the next two. We'll see, Mo said. Here's the ball, Firuze. This time you drop it in. Last time it was you. Mo said, so, I'm just saying. Firuze held the white ball over the center line. The rods of plastic figurines twitched. She let go. The ball bounced, and their first kicks flew wild. Bit by bit, tap and stop, Mo took possession of the ball. Noor made wet spit noises and effortful grunts, running back and forth to slam and block. Light as air, the ball darted into Noor's goal. Mo laughed and shook Noor's hand. Play again? You said three. Noor pouted. No, I'm better at soccer. Soccer then, someday. Mo was taller than Ate. Firuze stifled a laugh. Abe came to the doorway. We're going now. On the bus, Abe said, What a wonderful painting, Omid. Didn't you promise me a garden once? Yes, it's pretty. That's nice, Firuze. Noor said, But... Firuze tweaked his ear. Did Noor paint one? Firuze said, He was busy. 
I was thinking we could plant a garden in the yard. Ate said, I don't know. There are rules about it. But a garden, Omid. Someday. That man we met, Ali Reza, he seems like a decent man. His cousin owns a garage. He'll ask about a job for me. Noor said, I would have won if I dropped the ball, but you mucked it up. Did not. Did too. Abe said, that would be very kind. We'll have to ask him over. Ali Reza and his wife. Firuze said, make Mantu, please. No, Ash, Noor said, a lot of it. Mantu, Ash. We'll make both, Abe said, if Ali Reza finds Ate a job. Chapter 5 by August, when frost glittered gray on lawns, Ate was working in Ali Reza's cousin's Richmond garage. There was never extra money, and after Abe saw their first electricity bill, the space heater Sister Margaret had found for them stayed on for only one hour each day. But there was enough. Gradually, the steam of Abe's meals laid down warm layers throughout the flat. Each oil-hissing or white-billowing pan turned a fraction more of here to home. Then one day at school, in the gossiping interval between bells, when the surf of students crashed against hallways and bubblers, rolling in every direction toward their next classrooms, Shireen slapped a card into Fiduze's hand. Birthday party, she said. You better come. I'll ask. The fuchsia paper was thick and smooth. Firuze rubbed her thumb over the foil letters. Know what we'll have? Ice cream cake, fairy bread, Tim Tams, Goshifil, Abidandan, Pavlova, Lamingtons. My parents promised. The sugar high will last for days. No wonder your name is Shireen. Very funny. Original. I've only heard that from my dad, oh... Fifty times. So you're coming, right? Oh, oops, sorry. Your parents, I forgot. I hope they'll let you out of detention for some fun. Abe, wiping her fingers and taking up the card, said, Absolutely not. You didn't even look at it. I don't have to. We don't know her parents, what kind of people they are. All we're doing is eating biscuits and cake. That's what a birthday party is. Oh, friend, what is better, sugar or the one who created it? Mom! Abe dropped the card on the counter and stirred the pot of rice. Firuze, what would people think? So that was that. In the long and colorless days between the invitation and Shirin's rainbow sprinkle party, it seemed that no girl in year five could think, talk, or dream about anything else. What are you wearing? Purple velvet dress, silver belt, a scarf. Hands traced neckline and necklace over the school's white and blue. Bringing as a gift, six bottles of nail polish, strawberry lip gloss, or passion fruit, unless I buy both. This beaded bag I saw at the mall. Here she comes. Hi, Shireen. We weren't talking about your, shh, be quiet. 
queenly, round-faced, and supremely content, Shirin glided past muffled giggles of conspiracy. The whole school was in on it. Even Gulalai. What about you, Firuze? Yeah, what will you wear? But why not? Shirin had said in surprise. Your marks are fine. I mean, not great, but... Sorry, I peeked over your shoulder once. Are they very traditional, your parents? Oh, well, maybe next year. And Shirin whirled away. There was a hole in Firuze's chest where she had been scooped out with a silver spoon. The hole was shaped like ice cream and lamingtons. Overnight, she had been severed from the communal life of the school, exiled, banished, disenfranchised. For wherever two or more girls gathered, the party was there also. Twenty times a day, Firuze bit her knuckles to keep the tears in, until they were swollen, red, and bruised. Oh, Mia said, Firuze's here. We should talk about something different. We should, Shirin said. But do you think I should wear the green dress or the orange one? None of them truly meant to be cruel. Not Abe, not Mia, and not Shirin. And that only made it doubly unfair. At night, Firuze punched her pillow and muttered until Noor threw his at her and said, Go to sleep! The day of Shirin's party, Firuze's nerves sparked and snapped. Every class, one girl or another, was reprimanded for loud whispering or passing notes scribbled in pink glitter pen. Please, Gulalai, Mr. Early said. Why can't you be more like Firuze here? Gulalai gawked, then laughed until her eyes sparkled with tears. The last bell was a mercy. Goodbye, Shunin sang on the school steps. Goodbye, I'll see you all soon, in an hour, remember? It was a long and windy walk home from school. Noor skipped alongside Firuze, noisy as a cockatoo. He said, Jake fell out of a tree and broke his leg. That's nice, Noor. Which means he can't play sevens now, which means they need a substitute. Which means, Noor, I don't care. Be quiet. Ate, Noor said over dinner. I have to, please. Or they'll ask Aaron and he runs like a goat. How much does it cost? The league is $7. Only $7? Every week. And the shirt is $20. And I need soccer boots. In Parwan, Ate said, we played soccer barefoot. Yes, Ate, but... And without $20 shirts. $20. You could live for a year on that. But Ate, this is Australia. Ask your mother if we can afford it. Maman, Madarjan, Mom Darling, Abe, Mom Darling, Firuze echoed, smirking. That's a lot of money, Noor. I don't know. I'll do all my homework and prayers for a week without you asking, I promise. Ate said, nor should be playing with other boys, running around. It's good for him. You should hear my brother Hassan's little ones. They never stop. Abe said, last I checked, running and playing were free. Noor said, it's only five weeks. 
I can ask my boss for a loan. It's not that much. I'll pay him back. Noor, can you borrow your friend Jake's shirt? He's huge. It's like a dress on me. You wear that dress, Ate said, and you can play in this league. While washing up, Firuze broke a plate in the sink. Go on, Abe said. Break more plates. Why else do I bother buying them? Firuze burst into hot and furious tears. Abe sighed. What a reaction. Just go. Firuze slunk into her room, plopped onto her mattress, and stared at the darkness in the high window. Somewhere, girls were licking frosting off their glossy pink lips, admiring their sequined and ruffled finery, and laughing together until their sides hurt. Once there was, and once there wasn't, a girl who couldn't go to a party. As a result, she turned invisible. That sounds like a drippy girl story, Noor said. Go away if you want. You don't have to listen. Noor dropped his school bag and laid his head in his hands. Whenever she talked, people looked around, but they didn't see her. So they stopped looking and listening. People tripped on her. It was hard for her to stay out of their way. But she could wag school whenever she wanted to. Take candy from a milk bar without getting caught. Eat hot pies without paying. And sneak into cinemas. Okay, so she was happy. Except for the loneliness. Who needs friends when you have all that? She had friends, but they stopped seeing her, like everyone else. She tried to write, but they couldn't or wouldn't see. Friends do that, Noor said. Her family worried until she said, I'm right here. Then they stopped worrying and forgot she was there. Talk about modesty. Even her own family never saw her hair. Every now and then, her mother said, please do the dishes. If she wanted to, she did. And if she didn't want to, well, that was too bad. I didn't hear you, she could say. I wasn't nearby. The girl decided to get a job. I could work for you, she told the police, or I could work for a thief. The commissioner said, the job is yours. She worked when she wanted to and solved many cases because no criminals could tell if she was listening. Then one day she met an invisible man. I knew it, Noor said. They got married, the end. But he was a thief. She was guarding the most precious vault in a bank when she saw the locks trying to turn themselves. No, you don't, she said. He jumped in fear, but she didn't see that. She chased him and almost caught him many times, but it's hard to catch an invisible thief. Finally, she did, and they locked him up and threw a big party for her because she was old and famous by then. They hit the stick with the drum and the drum with the stick, and they gave the criminals raw food, and the constables cooked, and I didn't get one nibble from the bottom of the pot. Okay, Nor said grudgingly. That wasn't too bad. If you wag school, though, can I come with? Of course not, donkey. I'll tell Abe if you don't take me. When did I ever say I would skip class? In your story. Forget it. Remember, I'll tell. How are you still such a pain in the ass? Practice, 
Noor said with a giant grin. Lugging her school bag and lagging behind Noor, Firuze glared vinegar and sour milk at the rust-freckled car parked in front of their flat. Visitors meant salams and doruds to everyone, no eating until the guests were done, and a mountain of dishes to wash before dinner. But there were no strangers taking tea in the flat. That car? Abe glanced out distractedly. It was the color of eggplant and equally ugly. Ate bought it. He what? Abe was filling a bucket at the sink, a tall mop leaning against her side. Someone came by the garage with that thing. It was so old and broken it wasn't worth fixing. Your father bought it on the spot. Abe set the bucket down and attacked the kitchen floor with the rag end of the mop. Piruze danced backwards to avoid the suds. Where's Ate? Nor said. He went back to work, drove that wreck here on his lunch break. A colleague came with him to drive him back. I've seen worse, Firuze offered. Yeah, in Afghanistan. Wow, helpful. Do your homework, Noor. Why don't you do yours? Don't have any. Me neither. How lucky you are, Abe said. In that case, Firuze, you can finish this floor. And Noor, I have maths, he yelped, flinging himself down on the rug. Grumbling, Firuze took the mop and swabbed the kitchen's brown-printed vinyl tiles. Abe plunged her arms up to her elbows in the dish-filled sink. Yeah, Feruze, what will we do with this car? Take it out back and shoot it, Feruze said, her voice too low for Abe to hear. Your father says he needs it for his job. Three buses and one and a half hours is too much. That car is too much, Noor opined from the floor. He says we can go shopping in it at night. It's safer. But look at that thing. We'll break our necks. We'll lose control and crash into a tree. And how do we find money for repairs? Wet plates and glasses squeaked in Abe's hands. Dishwater slopped over the sides of the sink. Extending the mop, Firuze wiped the floor on either side of her mother's feet. Am I a magician to magic money out of thin air? No, Abe. Noor and Firuze chorused. We can't afford that car. Six hundred dollars and a failing transmission. Am I being unreasonable? No, Abe. Not at all, Firuze said. Besides, when people see him driving that thing, what will they think? A pause at the sink as tiny soap bubbles ascended and popped. Ay, my daughter is mocking me. Noor said, Firuze mocks everyone. I don't. He can't drive me to school. My friends would laugh. I'd die, she said. You won't die, Abe said. This is not Kabul. You will ride in that car and be grateful, or else. But you just said. Padarnalat, this is your father we're talking about. Show some respect. Hang on, Noor said. It's not fair, Firuze said. Good, you're done with the floor. You can mop the bathroom now, if you're sure you don't have any homework. I have homework, Firuze muttered. I thought you might.
Chapter 6 Grace Nguyen shut the car door and gazed, perplexed, at the tower of plastic containers in the passenger seat. The names had escaped her. Osh something, pillow. But the rich smells saturated her car. The woman she was tutoring had insisted. She had sized up Grace's beer and ramen frame and made a beeline for the fridge, issuing directions as she went. Her kids plied Grace with tea, almonds, and raisins. The husband, Omid, had watched in silence while Bahar Dazangi packed meal after meal. Grace blushed at all the fuss. She had signed up for the program because it was the right thing to do, no matter how the politicians ranted, and because the experience would look good on her resume. She had not needed the flyers on the Tampa and Civex handed to her by unwashed socialists who showed up after talks. She had thoroughly educated herself. But what she had not expected was immediately becoming the object of her client's charity. Mrs. Dezangi's cooking would last her a week. Humming along to the radio, Grace drove through the soft dark of early spring back to her flat. She shared the place with two other students, Hannah and Olivia, and Kylie, an aromatic Malbio postdoc. Hannah and Olivia were ensconced on the couch per usual, textbooks on their knees, the TV on. As Grace staggered in with her armful of food and kicked off her boots, two noses rose inquiringly. What's that? Hannah said. You get Indian? Nah, Olivia said. She was out giving refugees a fair go. Then where's the food from? My students, Grace said, setting the containers down. As one unit, her roommates abandoned the couch to hover over the kitchen counter. Some students, Hannah said. Sign me up for that. Need a hand, Olivia said. I'm all right. I mean, maybe they want to poison you. You never know with refugees. I could try a bit, and if I don't die, you know it's safe. Olivia. Okay, okay, but what if their kitchen is unhygienic? You wouldn't know until you're doubled up and chundering into the loo. Hannah said, I'll trade you a sixer of Carlton. Done. Grab a plate. Olivia made puppy eyes at Grace. What about me? Take over dish duty for the rest of the week. You're a monster, Gracie. Really, you are. Was yesterday's date that terrible? Grace tumbled a forkful of rice, rich with sultanas and meat, out of its container and into a bowl. Oh, fine. I'm on dishes. Now pass that over. Each of them put a bite of osh or polo in her mouth. After a while, Hannah said, I'll sign up as a tutor tomorrow. You can't. Our last training sesh finished last week. There won't be another until the spring. Who knows, Olivia said. We might run out of refugees by then. Grace said, or we might find a heart, wake up, and end this Pacific final solution. Oh, no, don't you start. Hannah said, what are they like, your students? Grace thought. There was plenty she could say. Their address was not in the worst neighborhood, though the rust bucket out front did them no favors. 
There was no table in their flat, only pillows, rugs, and those plush red blankets favored by aunties of a prior generation. The children were exquisitely polite, quiet and invisible when they weren't helping out. It boggled the mind. At their age, Grace had picked fights at school and come home with split lips, shiners, and the long brown hair of one opponent scrunched up in her fist. Omid Dazengi had merely nodded when Grace stuck out her hand to him. Bahar had enveloped her in a hug. Your face, she had said, like my face. You are Afghan? Vietnamese, Grace said, smiling. Here are the books we'll use. Normal, Grace said, but different. That's very detailed, Grace. I don't know what I'm supposed to say. Maybe tutors have confidentiality agreements, Olivia said, like counselors, like Catholic priests. Hannah said, Olivia, don't be so blonde. They live in a pretty ordinary place. No shoes in the house, like civilized people. Hmm, said Olivia. How's their English? It'll get better. My parents didn't know English when they came. Now their daughter can swear the parrot off a sailor's shoulder. That's the Australian dream, isn't it? A door opened elsewhere in the flat. Someone shuffled down the hall. I don't believe it, Hannah said. We're going to have a Kylie sighting. The bleary-eyed postdoc put her head around the corner. What is that mysterious, magnificent smell? Grace's students made her takeaway. Grace said, aren't you supposed to be in the lab? It's a 12-hour experiment. I'll bike in at midnight to turn off the cameras. So, a nap. At 8 p.m.? We've all made poor life decisions. What are you filming? Olivia said. Zebrafish blastulas? I'm sorry I asked. Grace said, come, try some of this. Kylie licked a sauced spoon, then piled up a plate. Did I hear Hannah say your students cooked this? Hannah said, some refugees and dandy. Grace is tutoring EAL. Refugees can afford to give away food? Grace flushed. I don't know. It happened so fast. One minute we were talking articles, a, the. Those don't exist in Persian, did you know? Weird, Olivia said. The next thing I know, I have all this food in my hands, and I'm outside, and she's saying goodnight. Mrs. Dezangi, I mean. A likely story, Kylie said. You're right, though. I shouldn't be taking from them. This won't happen again. Boo, Olivia said. Hannah said, but what if they're insistent and forceful and stuff? Then I'll be insistent and forceful back. Really, Kylie said, if you think about it, we should be cooking food for them. The four women in the kitchen thought about it. Nah, Hannah said. No time, Kylie said. Olivia said, you all say my cooking's inedible. My hands are full with tutoring, Grace said. Besides, I didn't ask about allergies. Here, Olivia, the washing up is yours. You've exploited a starving uni student. I hope you're proud. Prouder than a rooting wallaby. Ah, Hannah said. Some brain bleach, please? Hey, I didn't say a wallaby rooting a roo. 
Now you did. Pass the dish soap, Livy. Two gulps, and I'll be in a better place. You mean a blonder place? No, that's bleach, Kylie said. Olivia, give me the detergent. I'll lock it up until Hannah's urges pass. Wallabies, Hannah groaned. You're a wicked woman, Nguyen. Excuse me, who tutored refugees today? And whose ass was on the sofa watching Australian Idol? We get it, we get it, Olivia said, slapping Grace's palm. Here's your halo. Get out of here. Wait, you went out with Peter yesterday, Hannah said. We haven't squeezed you for details yet. Ooh, Peter. Time to get back to the lab, Kylie said. There's still three and a half hours to midnight, Grace said. The lab's quiet, Kylie said, casting her eyes upward. Unlike here. Take me with you. Oh, no, you don't, Olivia said. You're not getting out of this. Hannah said, did he take you to Nando's? Did you walk on St. Kilda Beach? Olivia said, he has freckles. You into that? Bye, Kylie called. The door shut. A bicycle bell jingled. Olivia racked the last of the plastic containers, wiped her wet hands on the front of her jeans, then pulled a drawer open and fished out a torch. She swung the beam across Grace's eyes. Is Peter Winkler a charming bloke or a wanker? You have 30 seconds. Olivia? Grace closed her eyes against the light. Hannah said, should I tie her up? Is Peter into ropes and things? There is a roll of twine in that drawer, right? Olivia, Hannah, this isn't funny. Nah, this is hilarious. Put the torch down. Jeez, Grace. Hannah said, Grace, chill out. Calm down. Fuck off, all of you. Grace grabbed the torch, tossed it back into the drawer, and slammed the drawer with enough force to rattle the dishes. Sorry. I said, fuck off. She elbowed through them. The door to her room shut with a satisfying crash. Behind her, she could hear Olivia saying, What was that about? Grace took a deep breath and went to her desk, touched the photos of her family. Mom, Dad, their chubby boxer, a galaxy of relatives. Here and there, an uncle or aunt who'd gone missing. Taken for questioning, her ma told Grace. Tied to a chair, torches shining in their eyes. Then her ma's face emptied, and she wouldn't say anything more. Thanks, Grace said to the photos, for taking the boats, for fighting, for lying, for not getting way, for living, for dying, for working 13 and 14-hour days in a milk bar in Footscray before moving to the hills, for the long-distance phone calls and occasional awkward visits, when Grace was suddenly the rich and pampered relative, her skin unmarked, her scars unseen. Thanks seemed utterly insufficient. Shingamun, she added. But that wasn't right either. Her family gazed out at her from their red frames. A debt was a debt was a debt unpaid. She would call her parents in the morning before class, ask again fruitlessly about the blanked-out years. When you hit me, 
What were you afraid of? When you screamed at me, your face red, your mind far away, what did you see? What happened to you, Ma and Ba, in the unspoken time? What happened to me? Chapter 7 After her first visit, their English tutor had argued Abe down to a single container. As she left their tenth session with a covered bowl of stew, Ate said, his forehead all ravines, Bahar, you can't keep doing this. But she's so skinny. And your own children? Are they well fed? What about your husband who works all day? She's a guest, Omid, and our teacher. Where's your gratitude? Where's my gratitude? Where's our money, you mean? Lama's not cheap. Tomatoes in winter? And soccer fees, Firuze said, finishing a problem in long division. The league's over, Noor said. She butters you up, that's what she does, going on and on about the flavor in your kebabs. How, what was the word, silky your cream sauces are. Shameless, doesn't she have a mother of her own? If she does, that woman's not feeding her right. She'll never get married at this rate. Maybe the Vietnamese like their wives to be thin. If she likes my cooking, Omid, is that such a problem? Do you know what our children say to me? Can't I have sandwiches instead? Or can I have two dollars to buy a meat pie? That was Noor, Firuze said. Leave me out of this. They don't know what good food is. Grace knows. I know when she walks out of here, half the meat in the fridge walks out with her. That was once. If you're so set on having a pet, I'll buy you some bird seed. I want a pet, Noor said. I want a kangaroo. Firuze said, did anyone ever ask me if I wanted a brother? We can keep it in the backyard, but then it might kick down our clothes. Because the answer is no, but nobody asked. The sheets, at least. The rest are too high. Fiduze said, what are you babbling about, Noor? The clothes hoist. Do you think Aru could get at it? I think Aru kicked out your brains. Listen, Abe said. I open and deal with all the bills. Firuze said, you mean, ya Firuze, come translate this. Yes, thank you, Firuze, you do a good job. This was true, even if Firuze rolled her eyes every time Abe asked. She read the words aloud. 30 days overdue. Penalties assessed. Outstanding balance. $34.56. $52.20. The disasters were subtle but heaped up like snow. A form filled out incorrectly or sent with too few stamps. An overdraft. A parking ticket. A rent check that strayed into the glove compartment. An overflowing garbage bin and the crows that gathered and croaked for weeks after the rubbish was hauled away. Abe spent hours on the phone with their landlord, bank, and utilities, stretching her English vocabulary until it snapped, then continuing in Dari to the discomposure of the other person on the line. As Abe paced and parlayed, winding the phone cord around her finger, Firuze waited in an agony of expectation for the inevitable, Firuze, explain for me. Sometimes, Ajima Jilataraji, the fee disappeared. The owed sum diminished. 
An extension was granted or a payment plan arranged, and Abe hung up the phone triumphant. See? See what? Firuze would say. What your Abe can do with nothing at all. Then why are you so wasteful? Ate said. I work all day. What do you do? Cook for ungrateful people. You watch TV. Clean up the dirt that you track in. You spend my money. I watch our children. You give their food to strangers. What do you want me to do, Omid? I want us to survive. That's what I want. Tomorrow we'll start looking for a job for you. These offices downtown, they need to be cleaned. I'll ask around. You want me to work? Who will watch Firuze and Noor? I will. Those offices are cleaned at night. By this point, Firuze had read a single sentence in her history book at least 20 times. The letters peeled off the page and danced like insects in front of her eyes. In some ways, they were poorer in Australia than in Kabul, even though Ate earned more as an assistant mechanic than he ever had owning his own repair shop. Here, money evaporated or was nibbled and pecked to nothing by impersonal automatic rules. One day late, a fee. The wrong address, a fee. Here, people were reluctant to wait for payment. In Kabul, no one had very much, but there were neighbors and relations to beg for favors or a handful of rice. There were periodic hawala transfers from Iran. Omid, I could ask my parents. During the war, I would have done anything. Anything for bread for you and the children. Never again. So you took her money and hated her. I heard the things she said to you. Your cousin in Tehran with steady construction work? Don't you wish you had married him instead? While I cried and kissed feet to turn the rifle away. To come home alive. To come home to you. That's the way mothers are. If I asked, this is Australia. All your father's tumans, how much are they worth here? Nothing. They're worth spit. Don't be angry, Noor said. Ate, I can work. All right, Abe said. I'll go find a job. Now I know what your sweet words and promises are worth. Less than one tuman. Less than my spit. She wrung out a dishcloth and flapped it dry, then strode into the bedroom and shut the door. Your mother, Ate said, spreading out his hands. Can we eat now, Firuze said. Noor said, is Abe not eating dinner? Yes, you can. No, she's not. Firuze paid strict attention to her plate. The food in her mouth was gravel and dust. The rice was somehow hard and dry. The qorma watery on the tongue. Anger. Strong as asafetida, perfused the food's flavor. Deadened the tongue, sulfured every molecule of air. Noor chewed with a similarly suffering expression. Ate, Noor said after their plates were empty, aren't you going to eat? Maybe later. I'm not hungry now. Long after both Firuze and Noor were in bed, they could hear Ate's footsteps traversing the length of the flat all the way to the front door, a pivot, then back. For a minute, he stood silent before his own bedroom door. 
shifting from foot to foot, waiting. But that door did not open, so back he went, back and forth and back and forth, until their eyes shut and they slept. Weeks of phone calls and inquiries later, Abe started leaving dinner on the stove before taking a bus to a cluster of office buildings off Prince's Highway. It's not too bad, Abe told Firuze, as Firuze dabbed Vaseline on her cracked knuckles. You're bleeding. My skin is dry, that's all. They have gloves, but the cleaning fluid still gets in, and sometimes I tear holes in them. Anyway, there are other women there, so I'm not alone. Rajani, for example, she's very, very... An eloquent hesitation. Firuze said, I know someone like that. At school? I want to hear, but the time... Ate came in, tossing down his keys. Bahar, I heard bad news at work. Tell me later, I'm going to miss my bus. Ate turned to watch her go, his eyebrows tenting together. Bahar, we have bills to pay, she said. Goodbye. The fly screen slapped shut. Winter leaked into the room. Sighing, Ate closed and locked the door. Firuze, Noor. Yes, Ate, the two of them said together. Are you doing your homework? Yes, Ate. Good. Do you want a story? Firuze said, no. Noor said, yes. I'm too old for stories, Firuze said. Well, one day among days, the Mullah Nasruddin paraded his donkey through the market. He has fleas, he said, and bad breath and a temper. He snores and kicks, someone said. How much are you asking for him? Oh, no, the mullah said. He's not for sale. I wanted you to see what I have to deal with. Ate, Noor said. You told us that a week ago, and the week before that. Did I? Yes, Firuze said. And the week before that. She shuffled her papers together and went into her room. Spring was breaking, leaf by bud. Galas and crested cockatoos loud in their finery. In the high window of the room, a gray light lingered. Nasima sat on Firuze's bed. Shove over, Firuze said, setting her books down. Oh, no. This is wet. You made everything wet. Firuze, aren't you happy to see me? Things are different, Nasima. I have friends again. We have a home. I heard you screaming in your dreams, so I walked to you across the sea. Everyone has nightmares. Coral cut my feet. Whales swallowed me. But fine, this isn't a nightmare. You don't need me. Nasima gestured at the blank white walls. You think the story is over. Everyone feasts and goes home. Happily ever after. Job, car, and flat. She unwound a twig of coral from her shining black hair and stuck it in her mouth. It isn't real, Firuze. It's a big, pretty dream. A painted balloon in a razor-wire world. It feels real. Dreams always do from the inside. Tell me what's real. This mattress is real. 
This carpet is real. Wrong. They're not real. I'm real. Khalil's real. Where's Khalil? Did you forget about Khalil? Do you only remember when you close your eyes? He was in Baxter. Maybe they let him out. Yeah, and maybe they gave him a sports car and two baskets of roses. Mia's real. Shireen's real. Am I real, Firuze? Tell me. Say that I'm real. No. Tell me. The doorknob turned and Noor came in. He sniffed the air. Were you crying in here? Do I look like it? No, your eyes turn red and fat, but he patted the blanket where Nasima had been. This is wet, so you must have been crying, even if your eyes don't look like it. I'm sorry Abe and Ate are so mad. At least they're not angry with me, or you. Noor sat down. I hate it. It feels like I'm stuck in bitumen and can't run away. And something's panting and snuffling and waiting to eat me. Firuze, do you get bad dreams? Maybe. I don't always remember. Why? The sky outside had darkened to ink. Somewhere, Abe polished a toilet, working the wringer of a mop bucket, vacuumed a floor. I always have this dream. Someone's hurt. He's calling. He's alone and afraid, but I can't see him. That's awful. If I run really fast and do all the drills, it tires me out, and then I don't dream. But the next league doesn't start until spring. Running helps, Firuze said, curious. Yeah, you should run around sometime, instead of whispering in a corner with all those girls. You mean Mia and Shireen. I mean, come play handball with us. I'll beat you. Everyone will laugh. That's why I can't, Firuze said. Chapter 8 It was summer, nearly Christmas, which meant barbecues. The Richmond Refugee Community Center held theirs in a park. This once, at Sister Margaret's insistence, Abe drove the car while Ate sat in the passenger seat. Bright yellow L-stickers were pasted to the car's front and back. Despite Ate's complaints, she didn't so much as graze a curb, although she drove so slowly the cars around them honked. The air was fragrant with Abe's lamb kebabs, scorched hot dogs, and sausages splitting with oil. Firuze and Noor ate kebabs, folded in bread, palau, and more kebabs, and drank cola and cordials until they felt sleepy and sick. But the moment Mo produced a soccer ball, Noor sprang to his feet, gluttony forgotten, and skipped and gambled after him. While no one was paying attention, Firuze clambered into a tree and lay down on a branch. The leaves shook and shone. The sky was bright. She might have fallen asleep right there, rocked by the wind, but as her eyelids began to flutter, Ate and another man stopped under the tree. Not renewing TPVs. Have you heard anything? Ali Reza shrugged, palms up. Stories. Mostly single men. The government's saying Afghanistan's safe. You can go home now. 
You know that old lie. They wouldn't deport a family. Who knows except God? I tried to tell my wife she wouldn't listen. How long until your renewal date? Two years. Two years? Two years is forever. Anything might happen in that time. Listen, Omid, don't worry about it. Get another plate. Eat and enjoy the day. Firuze cradled her head in her hands and contemplated the breadth and length of forever. A fleece-white cloud blew over the sun, and the whole day dimmed. Brief, passing, soon gone. Chapter 9 Precisely when life began to feel manageable, even routine, Firuze moved to secondary school. Everything was instantly ten times harder. Over the summer, Mia, Shirin, and Gulalai had transformed into otherworldly creatures. They walked differently, blooming into hips, held themselves differently, throwing their shoulders back, spoke of the boys they derided a year ago with sudden gleams of avarice, and laughed high, brittle, glassy laughs. Firuze observed all of this in bafflement. She had missed something critical some class, rite, or spell. That one over there, Mia said, pointing. Liam. Their biology teacher had brought their class to the aquarium, and now the students trickled between the tanks, clutching blank dichotomous keys. Shireen said, He's not that cute. You have terrible taste. Firuze, what about you? Liam might as well have been transparent. He stood in front of a Pacific octopus, whose arms coiled and uncoiled against the glass. I like the octopus. Mia said, Oh, Firuze, what are we going to do with you? Have you ever worn lipstick? Shirin demanded. Your own, not your mum's. I bet she hasn't. Have you? No. Shirin said, Mia? A tragedy! Firuze, makeup is the unalienable right of every blotchy teenage girl. I'm 12. Mia said, it's okay. That's not your fault. Point is, you're horribly overdue. Femininely challenged. Educationally delayed. Can't blame your parents either, Shanine said. They don't know better. Lucky you've got us. We'll fix this. I mean... Would this parrotfish look as good as it does without makeup? Firuze squinted. Yes? No, it would not. Observe the bold choice of eyeshadow palette. Plus that orange lip gloss. Without those? Psh, dead. Dead? Fish swim in schools, Firuze. Uh, what? Wear makeup in school or you don't survive. It's what my older sister says. A law of physics, like gravity. Shirin said, Get some lippy on her and she'll understand the point of boys. Mia said, She might or she might not, but she'll be less embarrassing. Then that's the plan. Don't I get a vote? Don't be ridiculous, Shirin said. Anemones fluttered their shy, pale locks. The cilia of a jellyfish drifted by. 
Seeing her face darkly in the aquarium glass, Peter Zay imagined her lips an anemone red, her eyelids dusted with parrotfish blue, rich and strange like Nesima. A seawater change to a body better suited for the crushing abyss that was secondary school. Mouth like nightmares, eyes lamped with hunger. She studied herself so closely she could almost discern the ridges of bone beneath the skin of her face. Then the bone stood clear. She turned left and saw Shirin's skull, turned right and saw Mia's. On the ground, a bright toy detonated. All their skin flew off, pulped like newspaper in rain. So much red, red to daub the mouth with. A pressurized, pulsing, undersea silence. Then her ears filled with screams. Earth to Firuze, hello, are you there? Firuze blinked. The anemones waved. I said, Mia continued, her voice aggrieved. We'll have you looking like a bombshell in no time flat. That's right, Shannon said, you space cadet. I hope you're nearly done, Ms. Brown sang. Two more minutes and then it's time to hand in your work. Shit, crap. The girls plastered their dichotomous keys against the glass of the tank, pencils reeling. Firuze stared at the forest of blanks on her sheet. 8A, a damp voice whispered to her. Sea dragons. 8B, seahorses. Thanks, Nasima, Firuze said. Chapter 10 because the proper application of makeup, meaning full battle colors, required time, much more time than the early morning slick of camouflage designed to avoid teacher detection, it was determined that Firuze's remedial education would take place after the last bell in the second floor girls' toilet. And because there was no point in doing up their faces and not going anywhere, they would head to the cinema and watch a film afterwards. Mia and Shadeen shook hands on this arrangement without paying the slightest heed to Firuze's objections. The cinema's in the shopping center, Shadeen said, and it's just us three and Gulalai, no boys. Even your parents should be fine with that. But if they aren't, Mia said, don't tell them you're going. Gulalai's coming? Shadeen said, I'll ask her tomorrow. She looks more grown up these days, doesn't she? I'd kill for those moonstone studs she's wearing. I don't think she likes me, Firuze said. Does that matter? Mia said. Let's be real, Firuze. You're not exactly the most likable person. But we'll fix that, Mia said. Right, so next Thursday, second floor girls, after school. Got that? I'll bring everything I've got. Mia, you too. Mia said, don't forget money for the movie ticket. That afternoon, while her teacher attempted to demystify quadratic equations, Firuze wrote and directed her own movie script in her head. Interior, home, day. She'd have tidied up more than usual. The shoes in neat battalions, the floors swept without asking, the garbage emptied, her homework done. Firuze, Abe, can I go to the movies with my friends from school? 
Abe, wrinkling brow. Who'll be watching you? Piruze, Shirin's parents will be there. You met them at our parents' night. Abe, the Iranians? They seemed like proper people. How are you getting home in that case? Piruze, oh, her parents will drive us back. No, she rewrote the line, redid the shot. A car pulling up in front of her house was not in the budget for special effects. Fierze, we'll walk home together in a group. Abe, what is the movie about? Fierze, a girl growing up and fitting in. There aren't even boys in the movie, Abe. Anyway, I don't ask for much, not like Noor. So this once, please, Abe, can I go? Abe, hmm. Abe fusses, as a mother ought to, then says, Abe, it sounds harmless. Here's six dollars. You can go. Firuze rewound her imagination and watched the scene raptly again and again until Mr. Williams tapped on her desk. She jumped. Firuze, would you show us how to solve for X? Um, I can, Gulalai said, waving her arm. When Firuze threw her a grateful look, she glared. Go ahead, Gulalai. Gulalai took the marker and worked the problem on the board. A moonstone glimmered in each perfect ear. So X equals six. That's correct. Gloating, Gulalai sat down. I hope you paid attention that time, Firuze. I need your mind here, not in dreamland. Firuze nodded, her face a hot crimson. Okay. The bell rang. They all rose, stacking notebooks together. You're stupid as hammers, Gulalai said as they reached the classroom door. I don't know why Mia and Shirin picked you. Because I have guts and brains, Firuze said. Guts? Brains? As if. That's what they said. They'll say anything to get what they want. I've seen your marks. And you flinch when Mr. Williams calls on you. But why they want you? Shirin's going to ask you to a movie, Firuze said. What, they're tired of you already? No, I'm going too. If this is a trick, I'm not falling for it. It's not. Gulalai sniffed. We'll see, Q-Jumper. Now that they no longer attended the same school... Noor usually got home before Firuze. She had not accounted for this in her strategy. By the time Firuze set down her school bag, Noor was buzzing around Abe like a wasp after jam, pausing only for bites from a banana. It's only a couple of dollars, he said. Twenty cents per, please. Where would you even get these sweets? Carmelo koalas. They're in Woolworth's mum. Or any milk bar. It's only fair. Charlie's parents got the team pizza last week. You let Charlie's parents pay for you? Her knife smacked through an onion, dripping outrage. Relax, Mom, it's what you do on a team. Then I will take you off that team. No son of mine. It's actually the polite thing to do here, Mom. Treating everyone when it's your turn. And why can't you speak, Dari? You'll never learn English if you don't practice. Come on, madame. Abe John. Lotfan, a dollar forty cents. 
We have that right. We're not so poor that I can't buy seven lollies, are we? Abe rinsed her hands, scowling, and reached for her purse. She counted out a scatter of coins, the last few of which had to be hunted for in crevices and corners, tidied them into a column, then caught Noor's wrist as he reached for them. He squirmed. This once. Right, ma'am, he wiggled his fingers. Do not let anyone pay for you again. Course not. Thanks, ma'am. He scooped the coins up and fled. Abe turned to Firuze, shoulders slumping. Don't tell me you're asking for money, too. I... You know how things are. Noor doesn't understand. We barely have enough for rent this month. It's that fucking car. Firuze swallowed. I don't want any money. Good. I'm glad to have such a good daughter. Abe resumed her stance at the cutting board. A line of heart-red tomatoes fell bleeding into slices. I don't know what I'll tell your father about that money when he asks. Firuze sat down, unzipped her school bag, and worked on her algebra problems in silence. I saw that, Nasima said. Nora gets everything. I heard what Gulalai said at school. But you're good, isn't that right? A good daughter. Nasima was sitting on top of the television, salt water trailing from her heels in two lines down the glass. Oh, don't ignore me, Firuze. I'm trying to help. You didn't have nightmares last night, did you? That's because of me. X squared minus 7x plus 20 equals 8. Firuze concentrated on the formula so intently that her pencil lead furrowed the page and snapped. She pushed the pencil into a sharpener. No, I didn't have any nightmares last night. That's good, Abe said as tomatoes crackled in the pan, oblivious to the dead girl atop the TV. That's because I tore them to pieces with my teeth. Do you know how to fight a nightmare? Do you even know how a nightmare's made? No. You put bits of stories together to make a home or a family. Some you're given, and some you make by living. A nightmare is when the ugliest, most ferocious pieces clump together and go hunting for other stories to eat. Firuze said, you can't fight a story. You can. Break a nightmare into its little bits of story and, bam, no more nightmare. So, you're living in a nightmare. You should take it apart. You're nuts. Be nice to me, Firuze, or I'll let the nightmares eat you. She hopped down from the television with a squelch and leaned over Firuze's shoulder, dripping onto the page. Go away. X equals four and three, Nasima said. I always was excellent at maths. Ate, Firuze said. I need six dollars. Ate was watching an Afghan channel on TV. The pale light flickered over his face. You should have asked Abbe. I forgot. She was so busy today. What do you need the money for? Poster board, glue, scissors. We're doing a group project, a history presentation. 
Did you know about the Afghan cameliers, Ate? Afghans were here 150 years ago, before trains, before cranes, or prime ministers. That's interesting. Let me see. He opened his wallet and shook out three $2 coins and a scattering of change. And I have to stay late at school on Thursday to prepare. Tell your Abe tomorrow. I will, Ate. Thanks. Thursday after school, the girls' toilet glittered with Shirin's and Mia's mirth. They brushed shimmering colors onto their eyelids and brow bones and rose-pink balms onto their chapped lips. Vinyl pouches on the sink bulged with powder cakes, eyeliner, foundation. Gulalai uncapped a black tube and sleeked her mouth with lipstick in one elegant stroke then crossed her arms and leaned against the wall. You're so slow, Gulalai said. Mia said, not everyone is as good at this as you. One of Shirin's eyelids glimmered rich purple, the other deep blue. Here, Firuze, she said, let's do you. You don't have to. It's no problem at all. Hold still. Gulalai said, mascara, seriously? Pirusei's going to give you a sty. Don't be mean, Gulalai. Mia, pass me the blush. Gold eyeshadow, Shireen? Nah, darker. Copper and brown, don't you think? Hmm, yeah. Gulalai said, you look hideous. No, don't open your eyes. I've got to... There. Pirusei blinked. The face in the mirror was not quite hers, not quite Abe's. There was a touch or a trace or a thought in it of an old photograph of a maternal aunt who was either dead now or in Iran. The face in the mirror was sophisticated, pretty, even though the fluorescent lights were unkind. Mia said, we're geniuses, Shireen. I know. Are we going to hurry up? Gulalai said with a yawn. Or are we going to miss the start of the film? They skipped down the steps. Liam was waiting at the bottom. Oh, hi, Mia said, linking arms with him, her smile as wide as melon slices. Not too bad, he said. You girls clean up good. Firuze focused on the footpath, counting the freckles of chewing gum. The afternoon light exposed her lie. Each car on the road was a mirrored threat. She prayed for luck. For Noor to have gone straight home from school. For Abe not to be out. When they reached the anonymous muddle of the shopping center, she exhaled in relief. Students chattered over fried chicken, blotting their mouths. Some sucked helium from balloons with giggles and squeaks. A salesgirl sprayed perfume on a slip of paper and held it out to them. Firuze rubbed the paper idly between finger and thumb. It smelled of wealth and carelessness. They walked past whirring plastic planes and wire cages of soccer balls that would have driven Noor wild. Past light-up shoes and mannequins and fresh shirts and dresses, fabrics whispering desire. Past bubbling infants in polka dot strollers who sucked on their fingers and knew nothing but want. At the cinema, they paid for student tickets, then sank into plush, popcorn-scented seats. 
Shidin said, I'm happy you could come. Me too, Firuze said, glad for the theater's gloom. I bet her parents don't know, Gulalai said. I bet you didn't tell them. Shut up, Gulalai, Shinin said. She looks scared. I said shut up. Down the row, Mia laced her fingers through Liam's. She sipped the tall cup of cola he had bought through his straw. Shameless, Gulalai hissed into Firuze's ear. And that bossy Shinin. None of them care about you, you know. Nasima, soaking a seat one row behind them, silver white in the light from the screen, leaned forward and murmured, You could end this. All you have to do is say, Do your parents hate you, Gulalai? Do they want you at all? Is that why you're so hateful? Or do you drink poison for breakfast? Snake poison, yum. That reminds me, like Shirin said, Shut up. I wish you'd go back to Afghanistan. Biruze clamped a hand over her mouth. The three girls stared at her, eyes wide, breaths sucked up into their collarbones. Liam, oblivious, continued watching the previews playing on the screen. That was a funny one, he said. They make better movies every year. Yes, Mia managed. A soft shining began in Gulalai's eyes. They filled like moons, then overflowed. The movie began. Nasima said, That's all unraveled. Well done. I didn't mean to. Oh, no. You did. Girl was telling a story of her own. One where you jumped a queue, swam to Australia, killed her aunt, stole her friends. I didn't, Firuze whispered. Do any of that? No. But that's her story, and you sliced it apart with a fistful of broken glass. I saw. Where did you get that? A dream? It doesn't matter. You cut her kite. She has no story now. Gulalai sniffed fast and hard, then breathed slow with the wet noises of somebody stifling sobs. The movie unrolled on screen, indifferent to its audience. Once upon a time, a girl went to a school where no one was kind and no one cared. She kissed people she didn't like and lied to her parents and eventually she ran away. Firuze tasted sickly sweet guilt on her lips. Let me see, Shirin said. The movie was over. She and Firuze had huddled in the ladies to sponge their faces with paper towels and mineral oil. Shirin pursed her lips, licked a finger, and rubbed at one corner of Firuze's eye. There, she said, all gone. Gulalai had bolted long before the credits rolled. Mia had departed arm in arm with Liam, giving an airy farewell without looking back. Firuze said, no one will know. Gulalai's not going to tell. She's completely humiliated. Besides, she deserved it. And Mia won't remember anyone but Liam. Did you see her face? That leaves me. I'm not a gossip. Are you? I meant this, Firuze said, her hand circling her face. Nah, I did a great job putting it on and an even better job taking it off. Shirin's face crinkled with mischief. How do you feel? Do you like boys now? 
I still prefer fish. Firuze let herself in quietly, the key slinking pin by pin into the lock. Ate would be glued to the television. Noor would be dawdling over his homework or else emptying the fridge. Abe was at work. As she eased the door open, the hinge groaned as usual. Tonight, the sound was infernally loud. Firuze slipped inside. Abe sat in the living room. The TV was dark. Ate leaned against it, head bowed. Noor was nowhere to be seen. Firuze, Abe said, her voice so mild that the wall clock's snick, snick nearly drowned it out. Where have you been? At school, working on, we had a project. As if Firuze had not spoken, Abe said, I went shopping today to buy lamb and rice to feed you. At the grocery store, I ran into that Iranian madar from parents' night. How is your daughter, Firuze? she said. My Shirin talks about her all the time. I said, I am grateful my daughter has such a kind friend. That project they're working on after school today, Firuze cannot stop talking about. Ate did not raise his head. A fine, stinging sweat formed on Firuze's palms. And do you know what she says to me? She stares as if I have grown snake heads and says, What project? The girls are going to the cinema. So, Firuze, I ask you one last time. Firuze could not meet her mother's gaze. Tell me where you got the money, Firuze. I called and asked. A movie ticket is eight dollars. Did you steal? Or did you... How could you... How could a daughter of mine let Shirin pay for it? I gave her six dollars. Ate ran his finger along the top of the television. She said she was buying school supplies. School supplies? Do you know how your Ate and I work the flesh off our fingers for you? For you to lie, to disobey, to disrespect us, to sneak around to take the money we need for bills, to squander, to waste. You do not know the value of life, Ate said, or the worth of what we gave up for you. And what's this? Abe said. She seized Firuze's wrist and sniffed her hand. Perfume? Where did you get perfume? Did you spend money on that too? And your eyes! You lined your eyes! Were you with boys? Of course you were with boys. Here's the proof. Here's my nose, and here are my eyes. Do you have no care for what people say? There weren't any boys, Firuze said, her lips numb. But you are a liar, Ate said. So why should we believe you? A lying, greedy, deceitful child. Can I go now, Firuze said. Go ahead, straight to hellfire and the pit. May the grave crush you. Did you forget that paradise lies at the feet of mothers? My feet, right here. Her slipper punctuated the last few words. Ate added, Abe won't be paid tonight because of you. Abe said, From now on, you come directly home from school. You may not go anywhere else for any reason. 
No parties, no sports, no trips with friends. Okay, Firuze said, her stomach nodded. Can I go now? Your Ate gave up his business for you. Do you know what would have happened to you if we stayed? Do you know? That's enough, Ate said. She heard us. Go. Shaking, Firuze went into her room. There was a fort on Noor's bed, constructed with both of their pillows and his race car, Duna. His eyes gleamed at her from its depths. Done? All done, she said, sitting down on her bed. Where were you? The cinema. Did you see something good? I don't know. Probably not. Girls watch movies about kissing and stuff. Is that the only thing you did? Abe and Ate were very loud. Piruze said, I also caused six frog species to go extinct, bleached a kilometer of the Great Barrier Reef, and triggered an earthquake in New Zealand. Noor cocked his head. That's all? Forgot to mention, I also murdered the PM. Ooh, Firuze, that's very bad. Noor stuck one arm out of his fort and waggled his index finger at her. You can't go killing PMs. They'll stick another one in, and then we'll have to memorize an extra name. No wonder Abe was so upset. When my history marks come back, I'll blame you. Her lips twitched. Noor said, if you want to sleep. I do, she said. Both their heads swiveled toward the door. A battle raged on the other side. Noor said, I can do my homework in the bathroom. No worries, Firuze said. I can sleep with the lights on. You don't have to go anywhere. Thanks. But you've got to give my pillow back. Chapter 11 Mrs. Singh, or Mrs. Starr, she told her year six students when they giggled or howled in disbelief. It's a homophone in Cantonese. Took up position at the piano. A homo what? Came the perennial cry from the back of the classroom, followed by the annual sniggering. This year's clown was an Afghan boy with floppy hair that fell in his eyes and a smile as sweet as canned peaches on a plate. His family had TPVs, she had heard. He cracked so many jokes she would never have guessed. A homophone, she said to him, is one word that sounds like another, which is something you should have learned in English. Since you are in such a good mood today, Noor, would you warm us up? Sing us this scale. Her fingers marched across the keys. The tones lingered, then melted into air. She nodded encouragement at him. Noor's mouth pinched tight, all laughter gone. Noor, if you could please sing for us. The class is waiting. She played the scale for him again. He swallowed, swelled, spat out one note and then another that bore no relationship to the notes she had struck. He was tone deaf. With hundreds of students, she had not noticed. Thank you, she said. A good effort. Class, she walked them up the scale, step by wavering step, then back down. Mediant, supertonic, tonic. 
The boy's face remained flushed and furious. Today, Mrs. Singh said, then hesitated. She was supposed to teach harmony today, but every nerve in her body jangled and rang. Every chord she played would be dissonant. Instead, she opened the cabinets that contained percussion instruments donated or collected from op shops around town. Tambourines, guiros, maracas, cymbals, triangles, djembes, a snare drum, and sticks. Today, we're making music with these. A stampede, then a whirlwind of hands. A din and a rattling, a clatter and a clang. Noor staggered back with a djembe in his arms. Mrs. Singh clapped her hands and the uproar subsided. If you don't have an instrument, you'll clap and stomp. She provided them with a heartbeat rhythm. Ta-ta-too, clap-clap-stomp. Now djembes, Mrs. Singh said, play this. Now tambourines, triangles this. For a moment, Mrs. Singh was as young as her students again. Squatting, she tapped a thimbled thumb on the floorboards of her father's shop. Pit-a-pat. The thimble beat time to the rhythmic ostinato of the sewing machine. Now slow, now fast. Waves of silk washed under the sewing machine's lip and emerged as jackets and butterfly gowns. The scissors, too, had their own scraping beat. Sometimes she sang, but not too loud so that her father was not distracted. When the scissors slipped or snagged and whole dollars of fabric fell ruined to the table, he swore and flung spools of thread at her. She blinked away the memory and stood once more under the classroom's fluorescent lights between familiar squared walls. Now sing something, she said. Or shout, if you like. Listen, I am teacher. My name is Mrs. Star. Now you. The student she pointed to blanched. I don't know what to do. Say whatever you want. Twenty plus forty is sixty, I think. Jake, what about you? Jake dropped Guiro and Scraper and cupped his hands over his mouth. Bits, 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 tch, tch, tch. Fantastic, she said. Your turn, Noor. Keep playing. Don't stop. My sister is afraid of her shadow and friends. Bacon and fried eggs and waffles and Milo. Ayakhanam setare mezlechara. Yes, egg. Stifled titters here and there. Poetic, Mrs. Singh said. Is that something from home? Obviously. Around the room they went. You'll come a waltzing, Matilda, with me. Como se llama si bonita? All right, she said. On my signal, triangles drop out. Ready? Now. Okay, tambourines. She stretched an invisible measuring tape between her hands again and again, and one at a time the instrument stilled. At last there were only feet and hands. Clap, clap, stomp. 
clap, clap, stomp. She called for the feet to stop, and for a moment there was only the simple living sound of one hand against the other, a thimble bouncing against the floor, a slap. Then, with a final gesture, she cut that off, too. The room crackled and prickled with the sudden quiet. They all held their breaths, even Noor, even Jake. Excellent, she said. Now we'll write down the patterns that we played. Her marker squeaked against the board. That was 4-4 four, four time, she said. Who can tell me what these numbers mean? Megan? Yes, very good. This is the rhythm we clapped and stomped. Name these notes for me, someone. Crochet, crochet, minim. Good, now show me. They named and counted their way through all the silty layers of rhythm their river had laid down. Then the bell rang. Class was over. Noor, Mrs. Singh said, would you stay a minute? Jake, ooh, and Noor flung him a look of scorn. When the classroom had cleared, he said, am I in trouble? No, I wanted to ask your advice. What Juma said, that was Persian, right? Maybe, Noor said, studying his shoes. I saw that you laughed. It was a dumb joke about me. She watched him. He won't get in trouble. I'll talk to him, Noor said, not meeting her eyes. Thumbs hooked together, hands straining apart. I'll tell him not to do that again. I would appreciate that. She nodded at Noor, dismissing him. Symbol by drum, she collected the instruments her students had left around the room. Mrs. Singh said, half to herself, That Juma, I must be getting old. Not if you're still noticing this stuff, Noor said from the door. A quick silver smile, and he was gone. He was a curious boy. So many of them were. There was perhaps no other school in the greater Melbourne area, perhaps no other school in Australia, that had so many children of war. Some shy, some loud, some laughing, some quiet, and every one of them on a hair trigger. Every one of them swallowing barrels and buckets of the wrath, frustration, grief, and shame that other year six students sipped in juice box amounts. Mrs. Singh was born decades after war swept through Hong Kong. Nevertheless, war had left deep handprints across her life. Her grandfather gasping himself awake. Her father scarred with secondhand terror, biting and snapping like a beaten dog. And now her classroom was full of children of a different war. She had a whole golden hour before her next class. Mrs. Singh took her syllabi and curriculum, both of which she would have to revise, rearranging later units of rhythm and genre and period to fit in a unit of harmony, and walked with whip-stitch steps to the teacher's lounge. They can't, Mrs. Pierce said. They can't do that. Mr. Early said, I'm afraid they already have. That's Canberra for you. Ms. Anderson said very quietly, I'm going to a protest Saturday if anyone would like to join. On the bright side, there'll be more time and resources to go around for the ones that are left. 
If it's not about educational policy, what the government does is none of our business. It affects our students. So does the flu. If I'm interrupting, Mrs. Singh said, I'd be happy to leave. Nah, Shelley, we're talking politics, Mr. Early shrugged. Which, well, we shouldn't be, but it appears that we are. It's this TPV business, Mrs. Pierce said. Did something happen? There's a year eight student at the high school. Maybe you taught her. Anyway, her family's visa renewals were denied. Dima took the father into custody, but they'll be deported together, is what I heard. Who was it? Mrs. Singh heard herself asking from afar, as if her voice belonged to someone else. The name that I heard was Gulaliza here. I had her in maths, Mr. Early said. Bright girl. Miss Anderson said, she always had a brave face on, but I thought there was a deep sadness there. She couldn't have known, though. The thing about TPVs, Mr. Early said, is that they're inherently destabilizing. Try to get a job with one of those. What's your five-year plan for working here? Uh, I can't say. I might be deported in three years. It's heartless, one of the others said. Heartless and evil. I'm ashamed of it. I don't think our government would do anything evil. Besides, isn't Afghanistan safer these days? With the Americans there and everything? Mr. Early said, I haven't heard much in the news lately. That's good, isn't it? I remember her, Mrs. Singh said, a face and voice finally coming to mind. Contralto, a timbre like warm milk and honey. Here's a flyer, Ms. Anderson said. The protest is Saturday. Mrs. Singh noted the date and time. I have a choir concert in the morning. Bring the choir. You can't be serious. She thought about it. I might. Mrs. Singh did not revise her syllabi that day. She had four more classes, then a rehearsal for the musical, and by the time she reached home, a headache throbbed at the back of her skull. Crochet, crochet, rest. Crochet, crochet, rest. Hurry up and sit down, her husband said. Dinner's getting cold, and I'm starving. She sat, wincing, and they ate in silence. After clearing half his plate of braised pork, eggplant, and tomatoes and eggs, he pushed back from the table. She will I, what's wrong? Nothing, she said, then grimaced. A headache. Kids acting up again? No, she rubbed her temples. I mean, they always do. It's just today. Here. He set up water glass and two tablets on the table. This is an awful world, she said. These kids, my kids, they deal with so much. She lifted a slice of eggplant to her mouth, paused, then put it back. Chen Ming, I want to stop trying. They must have been monsters today. It's not my current students. My former one. Her name was Gulalai. Crochet, crochet, rest. She clapped the tablets into her mouth and gulped the glass of water. Her husband stiffened. You're serious? I didn't know until today. I'm sorry. If it's the money, as if money could stop a bullet or a bayonet. Shulai, we live in Australia. That's right, she said. We live in Australia. I will not have a child here. Do you know what we're willing to do to children? What am I supposed to say? 
Do you want us to leave? No. But you don't want us to stay. I don't know. You were impossible in college, her husband said. You're impossible now. Having a child takes faith or optimism. I don't have much of either left. Anyway, she said, if we're talking about college, you couldn't cook. You called your mother long distance to ask how to boil eggs. That was $200. I should tell your colleagues that sometime. There's nothing to it, he said. It's chemistry. But beneath his lightness was an injury. She had wounded him, she saw, just as the day had wounded her. Thoughtlessly, irreparably, the way a crane dangling a steel girder might gash the beams around it. And she could not tend to that injury while her own was so raw. Thanks for cooking, she said. I'll do the dishes. Chen Ming took them anyway. I hope you'll feel different in the morning, he said. I won't. Then we'll both have decisions to make. I know. Whether we still need all this space, and whether I should take my choir kids on an excursion, it's a lot of paperwork. Of all the things you could be thinking about. Why not? It's the natural thing to do. If I want to be more involved, <laughs> listen to me, as if I could have any kind of effect on a machine this big, on a world this cold. Shulei, I don't understand you. Maybe not, she said, the headache returning. And maybe that's for the best. Crochet, crochet, with fermata. Rest. Chapter 12 That Gulalai had vanished from school became Firuze's private shame and joy. She did not think to inform either Ate or Abe, who in the best case would worry and in the worst would fight. Now that she was 13 and wise, she was aware of their terrible fragility, like a pair of gilt teacups on the edge of a shelf. She was careful not to overfill or unsettle them. Although Noor, who had achieved no such enlightenment, kept trying their tempers regularly. Firuze, of course, considered herself wholly responsible for Gulalai's disappearance. We need stories as much as bread and sleep. I took hers away, Nasima said. You gave her a chance to tell a better one. I wrote her out of existence. You and the federal government. I was the nightmare. Nasima allowed that this might have been true. So preoccupied was Firuze with Gulalai's fate that she did not grasp at first the abrupt rearrangement of their lives. The earliest indication was Ate's ancient car at the curb on a day when he would normally be at work. Firuze watched him through the kitchen window, where she stood washing dishes left from a guest. She rinsed and dried teacup after rose-painted teacup, and still Ate idled inside his car. Then, by degrees, he bent until his forehead was pressed against the steering wheel. Abe, Firuze said, Ate's home. Is he? Something false, like paint, in her mother's voice. He's sitting outside. Why doesn't he come in? Maybe he has to take a phone call. 
Firuze glanced at her father again. I don't think Ate is on his phone. Then maybe he's afraid of us. Have you done anything to frighten your father lately? No? He looks like a hero preparing to climb Mount Qaf, where the Paris and Jin wait to torment him. Abe, I'm too old for that kind of thing. Nor said, I'm not too old. Abe, tell me what happens next. The door opened and Ate came inside, cleared his throat, met Abe's gaze. Shh, Ate, Abe's in the middle of a story. They didn't, Abe said. Ate said, I'm sorry, Bahar. That's finished then. I think we should call Sister Margaret. Feeling slow and stupid, Firuze said, why? Because we need her. Nor said, Ate, why do we need her? That reminds me, Ate said. Don't you have soccer practice? That's tomorrow, but Jake and Aaron said they were taking a ball to the park. Abe said I couldn't go. If you're taking him, Abe said, go ahead. I'll drive you, Ate said to Noor. Noor beamed and ran for his soccer boots. Ate went to renew our visas, Firuze said, as soon as the door shut and locked behind him. Didn't he? Who taught you to be so perceptive? You'll only get in trouble seeing things like that. It's been three years, Firuze said. You've grown so much, Abe said. I didn't realize. There was always one thing or another. Bills, rent, fines. Abe lifted the phone, punched in a number, and wrapped the coiling cord around her finger and thumb. Did they not renew our visas, Abe? St. Kilda Sanctuary? Hello. Is Sister Margaret there? Abe, why aren't you answering? Sister Margaret, it's Bahar. How are you doing? I am so sorry to bother you, but Omid said I should call. Yes, my Omid. You sound surprised. We have a small problem today. You see the visa renewals? Well, yes, I am home. No, I called in sick tonight. Yes, that would be... Thank you. See you soon, Sister Margaret. Goodbye. Abe replaced the phone. She frowned at her fingers, which were snarled in the spiral cord. What are you standing there for? Abe said. Sister Margaret is coming and she'll need tea. Yes, Abe. Abe said, and don't be crying like that when the sister gets here. She blotted her own eyes with a corner of her scarf. You cry too much, you'll salt the tea. Shortly thereafter, Firuze was dispatched to the Lebanese bakery, where she bought a paper box of pastries dusted with pistachio. The whole way home, she swung it from her finger by its ribbon loop. Kurawangs scattered ahead of her. The gum trees were unraveling in strips. The starry leaves of liquidambars flamed scarlet and gold. Sister Margaret's loafers sat by the door to their flat. Inside, the sister said, I think they're bluffing. I hope so. Either way, we'll do our best. We waited, Abe said. We waited so long, and we worked. Look at my hands. You did everything. Now this, Abe sighed, twisting her hands together, then glanced up. 
Where have you been, Jenam? Bring those here, and a plate. Our Mahman doesn't have a plate. What should we do? Firuze said. We file an appeal, Sister Margaret said. Will that work? Abe said. We won't know without trying. Firuze, darling, can you write a letter? What kind of letter? About your family and why you came here. What detention was like. If I can, I'll get it to the PM. The sister put a piece of pastry into her mouth and wiped the honey from her thumb. Her crucifix had acquired a shadow of a tarnish, and a moth had nibbled two small holes on the back of her sweater, where she could not see. Okay, Firuze said. She flopped to the floor with a notebook and pencil. How should she begin? Dear Honorable Mr. President, Prime Minister, sir, please don't send us back to Afghanistan. We left because I wasn't safe. Tapping the pencil against her nose, she underlined, bit her lip, crossed out, scratched through. Dear motherfucker, dear man at the 901 stop, we have the number of a barrister in Canberra. You said wait. We waited. In Na'auru, where they put Abe in jail. Where Khalil. With pills and paper cups. With the rain coming in. There aren't any mirrors in the camp anymore. They took the glass out of every one. Because Khalil. Because Mansour. Mr. Nobody. Mr. Hassani. I had a friend. Her name was Zahra. I had a friend. Her name was Nasima. It's not fair to you, Sister Margaret said, not in the least. Is anything in life fair, Abe said, or does everything teach us to submit to God? Perhaps, but even so, we'll fight. You said stay, and Ate laughed, laughed like a warplane, like bombs bursting, and Abe danced. In our new home, on the first night, my mom danced like a girl, and we stayed. Now you say time's up. Go away. We don't want you. It's true that my brother can be a real shit. It's true that I'm not a good or obedient daughter, and my marks once made my mum throw her shoe at me. But... Noor burst through the door, mud splattered up to his knees. Baklava, he said delighted, and stretched out his hand. A finger's length from the plate, he noticed Abe's skewering glare, then their guest, sipping her tea, trying not to laugh. He backed up and bowed with elaborate courtesy. Shower, Abe said. Now. Ate entered, cheeks bright with cold. I was sorry to hear, Sister Margaret said. But nothing's finished yet. This is our home. You can't make us go. Chapter 13 After Sister Margaret exhausted their legal options, 30 days remained before deportation. The finals of Noor's soccer tournament were 42 days away. He reminded them at every opportunity. Abe opened the mail and made two piles, the mint-green rectangles of their plane tickets in one, the bills they would not have to pay in the other. When I block a goal shot, Ate, like this, you'll cheer for me, won't you? Of course, Jenam. Abe, Feruze, you'll be at the finals, won't you, if our team makes it? 
You have to be. Abe moved to the sink, rolled back her sleeves, and began scouring a pot with military efficiency. Suds flew, dishwater splashed, and Noor and Firuze backed away. All of us will be in Kabul, Firuze said. We can't go. My team needs me. Too bad. Ate said, you can play soccer with your cousins when we're back. Which cousins? Firuze said. Ate said, Amu Hassan's three boys. We'll stay with your Amu for as long as we need to until we find a new place. He'll meet us at the airport. We're staying in Amu's? What happened to our house? Ate made an unintelligible sound and stabbed a button on the remote. The clean pot rang against the counter. It's gone, Abe said. Don't ask anymore. What about the furniture? Firuze said. That we left with our neighbors. That's gone too. From everything to nothing, Nasima said. Again, what a story, your families. Over and over without an end. Firuze said, I don't like how the story is going. Ate said, that makes two of us. You can change it, Nasima said. If you want, if you're brave, if you remember how. Firuze said, there must be something we can do. There's always something. The hero has to win. Ate said, sometimes the hero dies. Ate, why are you sitting there? Why aren't you fighting? Why don't you try? Firuze John, I am very tired. He's afraid, Abe said without looking at them. Her fingers rubbed grease from their melamine plates. Your Ate has always been afraid. That's not true, Nor said, sticking out his lip. Firuze said, Ate's a hero. He spears lions and dragons through and through. He'll trick the evil div, Dimia. He'll cut off its head. Enough, Ate said quietly. Your mother's right. Firuze pressed on. She would tell this story the way it should be told. You'll ride your spotted horse, the car, I mean, up to Dimia's office, and you'll swing the truth at them like a sword. Can't you see how Afghanistan really is? We can't go back. We'll all be killed. And the truth will stab them straight through the heart. You'll take the letter I wrote to the prime minister. Yes, Abe said. About that letter. And make him read it. He'll say, I never knew. You're free to stay. Australia needs a hero like yourself. Firuze, the world doesn't work that way. Abe said, Sister Margaret read your letter to me. It was full of bad language and disrespect. She said she couldn't send the PM something like that. I ripped it up and threw it away. Why did you think you could write like that? What would people think if they saw? At least I tried, Firuze said. That's more than you can say. With the faintest of smiles, Ate said, I knew we named you well. Hard as stone, hungry for victory. So who sneezed and screwed up in naming you? Noor said, I'm playing in that soccer game. I'll run away if I have to. Abe said, you're not going anywhere. I am. You'll say, where's Noor? And look for me, but it'll be too late. Firuze said, as if we'd even care. Ate said, Bahar, how are these my children? 
Is this what you've raised them to be? I? Yes, you're their mother, aren't you? Some mother you are. Who said to his wife, go out and work? Who said, I will watch the children at night? Your children. I made them. I kept them safe, even when there was no safety for me. Who let the guards strip his wife naked? Who trusted our lives to faithless men? Don't push me, Bahar. You can't keep me from speaking here. Maybe among your brothers you'll be brave again, brave enough to blame your wives. I am warning you. My mother was right. I didn't marry a man. You're nothing but a frightened boy. The wet pans and plates trembled in sympathy at the flat, dead sound of his palm on her face. After that, a lamb's wool silence fell. With infinite gentleness, Abe raised a hand to her cheek, lowered it just as gently, went down the hall. The lock on the bedroom door clicked home. Ate was breathing heavily. He looked at Noor and Firouze. Don't start, he said. Noor's eyes welled up, but he did not make a sound. Nasima said, what a nightmare. Firouze said, I hate you, Ate. I wish you were dead. Padarnalat, I gave you life. I saved us time and time again. You didn't know. You'll never know. Does any of that even matter now? What an ungrateful daughter you are. Just like your mother and grandmother, as full of poison as 50 snakes. Wow, Nasima said. Tell him to jump off a cliff. Firuze said, we're going back to Afghanistan. That's worse than jumping off a cliff. Ate said, it's happening. Whether or not any of us wanted to, there's nothing I can do, Dachtaram. If there was, I'd have done it. Firuze said, I can change our story. Stupid, Ate said. A big mouth and a brain, crazy with dreams. What will that get you in Kabul? A bullet. He cocked a finger against his head. I should have been much stricter with you. How will you survive? How will any of us? Firuze went into her room. Noor followed her. In the living room, Ate began to weep. At school, Firuze was already dead. She had not breathed a word of the news, and yet tragedy emanated from her pores. Other students pressed against the wall when she passed. Whole lunch tables emptied when she sat down. Five times a day, she snuck into the girls to search the mirrors for what everyone else saw. Drowned, bloated skin, seaweed for hair. The skull stark beneath her cheeks and lips. All she saw was herself. But that was not much better. If she glanced up from her notes or an exam, she could catch a teacher watching her with a face soft with pity. Do something, she wanted to scream at them. Are you going to sit there and let me disappear? Ms. Jones said, it was a pleasure having you in this class, and I believe I speak for everyone. I haven't left yet, Firuze said, reddening. Her classmates stared. No, but 
Chuck, you know what I mean. Ms. Jones took out a handkerchief and wiped her glasses, then her nose. And I want to say, I will never forget what it was like to be your teacher. Give your family my best. Then she sniffles, Firuze told Noor in outrage, and blows her nose like it's her lily-white bum that's being deported. What is this, my funeral? That's what you get for telling, Noor said. I didn't tell. Anyway, it doesn't matter. You'll get on a plane and go back to Afghanistan. Absolutely no one will remember you. Or you could run away like me. Don't be silly, Noor. Suit yourself. I know you. You'd get hungry in minutes. Before you reach the end of the street, you'd turn around to get a bite. Oh, right, Noor said, springing to his feet. Lunch was hours ago. It's sandwich time. Leave some of the tomatoes or Abe will get angry. He rummaged through the crisper drawer. Abe's always angry. Still doesn't hurt. For you, maybe, you're sticking with them. Stop pretending you'll run away. It's not funny. None of this is funny. You're turning into her, Nur said with his mouth full. Who? Abe, tone of voice and everything. That's the most idiotic thing I've ever heard. Noor plopped down beside her, meat and bread in one hand. Is it any dumber than my plan to stay? Much dumber. Firuze, you've hurt my feelings. Do you even have feelings left to hurt? Yes, and you've hurt all three of them. You'd better make it up to me. Fine. Once there was a dumbass who was soccer mad. Firuze! Okay, once there was a brave little boy. Little! She sighed. If you don't stop interrupting me... He's at least 11. That's not little, Firuze. 11's almost a man. This boy didn't want to leave his new home, although his whole family was leaving, although the government wanted him to. He even had a plane ticket with his name misspelled. Wait. N-O-O-R. Go see for yourself. In a bit. So the boy packed his bags and snuck away from the home that was no longer his home. In the middle of the night, so no one knew, and he hitched his way into the bush. There he made for himself a bow of spotted gum and hunted wombats and kangaroos. But he didn't know how to cook, she added, so he had to eat them fresh and raw. Oh, yuck. No one said running away would be fun. He could make a fire with a glass bottle, Nor said. There's bound to be some trash like that. Maybe he finds a glass bottle, fine. Maybe he cooks his meat sometimes. Is it really important? Yes, Nor said. Nobody knew where the boy had gone. His family shouted his name up until the minute they got on the plane, in case he was nearby and could hear. Do you think he will be okay? They said. Do you think he is hungry, afraid, and alone? We don't know, they said to each other. Only God knows, and God has not been kind to us. Noor said, but he was fine. He was. At night, he could see the Milky Way and the stars that made serpents and peacocks and hares. He pitched a shelter of eucalypt bark and 
day after day he shot his bow. It was lonely since he had no one else. And then he heard that his family was dead. She stopped. Nasima said, smiling, Now where did that come from? You, Firuze said. That was you. What are you talking about? Noor said. Nasima said, Go on. Finish the story, Firuze John. Noor said, What are you staring at? There's nothing there. Firuze said, faltering, with one hand on her throat. He heard it from the Galaz. The Galaz are gossips and like to know the news, so they asked the magpies, who learned it from the crows. And when the boy heard, he curled up in the grass and cried, because now he had neither a family nor a home. All that crying brought black snakes out of the rocks. His bow, Noor said. Where's his bow? He dropped it when he heard the news. There it sat, just out of reach. Nasima said, Then the snakes. Then the snakes bit him on his feet, and the boy shuddered for several hours while the poison crept up to his heart. The stars looked down, and their eyes were cold. Noor stared at her, mouth open. I didn't mean it, Firuze said. I didn't. Nasima said, it's realistic, and he had to hear it. Why not from you? You're the worst, Noor said. He punched a cushion, kicked the doorframe, and slammed outside without his coat. What was that? Abe said. I don't know. He's going to catch a cold. How is that my problem? Piruze said. Chapter 14 The writer was American, barely out of uni, and between finding an international sim and paying tram fares, she appeared to be entirely out of her depth. She was bunking in a hostel with veterinary students and subsisting for the moment on nothing but green apples and sharp cheese. Sister Margaret had privately decided that nothing was likely to come of this. A few phone calls and emails had raised her expectations, but the clumsy young woman she had picked up by car, a girl really, vibrated with such nerves and embarrassment that her edges blurred. But how did you pee when you were on the boat? The writer asked the men they were visiting in Mara Bernong. Sister Margaret shut her eyes. There was a bucket, one man said, or over the side. Why did you run? The writer said. We were in danger. What is detention like? The writer said. They looked at her, their faces gray. It is hell, one of them said eventually. Like nothing, all day long. There is no point. The writer jotted their words in a notebook, her forehead pinched. Both the notebook and the stamp on her wrist were red. The stamps marked them as visitors to the detention center, where asylum seekers paced back and forth behind fences. Sister Margaret visited regularly, whenever she could get her hands on names, which were the keys to the buzzing doors of the detention center. 
She brought cookies and cassoulets with her. You're not forgotten, she told the men. We know you're here. We know your names. It's time to go, Sister Margaret said. There's one more visit we have to make. They were headed to Mita in broad meadows where single boys were kept, Sister Margaret said. She had saved a loaf of banana bread for them. Her car peeled onto the highway under a low sun. You've done this forever, the writer said. Not forever, though it does feel that way. How did you start? I had a calling, Sister Margaret said. What do you mean? It's like hearing your name on the radio when you're alone on a cattle station, but someone far away still knows you're there and has something to tell you urgently, something to ask of you, something you must do. The writer said, I don't understand. Tell me, Sister Margaret said, why are you, an American, writing this book? Several cars went by. A good question, the writer said finally. I've asked myself the same thing many times. And? I want to say kindness or righteous anger, that I'm fixing the world. But that wouldn't be true. A longer silence. It won't let me go, the writer said. Not until it's done. And there's nothing kind or unkind or noble or selfish about it. It simply is. Then you already know what it is to be called. All I understand is that I don't understand. Turning into the car park, Sister Margaret said, Then you're further along than most of us. In Mita, the writer consulted her notes and peppered the young men with lists of questions. She scribbled so furiously that Sister Margaret, watching, felt her own hand cramp. Where is your family? Do you miss them? Can you call? Why did you leave? What was your life like before? What's your life like now? How was living here? Are you treated well? How long have you waited? When do you think they will let you go? One boy quietly brought them toast on foam plates and foam cups of water. Nothing in that place was permanent. Not the food, not the dinnerware, not the boys themselves. Sister Margaret knew that all too well. That is enough for today, she said. The writer said, are we going somewhere else? They drove to the church that housed the Richmond Refugee Community Center and walked down the steps to the basement. This is Mrs. Sarisho, Sister Margaret said. Samuel, Muhammad, and Grace. Glad to meet you, the writer said. I'm sorry we're late. Sister Margaret said. It's all right, Mrs. Sarisho said. Here, take a plate. Sit down and eat. The writer devoured the bread and chickpeas and soup with the voraciousness of someone who had been trying to live on apples. Where are you from? She said. Why did you come here? How bad was it? Sister Margaret rubbed the back of her neck, wishing for her small room at St. Kilda Sanctuary. With its fresh white sheets on the bed, and wildflowers in a blue glass bottle. But she saw very little of that neat, clean room. When she wasn't showing a tactless American around, she was meeting with solicitors and placing calls to whichever MPs she thought might listen. 
the government had your phone lines tapped? What do you do now? Have you seen your son at all? In photos, even? No, Samuel said. Never. He's two years old. I drive a forklift. I move pallets of fruit. It was very bad. They were always listening. Mrs. Cerisho said, You're a writer. Good. You will write about this? Muhammad said, grinning, You must mention how smart and handsome I am. Because they should know, the Australian government should know that we are human beings, that their rules hurt us. I'll try, the writer said, swallowing. There was additional business at the center that night. The organization of a fundraiser, along with schedules of detention center visits and protests. When the writer began covering huge yawns, running one after the other like waves on the sea, Sister Margaret tapped her on the shoulder. There's a family you ought to meet, but they're not here tonight. The Dizangis. They have the sweetest kids. How long are you staying? My flight's in the morning. Too bad, then. Here, I'll take you back to your hostel. In the soft blue evening, bright shop fronts and street lamps flickered past the car windows. The rider stared out, her head turned away. One thumb worried the notebook in her lap. I asked the wrong questions, didn't I? If I were you, Sister Margaret said, I'd have asked about joy. Joy? When you have nothing and no reason to hope, when the odds are impossible and not one but two governments stand against you, how do you laugh? How do you see beauty? How do you still show kindness and love? I don't know. I haven't thought about it. Anyone can suffer. But joy, that's hard. Ask about joy. Next time, the writer said, I will. Chapter 15 Seven days before their scheduled deportation, Firuze came home to a puzzle of pots, pans, and containers on the kitchen counter and spread across the Dastarkhan. Eat, Abe said in a voice like cut wire. There's no use waiting. Abe's eyes were swollen from crying, but this was no longer unusual. Firuze picked a careful path between pans to Abe and hugged her as tight as she could. As her nose brushed the cloth of Abe's blouse, she smelled a new odor, astringent and dry. Where's Noor? Firuze said. At soccer practice. How lucky is that? Otherwise, there'd be nothing left. Where did this come from, anyway? Did Sister Margaret tell people we were going to starve? Just eat, Jenna. Don't ask questions today. Firuze opened a foil-wrapped bundle of bread and stuck a warm piece in her mouth. Are you hungry? I'll eat later. Are you want to eat? For Ate? No. Firuze lifted covers and sheets of foil and film. She piled her plate with eggplant, chicken, lamb, soups, stews, palo sebzi, and more soft bread. The sound of her own chewing was loud in her ears. Abe stood by the window, hands crumpled together, looking everywhere and nowhere. 
After she had emptied her heaping plate, Firuze licked her fingers and said brightly into the silence, Noor will think he's died and gone to heaven. Her mother's chin jerked up. Firuze studied the labyrinth of pans, then hopped and skipped to the kitchen, plate in hand. Know how much I love you? I'm going to do homework, even though there's no point. It's not like marks matter anymore. Abe picked up a dish towel and began to scrub an invisible stain in the countertop. Over and over. Her lips screwed tight, as if she was trying not to speak. An hour snailed past. Firuze's pencil trekked through great white wastes, trailing gray nouns, verbs, and prepositions, but after a time she succumbed to boredom and began drawing diamonds and checkerboards. Outside, a car door slammed. Feet smacked the half-cracked pavers leading up to the flat. Then Noor's nose, followed by the rest of him, burst in and swung like a compass needle to his stomach's true north. A party, he yelped. Mom, when do we eat? Please, Abe said. Go right ahead. Fingers quivering above a kofta kebab, Noor froze. Abe, what did you say? I said you can eat whenever you want. Noor wadded the kebab into his cheek, then stood on tiptoe and reached for Abe's forehead. Firuze, I think Abe might be sick. Can you please check her temperature? Eat, Abe said, taking down a plate. Eat, and don't bother me right now. But I haven't showered or washed my hands. I don't care. Noor danced from side to side in an agony of indecision. Yes, but Ate cares, and he'll be home soon. I'll shower first. Thanks, Mom. He vanished. They heard the spit of water on tile. Abe returned the plate to the cupboard and resumed an attitude of lifelessness. It was eight o'clock, then eight thirty. Noor, clean, his wet hair uncombed, had demolished most of the cooling spread. Now he sprawled on the floor, plump and satisfied. The tick of the clock was sharp and loud. Noor said, shouldn't Ate be home by now? Abe, Firuze said, is something wrong? Noor said, besides the bit where we're being deported next week? Abe said, Ate's not coming home. Where'd he go? Noor said, did he run away? Did he steal my idea? Abe needed a fistful of skirt in each hand. Yes, Noor, she said at last. He did. Noor said, good, then I'll find him when I run away too. The doorbell squalled. Shirin's mother stood outside with Shirin. The girls stared at each other through the wire mesh. I heard the news from Rahima, Shirin's mother said, holding up a covered pan. I'm so sorry. I brought Halwa. It was fate. What could he do? The car that fell was meant for him. Are you all right? Are the children all right? Are there insurance forms I can take care of for you? No, no, please come in, Abe managed. We're fine. They arranged themselves around the halwa. 
No one reached forward to cut a piece. It's too tragic, Shireen's mother said. He wasn't old. They should have noticed the wear on the hoist's fluid lines. Ali Reza's cousin is beside himself, as he should be, on top of the visa denials. Life has been so cruel to you. Will they postpone your deportations, do you think? I don't know, Abe said. Nor said, Abe, what is she talking about? Now the three of you are alone. How sad this is. It's okay, Nor said. Ate's brave and smart. He'll do better than I would out in the bush. No snakes will get him. He'll be safe. Shirin's gaze crawled from Firuze to Nur, then from Nur to Firuze. Shirin's mother blinked at them. Have the children been overcome by grief? Your father is dead and was buried today. An accident at work. Bahar, did you... You're lying, Nor said. You're a liar or a mental patient. Hobby, what is she doing in our home? My mom's not a liar, Shirin said. Shirin's mother said, not unkindly. Don't be so blind. Why do you think all this food is here? I... Noor turned in a circle on his knees, taking in the mosaic of mismatched pans. No, Ate ran away. You're wrong. Abe said, Noor, enough. Tell her, tell her she's wrong. Shirin's mother said, I find that telling children the truth from the start saves me a headache later. Why don't you tell her she's wrong? Noor shouted. Where are your manners, Firuze? Abe said. Pour Hanum Farahzada another cup of tea. Oh, no, thank you. We'll be going now. Shirin? Yes, Maman. Firuze's hands shook. The thermos she held slopped tea over its sides and scalded her fingers. Abe shut the door behind their guests. Firuze put that halwa in the fridge. And the other food? Same thing, as much of it as you can fit. Noor said, why didn't you say anything to her? Abe sighed, stacked the empty cups and plates, and carried the dishes to the sink. In their bedroom, when the lights were out, Noor said, was that girl a friend of yours? Her mother's mean. A cosefil. Firuze said, Noor, Ate is dead. Don't tell me you believe her. Why would she lie? Why would Abe lie? To protect us, Firuze said. Then after a long moment, that makes you the man of the house now. Across the room, Noor lay motionless. A slow, soft breath. Is it true that Ate's dead? Yes. Fuck. Nor, I don't want to talk. I'm going to sleep. Nesima said, What a pity. Did you do this? Pirize hissed. Me? Who cursed her own father and told him to die? You got what you wanted. I didn't want this. It certainly could have gone better. Give Ate back to me. I can't do that. 
Besides, if you had to choose, Ate or home? Nor's life, Abe's and yours, or his? I think I know what you would do. What kind of choice is that? One you didn't have to make. Nor said, Firuze, who are you talking to? Go look, Nesima said, in the garbage bin. Firuze slid the covers back. She padded barefoot down the hall, flicked the switch, and squinted in the harsh white light. Once her eyes adjusted, she dug into the garbage bin, past sauce and scrapings, tea leaves, apple cores, wet tissues. Her fingers closed on an odd black flake. A scrap of burnt paper. Then another. Then a third. The largest of these still showed pale blue ruling and the remnants of a penciled word. Love. Down the hall, a door opened. Abe came into the kitchen, covering her eyes. What in the name of the merciful God? Firuze, up to her wrists and garbage, said, Ate left a note, didn't he? What? Firuze found a fourth cinder and placed it with the rest. Please, Abe, I'm old enough, and I know enough. Janam, you don't know what you are doing. Abe stooped for the fragments and shredded them further, then plunged her closed fist into the garbage to bury them. There. Now let's go wash our hands. The tap ran cold wakefulness over Firuze's skin. Abe, please tell me. Did he say why? Because he loved us. Ate wanted to die for us. You must never repeat this to anyone. Not even Noor? Noor especially. Firuze dried her hands on a dishcloth, turned, and looked into her brother's eyes. Abe, rinsing eggshell from her arms, did not see. Noor pulled his blanket tight around him and retreated as soundlessly as he had arrived. Chapter 16 Two days later, Noor did not come home. As far as anyone could figure, between music and maths, he had walked out of the school and into thin air. Abe called Firuze's school and had her sent home. I've already talked to the police, she said. They're looking. Everyone is looking. And for what? To deport him. It's enough to make anyone give up on God. Her eyes were pouched, her shoulders caving. Peterze said, should we look too? What's the point? So he can be blown up or shot in Kabul? Abe laughed a hard and bitter laugh. The two of you will stick out there like diamonds in coal. You'll die. We'll all die. But maybe Noor has a chance if he stays. Did you call Jake's parents? They said they haven't seen him. They would say that, though, wouldn't they, if he was hiding there? Firuze reached for the phone. What's their number? Jake's mother said, Like I told your mom earlier, I don't know a thing. But Jake's home now. Let me put him on. 
Jake. So you're the sister, Jake said. Did Nor tell you anything? Some rubbish about going bush and a volcano and soccer. I thought he was kidding. I'd have stopped him, I swear. Peterze hung up the phone. Abe, I'm going out to look for him. Do whatever you want. Can I have five dollars? If you're running away too, you'll need more than five dollars. Abe, I won't run away. Then don't go too far. Nor was not in any of the parks within walking distance of his school. Firuze shouted his name until her voice cracked. There was no reply. Nasima said, You could walk for hours and never get to all the houses and yards and shops he might be hiding in. Are you here to gloat? Odd as it sounds, your story is important to mine. You're a nightmare, aren't you? That's what's happening. You're jealous and hungry because you're dead and I'm alive. So you're eating me. Story by story, piece by piece. It's because of you that Gulalai is gone and Ate is dead and Noor is missing. You and your help. I don't want it. Go away. Say it three times and I will, Nasima said, her face dark and still. But listen a minute. Have you asked the djinn where your brother went? They can cross the whole world in a thought. Oh, yes, I'll put on my iron shoes and climb Mount Qaf to talk to them. Do you think life's a fairy tale? I'm serious. Get lost, Nasima. That's twice. Be careful. Ha! Huh. If you're too stubborn to ask, I'll do it for you. And for Noor. Once I had brothers, too. Nasima closed her eyes as if listening. All right, stupid, she said. Get on the train to South Yara. Noor's in the Botanic Gardens. Be quick. I don't believe you, Firuze said. Believe whatever you like, but your brother's there. And if you don't find him, someone else will. The djinn talk, and now they know there's a lost boy wandering alone in Melbourne. Soon, the Deves and Paris will hear it too. And your mother has told you, hasn't she, of the Paris red claws and the Deves' sharp teeth? Why would there be djinn, Deves, and Paris here? The stories are different in Australia. Stories go where people go, Nasima said. In dreams, in fresh tellings, in memories. Jin have been here for over a hundred years. They came with the first of Rans, liked the place, and stayed. Like you came here with me. I'll follow you anywhere, unlike Noor, even back to Afghanistan. Nasima smiled. Maybe it's better if the Perdis take Noor. He'll be safer with them, and you never liked him anyway. Firuze shut her eyes. I can't hear you. You're not real. I'm normal. We're fine. Noor's just throwing a tantrum, and he'll be home soon. Nasima, we were never friends. Living girls, normal girls, don't talk to dead ones. Go away and don't come back. She took the white pebble from her pocket 
and hurled it without looking as hard as she could. When she opened her eyes, the world was empty. Some kind of light had gone out of it. Firuze knew with an aching certainty that it would not return. Dead leaves cartwheeled along the footpath, their sharp points scratching across the cement. At the station, Firuze bought a concession ticket and waited for the next train. The car she boarded was full of students. They jousted with pens, elbows, and knees, holding school bags as shields, laughing and shoving each other. Firuze hated them with a black and overwhelming passion. Not one of them had to worry about deportation or a missing brother or a broken mother and the empty space where Ate had been. She disembarked at South Yara. It was a short walk to the southern gate of the Botanic Gardens. In the wane of the year, the garden slept. Palms and gums striped green lawns with blue shadows. Buds held their breath and waited for spring. Signs pointed her toward a volcano, which proved to be a sad concrete cistern clad in tarpaulins and blocked off by temporary fences. Succulents slept on its slopes. No newer. She turned toward the lake. Green ducks approached her, cutting through a thick mat of duckweed. On the far side, a black swan billed the water for crumbs. Firuze shouted her brother's name. The ducks changed course. Noor was not there either. Invisible bellbirds rang silver notes through the trees. Little white dogs trotted down the path, pulling women in joggers and blazers behind them. The Yara gleamed at her like crushed glass. Firuze left the garden and followed the river. Young couples snuggled against each other, making moves and taking photographs. Elderly couples tapped and swung their canes. High up on a plinth, Queen Victoria glared down with an expression resembling gulalize. Someone had markered black mustaches on the surrounding marble nymphs. Noor, Firuze called, her voice reduced to balled-up paper. Noor, it's me. Nor where are you? Here. Nor sat under a bronze statue, hugging his knees. His face was dirty, his eyes red. What are you doing? Running away, dummy. I told you, didn't I? Everybody's looking for you. Nobody cares. Not really. If you cared, you would have found me ages ago. I'm not as smart or fast as you think I am. Is Abe out looking? Firuze did not answer. Yeah, I didn't think so. She, nor it's only been two days. Abe lied to us. Everyone lies to us. Yes. It's not fair. None of this is fair. It's not. So are you here to drag me home? Not if you don't want me to. Firuze sat down next to him. Nor said, are you running away too? No. Then why are you here? 
Firuze patted the statue's cold bronze nose. It was an odd creature covered in curls, here bluish in color, here golden, here green. I came to listen. Listen? Tell me a story, whatever you want. Noor stared at his feet. I don't know how to start. Once there was, and once there wasn't. I'm not stupid. I want to tell it in English. Once upon a time. Then what? There was a boy. A regular, normal boy. He wasn't bad. He wasn't good. His dad yelled sometimes. His mom cried and lied. His sister was mean. He had friends, but they all went away. Bad things happened to some of them. He dreamed about it. He dreamed you could see them, their mouths stitched up or their fingers falling piece by piece in the street where a bomb went off. Bad things happened to the boy, too. But they were in the past, so he could forget. Until he went to sleep. Then the dreams. He shivered. When he was angry, he could not stop being angry. Not for a long, long, very long time. Except when he ran. The running helped. And people liked it when he blocked a pass or scored a goal. People liked him. One boy kissed him, even. Then he didn't dream. Then things were okay. Then his home decided to spit him out, him and his family. His dad, who was broken, decided to die, as if all the bad things had been waiting and watching this whole time. Now they came for him. So the boy did the only thing he could do. Nor fell quiet. What does the boy do after that? I haven't decided yet but he gave her a tiny glare. No snakes. Telling stories is difficult, even when you know how they should end. And a living's harder. Are you sure you don't want to run away with me? Firuze said, I can't let Abe get on the plane alone. She needs me, Noor. She needs you, too. Even if she doesn't know it, even if she never says it. He rolled this idea across his tongue, tilted his head, and scrunched his eyes. At last, he nodded. Firuze said, Did you figure out a good ending? Yes, he said, and took her hand. The bronze creature smiled down at them. What is this thing anyway? Firuze said as they stood, brushing grass and leaf mold off their shoes. Says Ginny on the plate. It looked nice, so I sat down here. Firuze blinked. Thank you for taking care of him, she said to the statue. Please tell Nasima I'm sorry. Nasima? The girl from the boat who died? Firuze said, She sent the Ginny to look for you. A jinni flies faster than thought, you know. Now let's go home.
Chapter 17 Sister Margaret called with the news. The deportation order had been deferred for six months. For humanitarian reasons, she said. That's the official line. But politically, it looks terrible to insist on immediate removal after a tragedy like this. The journalists would have a field day, and everyone knows it. Into that sudden slackening of time rushed bills that once more required payment, phone calls to plead for leniency, insurance forms, profuse apologies from Ali Reza's cousin, condolences, notices, soccer practices, and schoolwork. None of them could spare a moment to fully feel, much less a breath to mourn. Abe drove them to Noor's team's final match in Ate's rusted, stuttering car. When they reached the sports ground, Noor bolted from the car. Firuze and Abe ascended the grandstand as Noor joined his teammates at the center of the pitch. Other families fished colas and cordials out of blue eskies. Though Noor did his best, leaping and diving to block, Three balls slipped past him and plunked into the net. He was sent to the bench, and Aaron took his place at the goal. Abe stood and waved. A blonde girl glanced at her and laughed. Blushing, Firuze grabbed Abe's elbow and dragged her back down. Janam, why should I sit? I'm saying hello. It's embarrassing, Mom. What, waving is now embarrassing? He didn't know where we were sitting. If I'm wrong, why is Noor ignoring us? Yes, that's silly. He should be waving back. Noor spent the rest of the game on the bench, while Aaron, enthusiastic, cow-footed Aaron, tripped and missed and lost the ball. With every mistake, Noor's shoulders drooped lower. At last, a whistle blew. The game was over. Noor's team had lost 1-32. to 32. Mustering a smile, Noor said, The team's going to Macca's, Mom. Can I? We don't have the money, Abe said. Jake says he'll shout me, and his parents will drive. For the last time, Noor, no. Abe reached for his hand. Noor jerked away. You don't want any of us to have fun, he said, so loudly that heads around them swiveled. It's always, what will people think? Well, do you know what people think of you? They're thinking, what an awful mother. They're thinking, what a miserable kid. Noor, Abe gritted through her teeth. I should have kept running. I should never have come home. Then stay here, Abe snapped. She stormed toward the car park. Firuze followed, glancing back at her brother every five or six steps. Come on, she said. Noor. I'm not going. Then Jake was standing beside him, an arm around his shoulders. You're joining us at Macca's, right? Yeah, Noor said, his eyes on Firuze. If you give me a ride. That boy, Abe said, slamming into the car. Just like his father. Feckless, careless, irresponsible. Ate was scared. Maybe Noor's also. Don't you talk like that about your father. But you... Hands fixed, vice-like on the wheel, Abe braked and accelerated, braked and accelerated, jolting Firuze into silence. 
Firuze cranked down the window and stuck her nose out into the blessedly cool air. Did I ever tell you the rest of that story? About Hase Homar? Mom, you don't have to. Well, the woodcutter's wife and Bibi Nagar burn Hastehomar's snakeskin, so he can't change back into a snake. And Hastehomar says to Bibi Nagar, Farewell! If you hadn't burned my skin, we could have been happy for ages. As if. What woman likes to be married to a snake, even one who turns into a man at night? He says, Now I must return to Mount Kaf, where my relatives, the Peris, live. Will I never see you again, his wife says. You whom I love beyond life? He says, only if you walk until you wear out seven pairs of iron shoes. And he vanishes. And she, the idiot, puts on iron shoes and walks for a year and a day. At the end of the year, she asks whose fields these are that she walks through. And everywhere the answer is the same. They are Hastechomar's bride price for Bibi Nagar. And these donkeys? Same thing. And these wells? Those too. That's how Bibi Nagar knows she is near Mount Qaf. She sends her ring to Hastechomar through his servant, so he knows his wife is near. And he shows up embarrassed. Oh, Bibi Nagar, I am engaged to a demoness. But how about you work as a maid until I figure out what to do with you? So she does. She cooks, she cleans, and she outwits the Perrys, his mother and aunt, who would like nothing better than to eat her whole. At last, the wedding day arrives. The Perrys decide to use her fingers for candles. Oh, Hastechomar, she says, what do I do? We'll wrap your fingers in cotton, he says. And they do. For the wedding procession, Hastechomar and the demoness walk thrice times three around the room, and Bibi Nagar walks ahead of them, her fingers burning to give them light. Hastechomar, she cries, my fingers are burning. Bibi Nagar, he replies, my heart is burning, which isn't the same thing at all, you know. Then bride and groom retire to bed. And Bibi Nagar lies down outside their door, crying bitter tears for love. In the middle of the night, brave Hastechomar kills his demon bride. They flee the Peris and are restored as husband and wife. But what kind of life is that? When you know your husband can't protect you, and your feet are worn through, and your fingers are gone. Firuze said nothing. Abe wedged the car against the curb. They went into the flat. What a coward Hastechomar was, Abe said. Then she crumpled to the carpet and rocked with sobs. Omid, she keened. Omid, come back. I'll kill you, Jigaram, my husband, you selfish ass. Firuze fetched tissues and blotted at her mother's locked eyes and sticky nose and stretched open mouth, from which terrible sounds came. It's okay, Mum, she said. Hush, shh. 
tissue after tissue piled up into mountains before Abe's sobs stiffened and slowed. Firuze said, Come on, let's get you to bed. She tried to lift Abe's damp, heavy head. Her mother's hair trickled over Firuze's wrists, white strands salting the black. No. You can't lie here like this. You'll feel better in bed. Maybe you'll fall asleep. I'll make tea. I'll make dinner. Let's go, Abe. She talked and petted her mother to her feet. Step by swaying step, Abe slumped down the hall, then stood and stared at the bedroom door until Firuze opened it. While Abe sat on the bed, making the short moans of a wounded dove, Firuze worked a plastic comb through Abe's sweat-thick hair. Then she lifted her mother's shirt, undid her creaking bra, and pulled her nightgown over her head and down around her softening breasts. There, Firuze said. Doesn't that feel better? Now why don't you lie down and rest? And Abe, unresisting, obeyed. Firuze had a good, quiet cry of her own, then cracked four eggs into a pan. Right as they began to smoke, Noor edged the door ajar, threw her a sideways glance, and said, Is Abe home? She's asleep. The door opened wider, and Noor came in. Some game, she said. Yeah, I know. You couldn't have kept your dumb mouth shut. Please, Noor said. You're just as bad, and Abe needed to yell a bit. She hasn't cried once since... Good news, Firuze said. She cried and cried. Uh, sorry. He twirled a pinky in one ear. For leaving you to deal with that. You mean lighting the fuse and running away? I did, didn't I? He sighed. Was it bad? I've never seen her like that. And you remember the war. Some of it sometimes. Anyway, here's dinner. I had macas. I'm not starving. What's this? Did you cook? What else was I supposed to do? Right, right. How was macas? Everyone's sitting around with big glum faces eating chips. Hey, I said, at least I wasn't deported. No one laughed. I thought it was a good joke. That's a terrible joke. You try cheering up a losing team. Even cheeseburgers didn't work. I thought I smelled that on your breath. Cheese and pickles and onion. I'll go brush my teeth. You sure Abe's asleep? Even if she's awake, I don't think you'll get the ripping apart you deserve. What a shame. Without firm discipline, I'll run amok. And then, what will people think? They said together. Firuze smiled. If I thought that was happening, I'd smack you myself. I know you would. He paused. Ate knew when to clap. He was proud of me. After I started playing sevens, he came to pick me up and saw me score a goal. He put me on his shoulders, called me Rostam, and said he was my Rechish. That's different with Abe. She doesn't know. She'll figure it out. 
more she'll pull me out of the league. Or that. I don't know what I'd do if I couldn't. If Abe. Let's worry about that tomorrow, okay? It's late. Let's sleep. But shower first. You smell like pickles and sweat. I love you too, Jigaram, Nora said, rolling his eyes. Hey, stop that. Ow! Shower, Firuze said, pointing. Now. Chapter 18 I should tell you about my friend, Firuze said. Whatever you want, Shireen said, her eyes moving left and right. School had let out barely minutes before, the first arterial bleed of students already washed away. Her name was Nasima. We were in a boat with her family. They were going to live with her brothers in Perth. Yeah, yeah, same old thing. Then she died. What? A big storm hit us. We were crying, praying. The boat nearly sank. When the waves stopped throwing us around, she was gone. Shit, Firuze, warn a girl, would you? That's heavy stuff. Shireen quit bouncing on the balls of her feet and looked straight at Firuze. She really drowned? Yes. But we promised each other before the storm that we'd stay friends no matter what. So she came back. Your fucking dead friend came back? Because she cared in her own way. She ate nightmares for me. She kissed me to sleep. She said you weren't real, that none of this was, that I was caught in another nightmare and couldn't see. But whenever I wanted, I could take everything apart. I didn't believe her. In the end, I told her to go away. And she did. Good. Otherwise, I'd tell you to see a shrink. I wanted to tell you because Gulalai... I think she had someone like that. Yeah, she had dodgy wiring in the attic, like you. We were probably similar in other ways. I wish I'd been kinder. I don't. And that's the thing. Gulalai was right. Firuze smiled and walked away. Hey, wait! Shireen ran after her. Right about what? About you. And Firuze, now friendless, took the long way home. In May, as Abe showed signs of stirring from her despondence, the federal government announced the end of TPVs. They would be given permanent protection, Sister Margaret said. Abe said nothing. She hung up the phone, then took it off its cradle and flung it across the room. When the spiraling wire reached its limit, the handset bounced once and slid, spinning back toward her. Then she closed all the curtains and went to bed. It was a long time before she got up again. By late November, Firuze was combing Abe's neglected hair, wrapping and pinning her scarf, and reminding Abe to brush her teeth before she left for a few hours' work at nearby Maccas. 
The job was enough for the rent and food with some help. Samuel and Mo often came around to fix whatever needed fixing and drop off bags of onions, tomatoes, eggs, and rice. The English tutor, Grace, brought string bags of oranges with every visit. She showed up even when her program no longer required it, even when Abe sat sightless and speechless, leaking tears. In those times, Grace put a pencil in Abe's hand, wrapped her own hand around Abe's, and traced the words she was meant to learn that day. I'll be able to work soon, Firuze said. Then you won't have to worry so much. Abe, gazing at the wall, said, Do you want to go see Ate this weekend? He was buried in a simple grave in Bonarong, south of town. Abe said. Noor said, but we went last weekend. It makes her feel better. It gets her to talk. Noor said, if we tried, we could get her outside. Right now, before the sun goes down. I saw something this afternoon that I think she will like. Did you hear that, Abe? The blank stare swept over her. I've got her left arm, Firuze said. Ready? Noor said and grunted. Up. Although she had wept and slept away most of her flesh, Abe's bones were still heavy, and the two of them struggled to raise her up. But once she stood, compliant and dull, it was not hard to steer her toward the door, to slip shoes onto her cracked feet and draw her outside. Where are we going? Noor said, Anywhere. They're all over the place. But let's go left. Down the street and around the corner they went, towing Abe behind them. The air was warm and rich with the smells of growing things. Abe shuffled along, head lowered, eyes down, like a widow of war. Another block, and there they were. Noor said, Jake told me they're jacarandas. Give them two days and they'll squish brown and smell like garbage. But today... Today, the trees bloomed in gentle profusion, soft with slipper flowers the color of evening clouds. A thick odor like honey left Firuze dizzy. Abe stopped beneath one and gazed up through the twisting branches. They let go of her arms. She put one hand on the scaly bark. How pretty, Abe said. They should have viewing parties. We used to go to Istalif in the spring to see the red-purple Argawan. You've probably forgotten. You were very young. Firuze said, I remember. Nor said, I don't. Omid would have liked this. He had a weakness for beauty. That's how someone like him wound up with me. But these trees must have been here for years. Why didn't we see? You were always busy, Firuze said, and worried and scared. Even if I was, I should have seen. Nor said, well, they're not going away. We'll see them tomorrow. And the day after that. And next year and the year after that. If God wills. If everything Firuze said, 
We can worry about all of that tomorrow. Or the day after. That's even better. Now, how did this daughter of mine grow so wise? From Ate and you. From stories. From friends. I'm wise too, aren't I? Nor said. Firuze said, you do ask a lot of whys. Not funny. But Ave smiling. All right, that joke was okay. Let's hear you tell a better one. He thought, I've got a joke about a kangaroo. It's a real kicker, see? Firuze threw a flower at him. They ran from tree to tree, all the way down the street, flinging sticky blue flowers at each other and laughing. The sky purpled and dimmed. When they reached their flat, all of them covered in flowers, Abe unlocked the door, turned on the porch light, and brushed each of them clean before letting them in. And then they were home. Chapter 19 Firuze dreamed. In this dream was Ate on a yellow horse with rose petal spots. He said to her, How you've grown. And she said, I miss you. Why did you go away? And he said, Sometimes the hero has to be brave and leave his family for their own good. And she ran to him, and he climbed down from his horse, and he smelled like halwa and asfand and ate. Nasima was there, with pearls as big as cherries in her hair, and coral and kelp around her arms. She said, Bitch, don't say you've forgotten me. Firuze said, How could I? But how are you here? Oh, well, the walls between worlds are thin tonight. Will I see you again? You abandoned me, and I've walked on as I should have done. I didn't know. Thank you. And Firuze said, Ate, will you love her like a daughter? He said, of course. Come with me, Ate said to Nasima. We are going the same direction, I believe. And Nasima, will you promise to give him hell like a proper daughter should? That's not what I meant. He won't be alone, she said. I promise, but I can't promise he won't miss you. That's all right. Be good, both of you. Goodbye, she said. Firuze awoke with seawater drying on her face. And they stayed on that side of the water, and we on this. The End this book was read for you by Jeed Sadi, a member of SAG-AFTRA. We hope you have enjoyed this production of On Fragile Waves by E. Lily Yu. Recorded books are available wherever audiobooks are sold. 
Thank you for listening to Recorded Books.